Conceived in Liberty, Volume 4, The Revolutionary War, 1775-1784, by Murray N. Rothbard. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Tom Paine Volume 4, Preface What? Another American history book? The reader may be pardoned for wondering about the point of another addition to the seemingly inexhaustible flow of books and text on American history. One problem, as pointed out in the bibliographical essay at the end of Volume 1, is that the survey studies of American history have squeezed out the actual stuff of history, the narrative facts of the important events of the past, with the true data of history squeezed out, what we have left are compressed summaries and the historian's interpretations and judgments of the data. There is nothing wrong with the historians having such judgments. Indeed, without them, history would be a meaningless and giant almanac listing dates and events with no causal links. But without the narrative facts, the reader is deprived of the data from which he can himself judge the historian's interpretations and evolve interpretations of his own. A major point of this and the other volumes is to put the historical narrative back into American history. Facts, of course, must be selected and ordered in accordance with judgments of importance, and such judgments are necessarily tied into the historian's basic world outlook. My own basic perspective on the history of man and of fortiori on the history of the United States is to place central importance on the great conflict which is eternally waged between liberty and power. A conflict, by the way, which was seen with crystal clarity by the American revolutionaries of the 18th century. I see the liberty of the individual not only as a great moral good in itself, or, with Lord Acton, as the highest political good, but also as the necessary condition for the flowering of all the other goods that mankind cherishes, moral virtue civilization, the arts and sciences, economic prosperity. Out of liberty, then, stem the glories of civilized life. But liberty has always been threatened by the encroachments of power, power which seeks to suppress, control, cripple, tax, and exploit the fruits of liberty and production. Power, then, the enemy of liberty is consequently the enemy of all the other goods and fruits of civilization that mankind holds dear. And power is almost always centered in and focused on that central repository of power and violence, the state. 
With Albert J. Nock, the 20th century American political philosopher, I see history as centrally a race and conflict between social power, the productive consequence of voluntary interactions among men, and state power. In those eras of history when liberty, social power, has managed to race ahead of state power and control, the country and even mankind have flourished. In those eras when state power has managed to catch up with or surpass social power, mankind suffers and declines. For decades, American historians have quarreled about conflict or consensus as the guiding leitmotif of the American past. Clearly, I belong in the conflict rather than the consensus camp, with the proviso that I see the central conflict as not between classes, social or economic, or between ideologies, but between power and liberty, state and society. The social or ideological conflicts have been ancillary to the central one, which concerns who will control the state and what power will the state exercise over the citizenry. To take a common example from American history, there are, in my view, no inherent conflicts between merchants and farmers in the free market. On the contrary, in the market, the sphere of liberty, the interest of merchants and farmers are harmonious, with each buying and selling the products of the other. Conflicts arise only through the attempts of various groups of merchants or farmers to seize control over the machinery of government, and to use it to privilege themselves at the expense of the others. It is only through and by state action that class conflicts can ever arise. This volume deals with the exciting events of the American Revolution, perhaps the most fateful years in American history. While the military history of the war necessarily takes first rank, it is not simply a recital of the battles. Intertwined with the tactics and the strategy of the war were ideological conflicts over how the war should be fought and what sort of government and society should emerge after the war was over. In particular, important light is shed on both the battles and the military strategy of the war by incorporating the latest historical researches applying what we now know about the importance of guerrilla vis-a-vis conventional interstate warfare for the waging of a revolutionary armed struggle. The military histories of the revolution, written before the 1960s, are hopelessly inadequate because they fail to grasp this vital dimension in explaining the course of the fighting. In addition to the history of the warfare itself, this volume discusses the political history of the period, in particular the conflicts over the kinds of state governments to be constructed and the drive of the nationalist for a strong central government. This period culminates in the adoption of the Articles of Confederation and in the rise to power of Robert Morris. Also discussed are the oft-neglected financial history of the war, the ruinous inflation and price controls, and the political-financial manipulations of Morris and his associates. The book also deals with the Western lands question, 
which will take on fateful importance in the 19th century. It concludes by assessing the impact of the revolution on America and Europe, and by asking the question, was the revolution truly radical? My intellectual debts for this volume are simply too numerous to mention, especially since an historian must bring to bear not only his own discipline, but also his knowledge of economics, of political philosophy, and of mankind in general. Here I would just like to mention, for his methodology of history, Ludwig von Mises, especially his much-neglected volume, Theory and History and Lord Acton for his emphasis on the grievously overlooked moral dimension. For his political philosophy and general outlook on American history, Albert J. Nock, particularly his Our Enemy, the State. As for my personal debts, I am happy to be more specific. This series of volumes would never have been attempted, much less seen the light of day, without the inspiration encouragement, and support provided by Kenneth S. Templeton, Jr., now of the Liberty Fund, Indianapolis, Indiana. I hope that he won't be overly disappointed with these volumes. I am grateful to the Foundation for Foreign Affairs, Chicago, for enabling me to work full-time on the volumes, and to David S. Collier of the Foundation for his help and efficient administration. Others who have helped with ideas and aid in various stages of the manuscript are Charles G. Koch and George Pearson of Wichita, Kansas, and Robert D. Kephart of Kephart Communications, Incorporated, Alexandria, Virginia. To my first mentor in the field of American history, Joseph Dorfman, now Professor Emeritus at Columbia University, I owe in particular the rigorous training that is typical of that keen and thorough scholar. But my greatest debt is to Leonard P. Ligio, editor of The Literature of Liberty, San Francisco, whose truly phenomenal breadth of knowledge and insight into numerous fields and areas of history are an inspiration to all who know him. Over the years in which this manuscript took shape, I was fortunate in having several congenial typists, in particular Willette Murphy Klausner of Los Angeles and the now-distinguished intellectual historian and social philosopher Dr. Ronald Hamoway of the University of Alberta. I would particularly like to thank Louise Williams and Joanne Ebeline of New York City for their often heroic services in typing this manuscript. The responsibility for the final product is, of course, wholly my own. Murray and Rothbard, November 1978 Chapter 1. Spreading the News of Lexington and Concord The news of the victorious battles of Lexington and Concord on April 19, 1775, hit the world like a thunderclap. They were truly a shot heard round the world, and it was the first order of the day for the Massachusetts radicals to make sure that the news spread, especially to the other colonies, in the right way. They needed to present a picture of events that would evoke sympathy and solidarity for the revolutionary cause. The basic outlines of the case were there in reality. Proud British troops had invaded the countryside outside Boston, they had launched an armed conflict by shooting down a brave, heavily outnumbered troop 
at Lexington. And finally, they were smashed by a triumphant array of enthusiastic, individualistic American farmers on the retreat from Concord. As historian Arthur Tortolo has put it, the British had marched out of Boston in force. The British had fired to kill first. The British had destroyed property. There had been bloodshed and death. All this established beyond any doubt that the Americans had been the victims. At the same time, and this was equally important, the Americans were also the victors. The half-believed argument that the American colonists would never stand up to British regulars was thoroughly shattered. But the facts had to be dressed up for popular consumption, especially before the British could turn on their engines of propaganda. There was little need at first to whip up Massachusetts, whose armed farmers were on fire and beginning to pour in to aid the militia. But it was essential and much more difficult to try to command the support of the other colonies for the revolution. Colonies whose leadership had always been suspicious of the radicalism and individualism of the Bay Colony. While John Hancock, John Adams, and Sam Adams departed for the crucial meeting of the Second Continental Congress, scheduled for May 10, the leadership of radicalism in Massachusetts was left in the capable hands of Dr. Joseph Warren. A brilliant young man educated in liberty under Edward Gutz Holyoke at Harvard, Warren had been the only political leader to participate in the first line of fighting over the whole course of the flight from Concord. Now the toast of Massachusetts, Warren set up civil headquarters at Cambridge on the day after the Concord battle and was made acting chairman of the Massachusetts Committee of Safety. Less than 24 hours after the end of the Battle of Concord, he issued the first circular on the events of April 19. In the name of the Committee of Safety, Warren directed the circular to the prime, immediate task, to raise an army of the Massachusetts militia. His circular, therefore, went to the Massachusetts towns and beat a drumfire of flaming warning against the British. The barbarous murders committed upon our innocent brethren have made it absolutely necessary that we immediately raise an army to defend our wives and children from the butchering hands of an inhuman soldiery, who, enraged at being repulsed from the field of slaughter, will, without the least doubt, take the first opportunity in their power to ravage this devoted country with fire and sword." Our all is at stake. Death and devastation are the certain consequences of delay. An hour lost may deluge your country in blood and entail perpetual slavery upon the few who may survive the carnage. He concluded by urging the speediest possible enlistment in a Massachusetts army. The British troops had scurried from the Charlestown Peninsula back to the safety of Boston across the river. And so the first task of the rebels was to raise an army to lay siege to Boston and contain the British forces within that city. 
That army sprang up literally overnight as, during April 20, militia from all over the province poured into Cambridge, where Artemis Ward and others, appointed as generals by the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, now made their headquarters. Militia also poured in rapidly from Connecticut and New Hampshire, and in a few days, many thousands arrived from these two colonies. As a result... In an incredibly brief time, 20,000 eager militiamen formed an army laying siege to Boston. The provincial army, which the radicals had sought and which the provincial congress had failed to raise only a week before Concord, was now in being. Although it had a leader, Artemis Ward, it was as yet a force of individualists, each coming and leaving on his own responsibility. The Massachusetts Provincial Congress met quickly on April 22. Now that an army, albeit an individualistic army, could at least temporarily ham in the British force at Boston, Joseph Warren, the new president of the Congress, turned to the vital barrage of education and propaganda directed to the other American colonies. Warren and the Radicals realized the vital importance of public support and enthusiasm, and hence of agitation and propaganda, in this new type of war. Here was not a usual war begun by one government against another. Here was a people's war of revolution, waged against the existing state apparatus, begun without benefit of governmental or even organized direction. To continue, demanded public support throughout the colonies for the Massachusetts cause. Virtually the first act of the Massachusetts Congress, therefore, was to appoint two committees, one to investigate the facts of Lexington and Concord, the other to draw up a narrative of what had happened there. Interestingly enough, while the Committee of Inquiry was making a careful investigation of the facts, the Narrative Committee was already writing its rather distorted report and with little reference to the inquiry. Its chairman was none other than Dr. Benjamin Church, later discovered to be a secret traitor and informer, who felt he had to go out of the way to proclaim his devotion to the revolutionary cause. Church's report issued on April 26, reveled in fake atrocity stories, always an effective device for whipping up hatred of the enemy. Dr. Warren, when editing the report, added further touches to the manufactured atrocities in an appeal to the people of Boston. Special teams of couriers swiftly carried the church report throughout the colonies, and the newspaper press hastened to publish the story, liberally adding further atrocity tales of their own. Many papers, refusing to wait for their weekly publication date, issued handbills as extra editions as soon as the news arrived. Often the printed account was edged in heavy black borders and the headlines such as bloody news and bloody butchery by the British troops abounded. Isaiah Thomas, editor of the fiery radical Massachusetts Spy, had moved his press from Boston to Worcester. From there he fired off a blast that was reprinted in newspapers throughout the colonies, Thomas called on Americans to forever bear in mind the Battle of Lexington, where British troops, unmolested, 
and, unprovoked, wantonly fired upon and killed a number of our countrymen. No piteous cries, thundered Thomas, could divert the British troops from their design of murder and robbery. And the radical New York Journal mocked bitterly that the kind intentions of our good mother, our tender, indulgent mother, are at last revealed to all the world, for this mother was a vile impostor, an old abandoned prostitute, crimsoned o'er with every abominable crime, shocking to humanity. The Tory press, in the face of the intensity of popular feeling, was extremely circumspect about the events at Lexington and Concord. In Boston, it ceased publication altogether, and the papers in New York refused to carry the British side of the case. Volume 4, Chapter 2, The Response in Britain So zealous and skillful were the American radicals at spreading their account of Lexington and Concord that, by a feat of seamanship and enterprise, the American version reached Britain two full weeks before the official dispatches of General Thomas Gage. Dr. Warren dispatched the skillful young mariner, Captain John Derby, to England from Salem. Derby reached London before the end of May, quickly placing the papers in the custody of the radical John Wilkes, by then Lord Mayor of London. The next day, the American version of the affair hit the English press with great impact. The Reverend John Horne, a leading radical of London, promptly issued an appeal for funds to aid the widows and orphans of Americans murdered at Lexington, funds to help our beloved American fellow subjects, who, faithful to the character of Englishmen, preferring death to slavery, were, for that reason only, inhumanely murdered by the king's troops. For sending the money thus raised to Benjamin Franklin, who had already sailed for America earlier that year, Horn was imprisoned by the crown. For its part, the British government, bereft of information for two critical weeks, could only deny that such battles had taken place, a denial that made it a laughingstock when Gage's dispatches finally arrived. The outbreak of war had a great and critical impact upon the liberal Whigs, many of whom were high-ranking officers in the British armed forces. Some refused outright to serve in war against the Americans, including Admiral Augustus Keppel and Lord Effingham. Rather than lead the war against the Americans, Effingham published his resignation from the army in September, for which he received public thanks from London, Dublin, Newcastle, and other cities. The British army was hit by numerous other resignations of conscience-stricken Whigs. Lord Chatham publicly refused to allow his son, William Pitt the Younger, to fight against the Americans. A typical Whig defection among leading Englishmen was that of Granville Sharp, the man chiefly responsible three years earlier for the legal action that outlawed slavery within England. When the American Revolution broke out, Sharp was assistant to the Secretary of Ordnance and was in charge of ordering the munitions for the British Army and the colonies. By midsummer, he obtained extended leave from his duties because... I cannot return to my ordnance duty 
whilst a bloody war is carried on, unjustly as I conceive, against my fellow subjects. As the war dragged on, Sharp finally resigned his post, winning public applause for his courageous act. Many merchants joined the Whig leaders in opposition to war against the Americans. The Common Council of London petitioned the king to end the harsh measures against the Americans, and the Livery Company of London declared that the Americans were duty-bound to resist invasion of their rights. This American victory for the minds of the British people was never entirely erased by the government, especially since Warren had been careful to appeal to the English as fellow subjects in natural alliance against the crown and its armed forces. The crown, of course, in the manner of hardliners throughout history, refused to acknowledge that its policy of coercion had failed. Instead, so much the more did the Americans need to be suppressed and the rebels and villains to be taught a lesson. For the moment, six regiments from the Mediterranean were to be sent to Boston, and more enlistments were hoped for, enlistments that failed to materialize. Neither was the North Ministry at all apologetic about the failure to cow the Americans. Instead, blame was put on subversive Whigs, who had put ideas of liberty and revolution into the heads of the Americans, and, more specifically, on the supposed incompetence of General Gage, who had, however, been essentially acting on Crown orders. Volume 4, Chapter 3 Guerrilla or conventional war. After their humiliating defeat at Concord, many leading British officers acknowledged their error in being contemptuous of American military prowess. But others accused the Americans of not fighting fairly, according to the rules of conventional warfare. Instead of marching out on the open field in an extended line to fire volleys at a similarly aligned enemy, the cowardly rascals persisted in hiding inside and behind houses, trees, and stone walls, picking off English soldiers with accurate individual rifle fire. To the European military mind of the day, such actions were sheer murder and therefore dishonorable. Behind the almost blatant idiocy of such an attitude, there lay the hard core of an extremely important problem. For certainly, here had been warfare that upset all the rules of organized European warfare, in which the armies of the various states were sent out to kill each other in formal massed array. The tactics employed by the Americans at Concord reflected a new type of war, revolutionary war by a people in arms, a war that would naturally take the course, unless deflected by conscious purpose, of guerrilla warfare, in which individuals among the masses, familiar with the terrain, employed their advantage of knowledge and mass support to achieve mobility and surprise against an army possessed of superior firepower. The Americans at the very outset were therefore faced with a choice of extreme importance in conducting their revolution. Unfortunately, they saw their alternatives but dimly, 
although here and there leaders could see the vital issues with piercing clarity. Their choice not only determined the outcome and duration of the war, it also determined the permanent complexion and structure of any independent America that might emerge. The colonist might choose either alternative or various admixtures of both. On the one hand, they could fight the war in European fashion, gathering together a standard European army, organizing it according to European-style totalitarian discipline, conscripting men and vast supplies to feed and equip the army, and then meeting the British in formal open combat. On the other hand, they could run a new style of war, a radical people's war of national liberation, a guerrilla war, resting on individual responsibility, mobility, and surprise. A guerrilla war would be enormously less expensive than an orthodox one. For one thing, the guerrillas would not be full-time soldiers, torn away from productive labor to require parasitic feeding from an already harassed and burdened population. They would not be hauled from place to place, region to region. Instead, they would be part-time soldiers, remaining in production, not requiring taxes or inflation to impose burdens on the people as a whole. They would remain close to home, fighting with high morale for their own area and homes, and feeding off their own continuing production rather than off the rest of society. Moreover, whereas orthodox warfare would require taxation, conscription, hierarchy, discipline, and the creation of a vast, unproductive, and expensive state bureaucracy to direct and supply the armies while draining the production of society, a guerrilla war could be run individualistically, relying on the zeal of the individual guerrilla, and would entail virtually no central bureaucracy or centralized confiscation of property to finance the war. In brief, a guerrilla war would be the libertarian way to fight a war fully consistent with the American revolutionary ideals of liberty and equality of rights, and therefore the only way to achieve the libertarian goals of the revolution. A European-style orthodox war would be heavily statist and would inevitably lead to the resumption of the very statism, the taxes, the restrictions, the bureaucracy, which the colonists were waging the revolution to escape. What is more, guerrilla war would be enormously more effective, for that is the way any subjugated people, not only libertarians, can best fight against a better-armed but hated foe. The efficiency of guerrilla fighting as against European warfare had not only been demonstrated in the unbroken victories of Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys in the Vermont Revolution, but also in the victory at Concord, a guerrilla engagement so individualistic as to be almost completely leaderless. In contrast stood the slaughter at Lexington, where the Americans had fought in fixed ranks in the open. Both moral principle and utility, therefore, required the choice of a guerrilla war. 
but various factors, certainly including the novelty of the dilemma, dictated a different choice. Volume 4, Chapter 4 The Seizure of Fort Ticonderoga Massachusetts, a few days after Concord, had little time to ponder its choices. Twenty thousand individualists were keeping the British penned in Boston, but the twenty thousand, seeing little or nothing for them to do, began to drift home. In truth, the taking of major cities is the final stage of a guerrilla war. If the Americans were not yet strong enough to crush the British force of four thousand within Boston, there was little point in maintaining the huge besieging force. Besides, Boston's geography as a peninsula with a very narrow neck and General Gage's panicky evacuation of the Charlestown Peninsula immediately after Concord ensured the immobility of the British Army. Here Joseph Warren took a large step away from liberty by pressing for a formal army organization to replace the individual militiaman and by insisting on terms of enlistment to last until the end of the year, and so destroying the freedom of action of the individual soldier. Massachusetts radicalism was beginning to be tempered by conservatism, and liberty diluted by power. On April 23, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress voted to raise over 13,000 men for the siege, and the other New England colonies offered to supply a quota of several thousand each. Although these quotas were never filled, in little over a month 15,000 men of an organized army surrounded Boston. Occupying the center at Cambridge with 9,000 men was General Artemis Ward, in command of the Massachusetts Army, and acknowledged as commander by the forces of the other New England colonies. On the right, at Roxbury, in front of Boston, was General John Thomas of Massachusetts, commanding 5,000 men. On the extreme left, at Chelsea and Charlestown Neck, were over a 1,000 New Hampshire men, headed by Colonels John Stark and James Reed. The Americans had settled down to an expensive and unrewarding and standard Sitzkrieg and collecting goods to continue to feed and supply this inert and continuing army soon began to prove difficult. Meanwhile, British reinforcements swelled Gage's force to over 6,000 men, giving him a greater potential for mischief. While the New England and British troops were thus stalemated, bolder souls began to dream of American irregulars taking the offensive and striking a vital blow against England. In particular, Ethan Allen had, at least as early as February, been stressing the importance of the American seizure of Fort Ticonderoga should hostilities break out with England. Ticonderoga, on the northern frontier of New York and at the border of the New Hampshire-Grant country, was the vital gateway to Canada, whether for offense or defense against any possible British attempt to march from Canada down the Hudson Valley, splitting the colonies in two. Furthermore, Ticonderoga was known to have by far the largest store of cannon and other heavy artillery in the colonies. If the Americans could possibly manage to transport the big guns to the heights around Boston, 
they could compel the British to evacuate. Shortly after Lexington and Concord, Ethan Allen proposed to seize Fort Ticonderoga. The bulk of his force was to consist of his Green Mountain boys, to which were to be added one troop from Connecticut and one from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. All in all, approximately 65 men from Connecticut and western Massachusetts joined a hundred Green Mountain boys at Bennington, now in Vermont, on May 9, and the leaders unanimously chose Allen as their commander, with Seth Warner and James Easton as his lieutenants. The same idea had also occurred to the outspoken and wealthy merchant of New Haven, Captain Benedict Arnold. On hearing of the outbreak of fighting, Arnold, within a day, marched his militia company to Cambridge. On the way, Arnold met and convinced Connecticut's Colonel Samuel Parsons of the importance of capturing Ticonderoga. Parsons promptly set about organizing the expedition. At Cambridge, Arnold successfully threatened to seize the needed ammunition by force when the town authorities tried to block him from taking any. He also persuaded the Massachusetts Committee of Safety to grant him a colonelcy and authorize him to raise men and take Fort Ticonderoga. Hearing of the Allen-Easton expedition, he rushed to the Green Mountain country and, with characteristic gall, brandished his Massachusetts commission and insisted on taking absolute command of the rebel force. Allen, of course, was not one to bow before any official commission, and neither were his soldiers. Finally, Arnold was allowed to march alongside Allen at the head of the expedition, but there was no doubt in anyone's mind, except perhaps Arnold's, that Ethan Allen was the undisputed leader. On the morning of May 10, Allen and his intrepid band sailed across Lake Champlain to Ticonderoga. Before launching the surprise assault on the fort, Allen, true both to his libertarian beliefs and to the individualistic framework of guerrilla war, reminded his troops that no one, even at this late day, would be forced against his will to embark on the attack. The blow was swift and sure. The surprise was complete. Mighty Fort Ticonderoga fell without a shot being fired. Here was eloquent testimony to the effectiveness of the guerrilla tactic. With its advantages of great mobility, superior knowledge, and high morale. The next day, the small British force at neighboring Crown Point fell to a detachment under Lieutenant Colonel Seth Warner, also without a shot. On the day of Ticonderoga's capture, the Second Continental Congress opened a monumentally important meeting at Philadelphia. The great task of the Massachusetts and New England radicals was to line up firm military support for and unity with the Massachusetts cause, a difficult task in the face of stubborn conservatism and middle-of-the-road confusion among their colleagues. The New England rebels found they were forced to temper their radicalism and individualism in order to appeal to the far more oligarchic leaders in the other colonies. One of the early orders of business of the Congress was how to handle the news of Ticonderoga, and the dubious temper of the Congress was revealed in its reaction to the happy news. 
After Ticonderoga, on May 16, Arnold, reinforced by men from western Massachusetts, had raided and occupied Fort St. John's in Canada, north of Lake Champlain, and he was preparing to occupy Ticonderoga permanently. Moreover, both Arnold and Allen were proposing to help keep up the momentum by pressing onward to capture Montreal and even all of Canada from the British. Allen asserted that all they would need was more men, but instead of rejoicing at the news, let alone encouraging further victories, Congress was horrified at the entire exploit. In contrast to Lexington and Concord or even to the siege of Boston, here was a frankly offensive action against the British armed forces. To welcome Ticonderoga would be to acknowledge that America was fully in the throes of revolution, and Congress, beset by timidity and conservatism, was unwilling to do this. Accordingly, on hearing the news on May 18, Congress promptly ordered Arnold and Allen to abandon Fort Ticonderoga and retreat to the south end of Lake George. Congress's only slight acknowledgment of the victory was to concede that the Americans might take the guns and ammunition back with them, but an accurate account must be kept of them, in order that they may be safely returned when the restoration of the former harmony between Great Britain and these colonies shall render it prudent. Arnold protested bitterly to the provincial congresses of New York and Massachusetts as well as to the Continental Congress. Allen, too, was willing to swallow his old hatred of New York and appealed to that colony for aid in keeping the forts and pressing onward to Canada. The New England colonies kept up a drum fire of protest and finally persuaded Congress to change its mind and keep the captured forts. Neither Allen nor Arnold were to gain congressional support for conquest of Canada, however, despite the enthusiastic approval of Sam Adams. Instead, Ticonderoga and Crown Point were granted to Connecticut, and both Allen and Arnold were humiliated by being deprived of command in favor of Colonel Benjamin Hinman of Connecticut, who was to occupy the forts with nearly 1,500 more troops from Connecticut. Understandably, Arnold was so disgusted that he resigned and went home. A scintillating guerrilla conquest had lost its momentum and deteriorated into an orthodox, idle, and squabbling army of occupation at Ticonderoga. Volume 4, Chapter 5 The Response of the Continental Congress The most important business before the Congress, however, was not Ticonderoga but the problem of Boston and the army that Massachusetts and New England had hastily put up around it. What Congress decided to do about that army would determine what it would do about the entire revolution. As soon as Congress opened, Dr. Warren of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress urged the Continental Congress to take responsibility for the army around Boston by appointing a commander-in-chief thus committing the other colonies irrevocably to the revolution. The Congress showed its temper by not even deigning to answer. 
Instead, as the Massachusetts radicals watched with dismay, it frittered away its time in evading responsibility for adopting the revolution, merely sending elaborate proofs to London that the British troops had fired first at Lexington. It was clear that a considerable majority of the delegates, led by the now arch-conservative John Dickinson of Philadelphia, looked forward to reconciliation with Britain, rather than to waging the revolution with zest and vigor toward eventual independence. Joseph Galloway and Isaac Lowe, heads of the ultra-right in the First Congress, had by then, as outright Tories, moved outside the American dialogue as well as the Continental Congress and were soon to slip behind British lines. Seething inwardly, John Adams wrote to Joseph Warren from Philadelphia, we find a great many bundles of weak nerves. We are obliged to be as delicate and soft and modest and humble as possible. Not receiving any reply to its letter, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress developed a careful petition shrewdly designed to prod the Continental Congress into action by urging Congress to allow Massachusetts to set up a permanent civil government. Such official authorization of the Provincial Congress and the network of town committees would push the Continental Congress closer to endorsing an open political break with England. Above all, Massachusetts petitioned Congress to appoint a commander-in-chief of the army at Cambridge. The Massachusetts petition was sent down via the informer Church as personal courier and was presented to the Congress on June 2. Cautiously, Congress appointed a committee to mull over and report on this vital and controversial petition. The first part of the Massachusetts petition was relatively easy. On June 7, Congress sanctioned Massachusetts' new civil government and approved the right of the people to set up their own government in the current circumstances, declaring, however, that this civil government would be only temporary until reconciliation with Britain could restore the operation of the old, disrupted Massachusetts Charter. Meanwhile, the right wing had been winning point after point in the Congress. An attempt to shift the side of the Congress northward to Connecticut, near the New England battlefront, had been quashed by the Dickinson group. So underdeveloped was the revolutionary timber of this Congress that when New York asked what it should do if British troops were to land in New York City, Congress had generously urged the citizens not to resist and to give the soldiers proper quarters. Finally, while the hypocritical plan of British Prime Minister Lord North for conciliation was summarily rejected by the Congress, Dickinson and James Duane of New York infuriated the radicals by moving, at the end of May, to send an humble and dutiful petition to the king, pleading for immediate negotiation and mutual accommodation. Infuriated, John Adams blasted such futile and humble petitioning. He argued that Congress should be making haste to defend the continent from the British, to take charge of the army at Cambridge, and even to warn that it was ready to make European alliances to aid its resistance. 
Adams was quickly backed by John Sullivan of New Hampshire, but Dickinson bitterly warned them that if New England didn't agree to our Pacific system, I and a number of us will break off from you in New England. The radicals, however, were prepared to accept the Dickinson Olive Branch petition, which they knew would be futile, provided that they won the crucial point, the second point in the Massachusetts petition, Congressional Assumption of Responsibility for the Revolutionary Army in New England. The Congress took measured steps toward this goal during early June by voting to supply funds to furnish powder, first for the Continental Army, and then, frankly, for the American Army before Boston. The final step, however, was whether the Congress would actually take over direction of the Army at Cambridge, directing the troops and furnishing them with both supplies and a commander-in-chief. Here, the Massachusetts radicals were in a cruel dilemma. Any army under the Continental Congress would mean, in contrast to a guerrilla army, the inevitable build-up of a central state apparatus and of a highly expensive and burdensome state army, which would inevitably saddle all Americans with heavy taxes, inflation, and debt. The Massachusetts radicals can hardly be blamed for their decision to press for a statist continental army. The theory of revolutionary guerrilla warfare had yet to be fully developed, and Massachusetts was understandably desperate to weld the other reluctant colonies firmly to the revolutionary cause. On June 14, Congress took the fateful step of voting to organize an army of 15,000 men, and specifically to raise six, a little later ten, companies of expert backwoods riflemen from Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia to be sent to Boston. It was not lost upon the delegates that the crack-shooting frontier riflemen had been particularly effective in the victory at Concord. The crucial question now remaining was the identity of the commander-in-chief to be appointed by Congress. On this vital issue, the Massachusetts radical leadership, traditionally united as one man, was grievously divided. Sam Adams, almost always instinctively libertarian, began with the most individualistic and democratic plan of all, appoint no commander-in-chief at all, and permit the local militia soldiers themselves to elect all of their own officers up to the rank of commander-in-chief. Whenever any plans for Continental Army and commander were mentioned, Adams was apt to murmur the word Cromwell, and begin animadverting on the sacred inalienable rights of the civilian. Thomas Cushing, Robert Treat Payne, and other New Englanders wanted a New England general, the obvious choice being Artemis Ward, already in command before Boston. Ward, however, was a bit old for the job. The issue, of course, was not simply local pride, but the crucial one of keeping control of the army in the hands of individualistic and democratic New Englanders, rather than subject to the aristocratic colonies. At this crossroads, John Adams, Elbridge Gerry, and Joseph Warren 
bent so far backward to achieve continental unity that they gravely compromised and sacrificed libertarian principle, storing up untold trouble for individualism in the future. In short, they decided to support for commander-in-chief that conservative scion of the Virginia-landed oligarchy, George Washington. In doing so, incidentally, John Adams, though not Warren or Geary, began a slow but steady political drift rightward out of the libertarian radical camp. Sam Adams, too, began to display an unsureness, a lack of confidence, that would periodically display itself on national issues and would also lead him, at least temporarily, rightward. Something seemed to be going forever from that once uncannily sure and self-confident planner and organizer of the revolution, and he allowed himself to be persuaded by his cousin John to second the nomination of George Washington. From a short-range, opportunistic point of view, the nomination of Washington appeared to the radicals to have merit, not militarily, to be sure, for he had had little military experience, and that was a series of decisive losses in the French and Indian War. The attraction of Washington was that he was virtually the only man who could gain the votes of most radicals and conservatives alike. On the one hand, socially and politically, Washington was a deep-dyed conservative and could be depended upon to support the oligarchy and classical military tactics. On the other hand, in the fight with Britain, he, along with most of the Virginians, was close to the radical camp and could be depended upon to be militant in warring against Great Britain. Even such an admirer of Washington as Marcus Cunliffe admits that Washington's best role during the war was political and consultative rather than military. Like General Eisenhower, he was a coalition general for a large part of the war. Major strategic plans usually lay outside his scope. If his charismatic symbols were those of the flag, the sword, the beautifully caparisoned horse, his day-to-day -day responsibilities were more appropriately symbolized by the chairman's gavel and the secretary's quill. It was his task and his talent to preside, to inform, to adjudicate, to advise, to soothe, to persuade, to anticipate, to collaborate. Consequently, John Adams rose in Congress on June 14 to nominate Washington, and he was seconded by Sam Adams. In so doing, they permanently alienated the vain and flighty John Hancock, who fancied himself in the panoplied robes of commander-in-chief, and expected his fellow Massachusetts delegates to nominate him. Already ensconced in the high-sounding but largely honorific post of President of the Continental Congress, his unfounded ambition was gravely wounded by their decision not to notify him in advance of what was being planned. The consequences of the Hancock-Adams split for future Massachusetts politics were enormous. For a start, from this point on, Hancock hobnobbed with and was feted by the ultra-conservatives of the Congress, 
men who were better able to satisfy his taste for finery than were the plain men of Massachusetts. John Adams' plan met considerable resistance on June 14, especially from those backing Ward and the other candidates. But by the next day, resistance had melted away, and Washington was approved unanimously. With their main points carried, the Radicals supported the Dickinson Olive Branch petition to England, which was passed by the Congress on July 5. Volume 4, Chapter 6, Charles Lee, Champion of Liberty and Guerrilla War If the choice of Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army had been made on the basis of ability, genius, military experience, erudition, ardor for the cause of liberty, or for a combination of these qualities, this crucial appointment would not have gone to Washington, but to one Charles Lee. But political considerations ruled, and Lee, a native of Britain, had no political base. Mere merit was submerged, though some delegates did favor Lee for the job. George Washington and Charles Lee. No greater contrast could be found in their confrontation, and no more fateful choice of appointment could have been made a decision which would bear heavily on the future course of the history of the United States. Washington, a half-educated, blunt, practical man, a highly conservative landed oligarch of Virginia, orthodox in his military and political views, a loser in his few previous battles, longed to become the head of a regular state army on the conventional European model. Lee, a brilliant, articulate, learned, déclassé, English intellectual, an ardent, witty, pungent individualist, personally and politically dedicated to liberty and deeply influenced by libertarian thought, an authentic military genius, had seen a great deal of fighting on the European model and saw its deficiencies for the American scene. It was almost inevitable that two such deeply contrasting figures, Lee was chosen by Congress as third in command of the army after Washington and Ward, would come to an irreparable clash. That clash came to pass, and since the seemingly inescapable verdict of history was to give the victory to Washington, Lee sank into disgrace and oblivion, from which historians are only now beginning to rescue him. The major event in the emerging historical rehabilitation of Lee is the work of John R. Alden, Charles Lee, traitor or patriot. The first sympathetic biography of Lee since the mid-19th century. The Alden volume is indispensable. A growing appreciation of the value of guerrilla warfare has greatly aided in this reevaluation of Lee. Lee was that exceedingly rare combination, a brilliant soldier and a gifted intellectual. He was also the only general on the American side, with the exception of his old English-born friend, Horatio Gates, to have had substantial military experience. A fluent linguist and learned in political and military theory as well as in classical and English literature, Lee had been influenced by the strongly pro-Whig history of England, written by a French Huguenot, 
Paul de Rapin, and later by the writings of Rousseau. After serving as an officer in the French and Indian War, where he picked up the apt sobriquet, Boiling Water, Lee performed with brilliance in the British expedition against the Spaniards in Portugal. Despite his distinction, Lee was retired from the British Army after the Seven Years' War because of his outspoken criticism of British political and military leaders, and his increasingly radical Whig views had lost him favor with the Crown. In England, Lee was received with warmth in important Whig circles and became a friend of the liberal lords Thanet and Pembroke, of Charles York, and especially of the ardent liberal Colonel Isaac Barre. Thwarted in his military career at home, Lee became personal aide-de-camp to the rather liberal King Stanislaus of Poland. His letters from Poland reflected increasingly radical and libertarian views, denouncing the aggrandizement of George III, Granville, and the Tories, toying with the idea of a republic, and praising natural rights and the American resistance against the Stamp Act. He wrote, May God prosper the Americans in their resolution, that there may be one asylum at least on the earth for men who prefer their natural rights to the fantastical prerogatives of a foolish, perverted head, because it wears a crown. Lee returned to England the following year, but his increasing radicalism again kept him from military preferment. Befriended by General Sir Henry Conway, he became an ardent supporter of the Rockingham Whigs and of radical leader John Wilkes. By 1768, he was contemplating running for commons to effect a glorious revolution in Britain. He was also increasingly attracted to the American cause and habitually referred to America as that last asylum of freedom. At this time, Lee, Horatio Gates, and other pro-American British officers began to gather periodically for an exchange of views. In 1769, Lee was made an honorary major general in the army of the pro-Russian king of Poland. The same year, he joined the Russian army against Turkey and had the opportunity to observe guerrilla warfare by Turks and Polish rebel forces. Ill and failing to be granted a command, Lee traveled widely through Central and Southern Europe, visiting such luminaries as Emperor Joseph II of Austria, and growing ever more bitter in his correspondence against the Tory policies at home. He blasted the Prime Minister, the Duke of Grafton, as a man without conscience or honor, and wrote that if the axe is not applied to his neck, it is laid to the root of our liberties, national honor, and inheritance. There is no medium. More and more he spoke of being free in exile rather than submitting to the domination of George III. Excusing his lack of urbanity on the subject, for the Whig cause he ardently wished for triumph over tyranny, corruption, Grafton, North, and the devil. My puny dagger shall contribute its might of annoyance to the breast of despotism and wickedness. And he passionately conjured up the spirits of Cato, Brutus, Hampton, and Sidney for the cause of liberty. George III was a reptile, 
and a despicable, stupid dolt, while lords and commons were dens of thieves. Returning to England in the spring of 1771, Lee published in the press, though more circumspectly, a criticism of King George III, and also composed a lengthy, though unfortunately unpublished and vanished, critique of David Hume's History of England. He was irked at Hume's Tory apologetics for the Stuart kings, and he projected a satirical whitewashing history of the emperors Claudius and Nero, which he bitingly dedicated to David Hume. In the introduction to this critique, which has survived, Lee again attacked the Tory policies of George III, the use of pecuniary influence by the crown and the large standing army as instruments of oppression. Disapproving of capital punishment in general, he wished to preserve it for kings and their families, since the eradication of a royal house was surely preferable to the loss of a people's freedom. It is little wonder that the manuscript could not find an English publisher. In these final years in England, Lee became friendly with the great painter and ardent Whig Sir Joshua Reynolds, with Whig leader Edmund Burke, and also with the great radical Republican historian Mrs. Catherine Macaulay. Finally, Charles Lee, a major general in the Polish army and a lieutenant colonel in the British, consummated the exile for which he had long been heading. Eager to help the burgeoning American cause, he arrived at New York in the fall of 1773, where both he and the Americans were ripe for a revolutionary situation. For over a year he traveled extensively throughout the colonies, making friends with all the revolutionary leaders, who were fascinated by his personality and by his military knowledge and ardor for liberty. In America he was no longer a maverick, but a leader in the American struggles with the British government. It was no coincidence that those particularly attracted to Lee were the radicals George Mason and Thomas Jefferson in Virginia, Alexander McDougall in New York, and Sam Adams and his followers in Massachusetts. He became an especially close friend of Virginia's Richard Henry Lee, no relation, who truly wrote of him, a most true and worthy friend to the rights of human nature in general and a warm-spirited foe to American oppression. Charles Lee lost no time in lauding Boston's resistance to the Tea Act, and in urging energetic boycotts in reaction to the coercive acts of 1774. The crisis brought on by the coercive acts was obviously tailor-made for Lee's revolutionary temper, taking up the pen as Anglus Americanus on behalf of active resistance. He urged a boycott and attacked moderation as submission to Britain, America was the last asylum of liberty, and therefore its defense of liberty was also a defense for the people of Britain and for the rest of the world. This was published in the Philadelphia Press, and a similar hand bill was published in New York and widely reprinted in the New England papers. By this time, Lee's old friend and fellow radical, Horatio Gates, also forcibly retired from British Army service after the Seven Years' War, had also emigrated to America and retired to a plantation in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. 
Both men were clearly ready to take up arms for the American cause. Lee wrote to Gates that it was incumbent on every man to contribute his might to the cause of mankind and of liberty, which is now attacked in her last and only asylum. And Gates, known as early as 1770 as a red-hot Republican, replied that he was ready to risk my life to preserve the liberty of the Western world. When the First Continental Congress met at Philadelphia in September 1774, Lee was there, charming nearly everyone and, remarkably, writing the appeal which Congress sent to the Canadians for support in America's struggle. He also began in secret to draw up a plan for the organization of American battalions, a plan completed by the following February and which impressed many American leaders. Visiting Maryland in the fall of 1774, he induced the Maryland Provincial Congress to adopt his plan for organizing its battalions and even stayed to drill some of the troops. His plan of Lee's impressed Washington, who persuaded Fairfax County to urge a similar plan for Virginia militia and prevailed upon Patrick Henry to get the plan adopted by Virginia the following spring. Lee published several essays on behalf of American freedom that winter, one of which pointed to King George's tyranny being exercised in Ireland and Menorca and warned of its advent in America. In an uncompleted essay, he praised the Republican governments of Europe, citing contemporary policies of Geneva, Venice, and Switzerland, and in his letters he began to advocate armed revolution. Lee's most significant work, however, was one that called forth his military as well as his ideological abilities. The Tory Reverend Dr. Miles Cooper, Anglican president of King's College in New York City, had greatly disheartened the Americans with his pamphlet, Friendly Address to All Reasonable Americans. Cooper had counseled that resistance was useless against the mighty and thoroughly disciplined British regulars, who would be aided by large numbers of American Tories and German mercenaries. How could the undisciplined and untrained Americans even dream of opposing the British victors of the French and Indian War? No one was more qualified to rebut Cooper's charge than Lee. He had seen the highly disciplined Prussian battalions, the envied model of all the regular armies of the day, at first hand, and was creative and individualistic enough to be unimpressed. Lee leapt into the fray, publishing his Strictures Upon a Friendly Address to All Reasonable Americans in Philadelphia in November 1774. He pointedly deprecated the British regulars. Their showy and much-admired massed formation, parade ground tactics were of no military importance, and the British only won the French and Indian War after discarding this pattern. Moreover, he argued, the highly touted victories of Frederick the Great were largely won by the Prussian militia rather than by the formally trained regulars, The Americans had numbers, zeal, and knowledge of the terrain on their side, 
And did not the amateur militias of the parliamentary armies defeat the professionals of Charles I during the English Civil War? Lee's pamphlet proved to be by far his most popular work, as the radical Salem-Essex Gazette declared. It removed the terror the people had had of the British troops and gave them the heart to resist. Strictures was reprinted five times during the winter of 1774-75 in Boston, New York, New London, and Newport, and was also republished in American newspapers. Alden has concluded that the Strictures was probably one of the most influential pieces of propaganda in the Revolutionary period. After selecting Washington over Lee and Ward as Commander-in-Chief, the Second Continental Congress had to select the other generals of the Continental Army. The next step was to choose the major general who would be second-in-command, and the battle was rather naturally between Lee and Ward. Thomas Mifflin of Pennsylvania enthusiastically backed Lee, but he was bitterly opposed by Thomas Johnson of Maryland and by almost all the highly conservative New York delegation. As New England's candidate, however, Ward was the inevitable choice for first major general. After Ward was chosen, the New England radicals, especially Sam Adams, fought ardently for Lee as second major general. Though Hancock and the more conservative delegates from Massachusetts opposed Lee, the backing of Washington, who had been impressed by Lee's military genius, carried the day. All in all, Congress selected four major generals. The others were Philip Schuler of New York's landed gentry and the veteran Israel Putnam of Connecticut, and eight brigadier generals, seven of whom were New Englanders. The preponderance of New England officers was natural, since the bulk of the troops then in the field came from that region. Chosen adjutant general with the rank of brigadier was Horatio Gates. Volume 4, Chapter 7, The Battle of Bunker Hill While the Congress was in process of choosing the heads of the Continental Army, a pitched battle was being fought at Boston. The famous Battle of Bunker Hill, later touted as a great American victory, was neither a victory nor did it take place at Bunker Hill. At the end of May, the Crown had sent a triumvirate of eminent generals to assist and implicitly to pave the way for superseding General Gage. These prestigious arrivals were General Sir William Howe, an ardent Whig, who as a candidate for Parliament had pledged never to accept a command against the Americans, young General Sir Henry Clinton, and the dashing General John Burgoyne. Ordered by the Crown to proclaim martial law in Massachusetts, General Gage allowed General Burgoyne to write the inflammatory proclamation, which on June 12 denounced the Americans as rebels and traitors, and offered pardon to all laying down their arms, except for the irredeemable Sam Adams and John Hancock. Stunned by the proclamation, the Americans yearned to retaliate, but this yearning grew far stronger when they learned the following day that the British had decided to seize and fortified unoccupied Dorchester Heights, 
a peninsula south of Boston. The city of Boston was confronted on two sides by peninsulas with heights commanding the town. On the north, Charlestown Peninsula. On the south, Dorchester Heights. Sensing the folly of battling the British directly for the heights, the Massachusetts Committee of Safety on June 15 urged the occupation and fortification of Bunker Hill on Charlestown Peninsula. The American Council of War was split on the issue. The two best generals, Artemis Ward and Joseph Warren, who had been made a general by the Provincial Congress, had long counseled against fortifying Bunker Hill. For the narrow neck of the peninsula endangered the entire force, especially should their scanty ammunition give out. Besides, without artillery, the Americans could not use the position against Boston. However, the widely beloved, though incompetent, General Israel Putnam, seconded by General Seth Pomeroy and Colonel William Prescott, carried the day for rashness over caution. Colonel Prescott was sent out on the night of June 16 to occupy the peninsula with 1,200 of the 10,000 available Americans. Despite the agreed-upon plan, Prescott and Putnam decided to place their main entrenchments on Breed's Hill rather than on Bunker. This was a fateful decision. Bunker Hill was close to Charlestown Neck and guarded the only escape route off the peninsula. Breeds was much further out on the peninsula and in a dangerously exposed position. It was inevitable that when the British saw what had happened, they would attack the fortifications overlooking Boston. Quickly grasping the situation, General Clinton urged a swift and immediate landing behind the American lines at Charlestown Neck, cutting off the Americans from the rear and seizing the entire force with ease. But Gage would not accept such a sneaky and unmilitary tactic. General Howe, he insisted, would mount a frontal assault against the strongest American position. The rebels would panic and run at the sight of the advancing British regulars. Such a display of force would restore the British honor, tarnished at Concord. This typical contempt of the British military for the Americans. Led them into a disastrous blunder. Even the advantage of speed was scorned as the British made their leisurely way to the tip of the peninsula, allowing the Americans to complete their emplacements. A series of frontal assaults up Breed's Hill allowed the Americans to fight in their best manner, in quasi-guerrilla fashion, employing rifle fire from behind emplacements. The Americans were only partially at an advantage, however, for their precious mobility had been surrendered in favor of fixed positions. In addition, they were in short supply of ammunition and far from an escape route. As a result, repeated frontal assaults by the British finally succeeded. Breed's Hill was overrun, and the Americans were routed out of the peninsula. Losses were enormous on both sides. The Americans suffering over 400 casualties, and the British over a thousand, amounting to over 40 percent of Howe's forces. Indeed, the Battle of Bunker Hill, actually of Breed's Hill, and sensibly known to contemporaries as the Battle of Charlestown, 
was the bloodiest single conflict on the American continent until 1815. The gravest single loss to the Americans was General Warren, who died in the rout. As for the British, perhaps the most fitting casualty at Bunker Hill was the killing of Major John Pitcairn by a Negro rebel, the same Pitcairn who had been sure that, if he drew his sword but half out of the scabbard, the whole banditti of Massachusetts Bay would flee before him. Now the banditti had cut him down. The American defeat would have been yet far more severe if the advice of General Clinton had not once again been ignored. He urged swiftly seizing advantage of the rout by pressing forward to destroy the demoralized American forces and capture Cambridge. Had General Howe agreed, Clinton might have dealt the revolution a devastating blow, which was precisely what the astute General Ward now feared. But Howe, beginning the rapid development of an unerring talent for making the wrong decision, chose instead to stop, dig in, and fortify Bunker Hill. Thus the victory went to the British in that they had conquered the Charlestown Peninsula, but their preposterous tactics, born of overconfidence, had decimated their army. As in so many military engagements in history, the battle was a tragic comedy of errors on both sides, with Britain's technical victory bought at an enormous price. For their part, contemporary Americans did not have the temerity to claim the battle as a mighty victory, and the entire operation was rightly denounced as rash and unfortunate. Volume 4, Chapter 8 Washington Transforms the Army Washington's first task was to assume direct command of the Continental Army before Boston, which he did upon reaching his Cambridge headquarters on July 2. Although he took up his tasks energetically, Washington accomplished nothing militarily for the remainder of the year, and more, nor did he try. His only campaign in 1775 was internal rather than external. It was directed against the American army as he found it, and was designed to extirpate the spirit of liberty pervading this unusually individualistic and democratic army of militiamen. In short, Washington set out to transform a people's army uniquely suited for a libertarian revolution into another orthodox and despotically ruled statist force after the familiar European model. His primary aim was to crush the individualistic and democratic spirit of the American forces. For one thing, the officers of the militia were elected by their own men, and the discipline of repeated elections kept the officers from forming an aristocratic ruling caste typical of European armies of the period. The officers often drew little more pay than their men, and there were no hierarchical distinctions of rank imposed between officers and men. As a consequence, officers could not enforce their wills coercively on the soldiery. This New England equality horrified Washington's conservative and highly aristocratic soul. 
To introduce a hierarchy of ruling caste, Washington insisted on distinctive decorations of dress in accordance with minute gradations of rank. As one observer phrased it, new lords, new laws. The strictest government is taking place, and great distinction is made between officers and soldier. Everyone is made to know his place and keep it. Despite the great expense involved, he also tried to stamp out individuality in the army by forcing uniforms upon them, but the scarcity of cloth made this plan unfeasible. At least as important as distinctions in decoration was the introduction of extensive inequality in pay. Led by Washington and other aristocratic Southern delegates, and over the objections of Massachusetts, the Congress insisted on fixing a pay scale for generals and other officers considerably higher than that of the rank and file. In addition to imposing a web of hierarchy. On the Continental Army, Washington crushed liberty within by replacing individual responsibility by iron despotism and coercion. Severe and brutal punishments were imposed upon soldiers whose sense of altruism failed to override their instinct for self-preservation. Furloughs were curtailed, and girlfriends of soldiers were expelled from camp. Above all, lengthy floggings were introduced for all practices which Washington considered aesthetically or morally offensive. He even had the temerity to urge Congress to raise the maximum number of strikes of the lash from thirty-nine to the enormous number of five hundred. Fortunately, Congress refused. In a few short months, Washington had succeeded in extirpating a zealous, happy, individualistic people's army, and transforming it into yet another statist army, filled with bored, resentful, and even mutinous soldiery. The only thing he could not do was force the troops to continue in camp after the terms of their enlistment were up at the end of the year, and by now the soldiers were longing for home. In addition to all other factors, Americans were not geared, nor should they have been, for lengthy conflict of position and attrition. They were not professional soldiers, and they were needed at their homes and jobs and on their farms. Had they been a frankly guerrilla army, there would have been no conflict between these roles. As the end of 1775 drew near. Then Washington's main preoccupation was in forging a new army to replace the seventeen thousand men whose terms of enlistment were about to expire. His problems were aggravated by Congress's refusal to pay the bounties for enlistment New Englanders were used to receiving. Instead, caste distinctions were widened even further by raising officers' pay, while privates' pay remained the same. Only thirty-five hundred of the old army agreed to re-enlist. For the rest, very short-term enlistments of Massachusetts and New Hampshire men filled the gap until new enlistees finally swelled the total to about ten thousand. As might have been expected, the wealthy and aristocratic Washington, free from money worries, had little understanding of the economic plight of his soldiery. In contrast to the legends about his compassion, Washington railed about the defecting troops as being possessed of 
a dirty mercenary spirit and of basely deserting the cause of their country. A particularly colorful addition to the New England troops in the Continental Army during the summer of 1775 was a detachment of nine enlisted companies of expert riflemen from the backcountry frontier of Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia, five of them from Pennsylvania. There were over 1,400 of these riflemen in all. The bulk of them were hardy Ulster Scott frontiersmen, wearing hunting outfits bearing the motto, Liberty or Death, and employing the unique Kentucky rifle invented by Pennsylvania German gunsmiths. This long-barreled rifle was uniquely suited for guerrilla warfare. It shot more accurately and over a far longer range than the shorter musket in general use, but it did not reload rapidly and hence was not useful for orthodox, open-field, positional, or linear volley warfare. It is not surprising that these backwoodsmen proved even more individualistic and less tolerant of coercion than the New Englanders. When they terrorized British sentries with their sniping, Washington forbade such seemingly disorganized practice which spent ammunition. Whenever a rifleman was imprisoned for infringing one of Washington's arbitrary but cherished rules, his comrades would break into the prison and set him free. On one occasion, virtually an entire Pennsylvania company mutinied to try to free one of their own, and several regiments were needed to disarm and convict the Pennsylvanians, whose penalty consisted of less than a week's pay. The riflemen, however, were not so much unfit for any military service as they were, by nature and by experience, totally unfitted for inactive life in camp. When the opportunity came for action for which they were suited, they were to serve admirably. Meanwhile, the British troops, reinforced in midsummer by up to 5,000 effectives, also dug in for a lengthy siege. As was inevitable, General Gage was made the scapegoat for Bunker Hill, and in mid-October he was recalled and replaced as commander-in-chief by the hardly less culpable General Howe. Volume 4, Chapter 9, The Invasion of Canada While Washington busied himself with crippling the morale of the American army before Boston, other American forces were not idle. We have seen that promptly upon seizing Fort Ticonderoga and Crown Point, Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold both pressed upon Congress the urgency of seizing the northern British base in Canada. They realized the necessity of speed. The British commander in Canada, General Guy Carleton, his troops depleted to aid General Gage in Boston had only two foot regiments and two artillery companies to defend the entire region. Speed was also needed to take advantage of spring and summer weather. There were Americans who supported a prompt strike at the British base in Canada. For instance, one of the spark plugs of the blow at Ticonderoga had been John Brown, a lawyer of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, who had been sent as early as February as a secret agent to the Canadians by the Boston Committee of Correspondence to whip up support for the colonial cause. 
But we have seen that the conservatives in the Congress timorously scuttled the plan and even tried to get the Americans to withdraw from Ticonderoga. They even went so far as to drive the bold and brilliant Arnold and Allen from command. The discontented activist officers at Ticonderoga quickly reacted by sending Ethan Allen and Seth Warner of the Green Mountain Boys as emissaries to the Continental Congress. Apparently, Congress found Allen persuasive, for it promptly recommended to the New York Provincial Congress that it form the Green Mountain Boys into a Ranger Regiment with officers of their own choosing. Moreover, four days later, on June 27, Congress finally decided to authorize an invasion of Canada. While the Americans essentially adopted Arnold's tactical plan of taking Montreal and then moving on to Quebec, Congress, of course, did not have the imagination or daring to place such brilliant military radicals as Arnold or Allen in charge of the expedition against Canada. Instead, command was given to the man already in charge of the Northern Department at New York. The timorous and conservative scion of the New York landed oligarchy, Philip Schuller. At a time when speed was of the essence, Schuller dithered for two precious months, preparing his army of 1,700 men to move north from Crown Point and Ticonderoga. Fortunately, Schuller had as his second in command the highly competent Brigadier General Richard Montgomery. Who recognized the need for speed in mounting the invasion? The British born Montgomery had had almost as much military experience in Europe as his friend Charles Lee or Horatio Gates, and had resigned from the British Army in 1772 to settle in New York and marry into the Livingston branch of the New York landed aristocracy. In vain did he press Schuller to march north. Finally, taking advantage of Schuller's absence at a parley to secure the neutrality of the Iroquois, Montgomery took it upon himself to make the move against Canada at the end of August, a decision in which Schuller, taken off the hook, readily concurred. General Carleton decided to make his main stand at Fort St. John's on the Richelieu River, north of Lake Champlain. But Schuller lingered defensively in front of St. John's for two weeks, and only his illness, forcing him to return south in mid-September, permitted Montgomery to surround and lay proper siege to the fort. The great bulk of the American expeditionary force came from Connecticut, the conservative province of New York, as Connecticut's Colonel Hinman said sourly, abounds with officers. But I have not had my curiosity gratified by the sight of one private. While this proved to be a slight exaggeration, the New Englanders were understandably aggrieved at seeing the New Yorkers fill the major posts and gain lucrative commissary contracts, while they furnished the fighting men. The New Hampshire grant contribution, in the meanwhile, had been gravely crippled by an upheaval among the Green Mountain Boys. Acceding to Congress's request, the New York Provincial Congress, in early July, had agreed to raise a battalion of 500 men from the grant lands, 
to be known as the Green Mountain Rangers. But when the Committee of Safety of the towns west of the Green Mountains assembled at Dorset at the end of July to elect officers of the new battalion, Allen was humiliatingly repudiated. Seth Warner was chosen to be commander, and Allen was not even selected as one of the subordinate officers. The brutal cashiering of the magnificent Allen had been accomplished not by his devoted Green Mountain boys, but by the timorous town elders of the Grantlands, who hated the radical, brawling, zestful deist, and took this opportunity to scuttle him. The enraged young men of the Grantlands thereupon refused to enlist, and Warner was not able to bring the battalion to more than half strength. Deprived of their leader and their enthusiasm, the Green Mountain men were no longer the superbly effective force they once had been. Allen, however, swallowed his pride in his eagerness to aid the revolutionary cause, and went back to Ticonderoga in hope of a commission. But Schuler scornfully allowed the hero of Ticonderoga to sign on only as a private. At the siege of St. John's, General Montgomery put Allen in charge of thirty Connecticut militiamen and sent him off through the countryside between the Richelieu and Montreal to try to raise Canadian volunteers for the cause. John Brown, now a major, and Warner were also sent around the countryside on similar errands. Repeatedly urging Montgomery to seize St. John's without delay, Allen managed to raise about 80 Canadians. On September 24, Allen encountered Brown near Longueuil, across the St. Lawrence from Montreal. Brown's bold proposal to strike at Montreal with his force of 200 had been vetoed by Montgomery. So he joined with Allen in a daring plan for a joint surprise strike at that great Canadian port. They agreed upon an immediate coordinated attack, Brown to cross the river and approach the city from the north, and Allen, his force now grown to 150, to attack simultaneously from the south. The plan was brilliantly conceived and rested on the mobility and surprise inherent in a guerrilla-style operation. But Brown unaccountably failed to cross the river as agreed. The abandoned Allen was left to face an open battle with a superior force of over 30 British regulars and 200 Canadian volunteers. Furthermore, Allen's men were not trained and loyal Green Mountain boys, and the Canadians on Allen's flanks fled as soon as the British force surged out of Montreal to do battle. Allen and the tiny remainder of his force were taken prisoner, with Allen placed in chains and transported to England. The Americans' greatest and most daring guerrilla fighter was removed from the scene. Washington, who was wont to defend and wet-nurse his fellow oligarch, Schuler, could only react with near satisfaction to the loss of Allen. Colonel Allen's misfortune will, I hope, teach a lesson of prudence and subordination to others. The population of Canada in 1775 numbered approximately 60,000, almost all of them French peasants, or habitants, oppressed alike by the British state-privileged 
seigneurs, and by the state-privileged church. There were only several hundred English Canadians, old subjects, most of them bureaucrats, soldiers, and merchants engaged in the Montreal fur trade. Naturally, as the Revolutionary War began, both the British and the Americans tried to woo the Canadians. Equally naturally, the French Canadians, certain of English and American contempt for their religion and their ethnic origins, had little interest in either party and remained neutral and aloof. Had the Anglo-American record of racial and religious bigotry not prevented the French Canadians from joining the revolutionary cause, Canada, Quebec, would undoubtedly have become a 14th original state of the United States. The capture of Ethan Allen had considerable influence in swaying the cautious Canadians and Canadian Indians toward what looked like the winning side. But Carleton quickly dissipated any goodwill among the habitants by trying to conscript them en masse into the army, a draft that the sturdy French refused to obey. Nine hundred new men, thus conscripted swiftly, deserted at a rate of nearly forty a day. The weather was now turning cold. The many months of American delay were already beginning to take their toll. The heavy New England force was also irrepressibly asserting its individuality and was in a state near to total mutiny. Montgomery's orders were being blithely disregarded, and he perceptively testified to the libertarian spirit of his troops, complaining to Schuler that it was impossible to command men who carried the spirit of freedom into the field and think for themselves. In short, the privates are all generals. Thanes had begun to look up for the American forces, however. Montgomery's kinsman, Colonel James Livingston, managed to maneuver past St. John's and capture Fort Chambly, some miles to the north, on October 8. St. John's was now in grave peril, and Carleton raised a rescue force of 60 regulars and over 700 allied Indians and set forth across the St. Lawrence. But Seth Warner and the Green Mountain Rangers had fortified the opposite bank at Longueuil. Their fire beat back the British. The doomed Fort St. John's surrendered on November 2, and 500 regulars, the bulk of the British force in Canada, were taken prisoner. The great victory at St. John's threw Montreal wide open to the American forces, and General Montgomery swiftly pressed his advantage. Carleton escaped with his 150 regulars downriver toward Quebec, the last British stronghold in Canada. On November 13, a citizens' committee surrendered Montreal to the American force. At this point, there occurred another of the near misses at victory that were to stud this campaign. Carleton's fleet, sailing down the St. Lawrence, reached American positions at Sorel, at the junction of the Richelieu and St. Lawrence Rivers. Major John Brown managed to dupe the British into believing that great cannon was stationed at Sorel, thus convincing the British fleet to surrender on November 19. Canada could have been conquered then and there. 
But the redoubtable Carleton slipped past the American lines, disguised in peasant costume, and managed to reach Quebec. He reached Quebec just in time for the British cause. The Americans had decided to strike on two fronts. While Schuyler and Montgomery were to make for Montreal, another force was to march overland across an extremely rugged route through Maine, following the Kennebec, Dead, and Chaudière rivers to assault Quebec. The daring plan for the expedition had been drawn up by the restless Benedict Arnold, who, having won the support of General Gates, was selected by Washington to lead the expedition with the rank of colonel. The plan was a brilliant one, and Arnold was happily given a free hand. But time was growing short. The decision to go forward with the invasion was made in mid-August, and General Winter was near at hand. There was no dearth of volunteers for the Arnold expedition from the bored and fretting troops in the army around Boston. The assembled force of over a thousand men consisted of ten companies of musketeers from New England and three companies of backwoods riflemen from Virginia and Pennsylvania. Working at breakneck speed, Arnold was able to assemble the troops at Cambridge on September 11. They set sail for the Kennebec from Newburyport, Massachusetts, on the 19th, reaching Gardner on the 22nd. Arnold now organized his army into four divisions: the lead division of riflemen under the command of Captain Daniel Morgan, head of the Virginia Rifle Company. It was Morgan's task to clear a path for the army through the wilderness over the numerous carrying places. This giant, burly frontiersman, teamster, and veteran Indian fighter was to prove to be the. Great guerrilla fighter of the Revolutionary War, overcoming incredible difficulties and hardships, Arnold and Morgan led their men to Quebec in one of the most famous marches in history, ranked by many with Xenophon's. But tragically, Lieutenant Colonel Roger Enos, in charge of the rearguard division, decided to betray his post at the end of October and took his force back home. Absconding also with the bulk of the scarce remaining food, Ennis's defection subtracted three hundred crucial men from the expedition—a loss that might well have spelled the difference between victory and defeat. Still, Arnold and his gallant seven hundred might have taken Quebec. They arrived at Point Levis across the St. Lawrence from Quebec on November nine. The city was weakly defended, and a quick thrust across the river could have meant its capture. But high winds forced fatal delays in the crossing, allowing the Highland Scot Allan MacLean, who by sheer accident had learned of the Arnold expedition, to reach Quebec with one hundred men before Arnold could mount his attack. Finally, crossing on November 13, Arnold tried to provoke MacLean to leave the walls and fight, as Montcalm had done against the British over a dozen years before. MacLean sat tight, so Arnold, lacking men for a siege, went upriver to Point Autrembla to wait for Montgomery. But the months of delay were now taking their toll, and the terms of enlistment of Montgomery's troops. We're about up. 
He was left with only 800 men, and after leaving garrisons at St. John's and Montreal, he could join Arnold with only 300, making a total American force of 1,000 before Quebec. Montgomery and Arnold now found themselves besieging a city where 1,800 men had been mobilized and with soldiers whose terms of service expired at the end of the year. The Americans were therefore forced to strike quickly. But the number of men was now too few, and the decision for coordinated surprise attack by the two leaders was betrayed to the enemy by deserters. Two columns struck at Quebec on the night of December 30. Trying desperately to rally his column, the gallant Montgomery was cut down. The rest of the force promptly retreated in a rout, despite efforts of the brilliant young volunteer, Captain Aaron Burr, son of the president of the College of New Jersey at Princeton, to rally the troops. The collapse of the Montgomery Column left the British free to concentrate on Colonel Arnold's force. Arnold was wounded in the attack, but Morgan, taking command, braved countless bullets and crashed the barrier. Morgan's every instinct was to strike while the iron was hot and the British were in panic. But unfortunately, he complied with the advice of his officers against any further advance. If not for this timorousness, which Arnold would certainly have overridden, Morgan might well have seized all of Lower Quebec. The delay proved fatal. Now surrounded by the British, the undauntable Morgan offered to personally cut a swath through the British troops to gain an escape route, but the other officers refused. Instead, they decided to surrender. Morgan, completely alone and personally surrounded, steadfastly refused to surrender until the very end. The Battle of Quebec had been absolutely disastrous for the Americans, and most of the finest leaders in the American army were put out of commission. Allen had been captured. The great Montgomery was dead. Morgan was captured, and Arnold was gravely wounded. The brave Kennebec marchers were wiped out with 100 casualties and 400 taken prisoner. Even so, Arnold, now a brigadier general, issuing orders from a hospital bed, refused to give up and his few hundred half-starved men lay feudal siege to Quebec for the rest of the winter. For his noble efforts, Arnold once again received mainly humiliation. He had asked for Charles Lee or someone like him to take command and lead the assault, but when reinforcements came in early April 1776, he was replaced by craven commanders who abandoned the siege. Now he moved disconsolately behind the lines to take charge of the occupation of Montreal. At this strategic moment in early May 1776, Carleton surged forth from Quebec with 900 men to rout the American forces. In early June, New Hampshire's General John Sullivan was appointed commander of the forces in Canada. Sullivan was as bold as Arnold in Montgomery but lacked their brains. Now that strategic retreat was called for, Sullivan, on June 7, rashly launched an attack against the town of Three Rivers on the St. Lawrence. The result was collapse. 
200 Americans, including the leader of the actual attack, General William Thompson, commander of one of the Pennsylvania Rifle Regiments, were taken prisoner. Faced with the crushing defeat at Three Rivers, Sullivan had had enough, and he proceeded to beat a hasty and ignominious retreat. Rushing back from Canada and abandoning all positions there, the American forces returned to Ticonderoga in early July 1776. Thus ended the American push against Canada, a tragic and disastrous failure. Yet few campaigns in military history have been so marked by so many hairline turning points, the delays of Congress and of Schuller, bringing on winter weather and the end of American enlistment terms, the failure of Brown to meet Allen, the melodramatic escape of the formidable General Carleton from capture by the Americans, the decimation of Montgomery's army by the end of enlistment terms, the desertion by Colonel Enos, the high winds delaying Arnold's crossing of the St. Lawrence, the accidental discovery by MacLean of Arnold's advance, the hasty attack on Quebec impelled by the end of enlistment terms, the killing of General Montgomery and the subsequent rout of his column, the wounding of Arnold and subsequent hobbling of Morgan's advance, and the replacement of Arnold the following spring. Some of the most daring and progressive leaders, those most sensitive to guerrilla-type warfare, had been lost. Allen, Morgan, Montgomery, Thompson. The inordinately expensive campaign had succeeded in losing 5,000 American troops to death and capture. And Canada was lost forever. Volume 4, Chapter 10, Paper Money Financing Armies, especially European-style armies, have to be systematically financed. And it was up to the Continental Congress, which had assumed responsibility for the Continental Army, to decide on its financing. The financing of an activity by any organization may be either voluntary or compulsory, and the anarchically formed revolutionary bodies in the separate colonies, as well as the Congress, were now spontaneously constituted bodies, teetering on the edge of becoming governments. Whether they would become governments or not depended largely on how they would finance themselves. For the mark of government, the feature distinguishing it from all other organs in society is that it finances itself by compulsory levy rather than by voluntary gift or purchase of service. The Continental Congress, however, was in a bad spot. A purely guerrilla force might well have been naturally financed by voluntary contributions, in money and in kind, on the spot. But to finance regular armies on a centralized basis from voluntary contributions was completely outside the ken of the world at the time. On the other hand, it was out of the question for either the Congress or the local revolutionary bodies to impose taxation, the usual method of financing governments. Much of the thrust of the revolution, after all, was against taxation, 
and the spirit of liberty among the American people was too strong to succumb immediately to similar taxation at home. Americans were in the throes of an anarchic uprising against their legally authorized government and its taxation. They were not yet prepared to slip on a new tax yoke in the cause of breaking the grip of the old. Later, this would occur, but not yet in 1775. Furthermore, Congress had no power to tax, no power to impose its will on the separate colonies or the people therein. One time-honored method of evading and postponing the point of coercion is to borrow the needed money, a method seemingly voluntary but resting on the pledge of future coercion, taxes, to provide repayment. The Congress began tentatively in mid-June 1775 to move toward borrowing by appointing a committee to consider borrowing 6,000 pounds sterling for a supply of powder, a loan which Congress would undertake to repay. At this fateful crossroads, Congress hit upon a device, coercive but seemingly painless, a device that the British colonies had pioneered in the Western world, the issue of paper money. Paper issues fraudulently pretend to be equivalent to units of specie and are used by the issuer to bid away resources in society from the producers and consumers, in the process depreciating the money unit itself, its nature and consequences are equivalent to the process of counterfeiting. Historians who believe that paper money agitation is invariably the product of the lower classes or of impoverished farmers might well ponder the identity of the man who led the Continental Congress down the primrose path of paper money, a young scion of the New York landed aristocracy, Governor Morris. The highly conservative Morris, grandson of Lewis Morris, royal governor of New Jersey, was delegate to the Congress from Westchester County. Once paper money was decided upon, the next decision was whether each colony would be responsible for eventual redemption of its proportion of issues. For everyone recognized that paper money would only circulate if some sort of redemption were pledged for the future. This would mean that each colony would stand on its own bottom, and one of the advantages of continental paper for the northern colonies was inducing the other colonies to take on some of the former's financial burden. Hence, Massachusetts and New Hampshire, on the firing line, were understandably eager to foist their expenses onto the shoulders of the other colonies. Finally, on June 22, Congress decided to issue $2 million in paper, or bills of credit, a sum that was soon to be rapidly expanded. Each colony, it was decided, would be pledged in seven years to redeem a pro-rata share of the common continental issue, based upon its relative population. But significantly, all the colonies were pledged to redeem any default by a particular colony, 
Redemption was to begin at the end of 1779. The process, however, was not envisioned as genuine redemption in specie, but merely the levying of taxes in continental paper itself, which would then be used to retire the paper. In short, the redemption charted by Congress would not give hard money backing to the new paper dollars. The bills would not be redeemed, but retired. The prospect was only of a massive tax burden in a few years, which would be superimposed upon the previous tax burden imposed by paper inflation. In short, the seemingly inexhaustible fount of new continental money had begun, and an insistent clamor soon arose for ever greater shares in the new bonanza. As Edmund Burnett phrased it, such was the beginning of the federal trough, one of America's most imperishable institutions. From the very start, the Continentals followed the sociological law that once turned on the engines of paper inflation accelerate as the clamor mounts for shares in the new cornucopia. By the time the two million dollars were ready to emerge from the press in a few weeks, Congress had already concluded that the issue was insufficient. By the end of July, another one million of new money was authorized. What, after all, was to be the criterion for halting the money engine? Before the end of 1775, a full six million dollars in three issues of new paper were issued or authorized. This issue for the year contrasted with a total money supply of approximately $12 million at the beginning of the war, a 50% increase in the money supply in less than one year. Congress had no power to make its notes legal tender, compulsory for creditors to receive in payment of debts, but Rhode Island in 1775 pioneered in making the continental paper legal tender for all debts in the province. Furthermore, any person refusing to accept these notes as equivalent to real specie dollars was to be denounced as an enemy of his country, who should be debarred from all communication with good citizens. The separate provinces themselves were not to be denied use of the new bonanza, even before Congress acted during May 1775, embattled Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island voted their own paper issues. At the end of June, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress rashly made not only its own bills legal tender, but also those of all colonies. Anyone refusing to accept any of the notes at par with specie would be deemed an enemy of his country. Volume 4, Chapter 11 The New Postal System If the colonies were to fight a war of any length or seriousness against Great Britain, they could obviously no longer rely upon the Crown's monopoly postal service for transmission of their mail. When the final crisis began at the beginning of 1774 and Britain got word of the Boston Tea Party, Benjamin Franklin, already in hot water, was swiftly removed as the royally appointed Deputy Postmaster General for America. 
Franklin's unceremonious removal reminded the Americans that the postal authorities were empowered to open letters and block delivery of what they thought of as objectionable matter. In addition to the threat of the royal post to the freedom of the press, they began to see that postal fees were equivalent to another tax levied on them without their consent. Extension of the American boycott from British trade to the royal post was thought of first, but it was soon seen that a boycott of a tight monopoly could only be self-defeating, for then no mail would be carried. The solution was set forth by the eminent radical printer William Goddard, publisher of the Maryland Journal and the Pennsylvania Chronicle. In early February 1774, he proposed an illegal, revolutionary, constitutional post, organized and financed by local private sources operating at cost. The post would be built from the ground up, with local officers and provincial postal committees electing a postmaster general. Under Goddard's leadership, the plan soon flourished. The radical Sam Adams and the Boston Committee of Correspondence being unsurprisingly enthusiastic about the venture. By the spring of 1775, the illegal, privately organized and financed Constitutional Post had a chain of successful post offices from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to Williamsburg, Virginia. And the languishing royal post in New York and Boston was being forced to discharge post riders for lack of work. When the Revolutionary War began, the New England and New York provincial congresses removed the onus of illegality from the new postal system. But the Continental Congress took a little noted step from liberty back to centralized statism in this vital area. In doing this. Congress had been prodded by a committee headed by Franklin, who, since his disgrace in England, had been forced to throw in his lot with the American cause. A voluntary, efficient grassroots postal service had aided the revolution and replaced the royal post. But at the end of July, Congress decided to nationalize the constitutional post. It was also decided to expand the postal system southward to Savannah, Georgia, and northward to Falmouth, Maine. Not fortuitously, Goddard, an ardent rebel and founder of the Constitutional Post, was deposed and shunted aside in favor of the old opportunist Franklin, who was chosen to be Postmaster General of the New American Post. Operated by a newly created postal department, a colonies-wide governmental post, all too reminiscent of the old centralized royal post, had now replaced the grassroots private postal system. In any event, under pressure of the growing American competition and its own increasing unpopularity. And further handicapped by being prohibited by the Maryland Provincial Convention. The Royal Post closed its American doors in December 1775, never to return. Volume Four, Chapter Twelve: New York Fumbles in the Crisis. The major weapon of American pressure on Great Britain at the time of Lexington and Concord 
had been the Continental Association, and after the shooting started, this boycott weapon continued its work with redoubled force. In mid-May 1775, Congress resolved on an absolute boycott of trade with those English colonies that had not joined the association. Quebec, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, St. John's Island, the Floridas, and Georgia, with the exception of Radical St. John's Parish, which sent Dr. Lyman Hall as an accredited delegate to the Second Continental Congress. The boycott succeeded in injuring Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and the Floridas, but British exports soon made up the gap. The news of Lexington and Concord sparked the local governments into circulating defense associations, a more radical extension of the Continental Association. In New York and New Jersey, signers of these mass statements agreed to support any measures of the Continental Congress and the provincial conventions. In more radical Maryland and South Carolina, they pledged their lives and fortunes to the rebel cause. Generally, the grassroots associations were soon adopted by the provincial conventions, which circulated the mass oaths to all adult males, taking the precaution of publicizing the names of any who refused to sign, especially in Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, and South Carolina. The new, more radical defense associations understandably superseded the Continental Association in the support of the public. The New York associations responded to the electric news of Lexington and Concord on April 23rd by immediately putting leadership into the hands of the leaders of the radical forces, Isaac Sears and John Lamb. Organizing parades in the towns, Sears and Lamb called on the people of New York to arm themselves in defense of their injured rights and liberties. Shipments of provisions for General Gage's forces in Boston were quickly stripped by a mob led by Sears, Lamb, and Peter Livingston. Sears and Lamb also broke into the City Hall arsenal and seized and distributed the muskets and gunpowder inside. Armed citizens patrolled the streets, and Sears and Lamb hastily drilled their followers. Revolutionary popular rule prevailed. Hated Tory printer James Rivington was forced to flee to the safety of a British warship. The Reverend Miles Cooper and other Tory Anglican clergymen of New York went into hiding, and an armed mob, led by Sears, forced the collector of customs to surrender the keys to the customs house, which was promptly shut down. Sears ordered no ships to be cleared for Halifax or British-occupied Boston, and even went so far as to close the port of New York. The old predominantly radical Committee of Sixty, after failing in its bid to run the city, organized a city-wide election for a Committee of One Hundred as the city's government. Elections were also called for Provincial Congress to unify the whole province. In the election of April 29, two slates contested for the 20 city delegate positions and for the Committee of 100. Sears, Lamb, the Artisans, and the Sons of Liberty on the one hand, and a conservative group on the other. 
The election was a victory for the conservative Whigs of Robert R. Livingston's wing of the landed oligarchy and a blow to the Sears-Lamb radicals who had been weakened by the growing conservatization of the third member of the once great radical triumvirate Alexander McDougall. The conservatives swiftly moved to tame and bolderize the revolutionary movement in New York City. At a conservative-run mass meeting immediately following the election, headed by Isaac Lowe and Robert Livingston, a defense association drafted by the highly conservative James Duane, John Jay, and Peter Van Schack, pledged to carry out the measures of the Continental and Provincial Congresses. This was a seemingly bold and sturdy step, but actually it channeled the revolutionary movement in New York into passive legal measures and shunted aside the extra-legal activities of Sears and Lamb. The newly elected Committee of 100 quickly resolved to offer this defense association to every citizen of the city and to record the names of those refusing to sign. Within a month, 1,800 citizens of New York City had signed. The Committee of 100 also mobilized and drilled the militia of the city, and sale of arms to Tories was prohibited. The swift military mobilization performed two functions, one revolutionary, the other repressive. On the one hand, the militia prepared against an expected British invasion of New York City. On the other, its actual concrete function was the centrist one of keeping the Sears-Lamb radicals under wraps. The meeting of the first New York Provincial Congress on May 22 marked the first highly significant expansion of the revolutionary movement from the city to the whole province, which had until then been conspicuously lacking in revolutionary fervor. The Congress expanded the Defense Association of April 29 to the entire province, and county committees were selected to offer the association to every inhabitant. Although no penalties except public obloquy were attached to non-signers, by September the patience of the Provincial Congress had worn thin. It resolved on September 1 that although this Congress have a tender regard for freedom of speech, the rights of conscience and personal liberty, the public safety required a stern crackdown upon those withholding allegiance, not only from the provincial and continental congresses, but even from county and district committees, all of which were extra-legal and spontaneously created bodies. In two weeks, the Provincial Committee of Safety, the Provincial Congress's executive arm, pressed further to force the disarming of all non-signers, of the association, who were presumed to be ipso facto rejectors of the authority of the revolutionary bodies. While this step was too radical for the Congress that autumn, the following spring it agreed to the forced disarming of all non-signers, who were then jailed at their own expense. Whig rule in New York was beset by many problems not encountered so virulently elsewhere. Most important was the highly conservative tinge of New York opinion, 
a growing and active minority of Tories faced a Whig majority shot through with conservative, neo-Tory sentiment, thereby playing into Tory hands. Outright Tory were the Delancey wing of the landed oligarchy, the Anglicans concentrated in New York City, and oppressed tenants whose landlords were Whigs, for example Livingston, and who hoped to gain by opposing their masters. Thus the inner contradictions of New York's drive for liberty that acquiesced in oppression of tenants arose to plague the revolutionary cause. When the association was circulated throughout New York, it was found that Tories were in a majority on Long Island, overwhelmingly so in Queens and Richmond counties, where they prevented the election of deputies, and very strong in parts of Westchester, Albany, and Dutchess counties, and in New York City. The military effort of New York was thereby gravely crippled, and few men or supplies, and no money, could be furnished by New York for the crucially important invasion of Canada. While outright Tories were unusually strong in New York, even the dominant conservative Livingston Whigs were eager for reconciliation with England. Only in New York was it credible that as late as the end of May 1775, the Provincial Congress should adopt the reconciliation report of the highly conservative Governor Morris. Morris's principles, obsolete elsewhere in the colonies, approved Britain's right to regulate American foreign commerce, but not domestic affairs, and moved along the lines of Galloway's old defeated plan of union with Great Britain. So timorous were the Livingston Whigs that at the end of August when Lamb, under Provincial Congress authority, attempted to strip the Battery Port of Royal Authority and a British ship opened fire, the Whigs totally succumbed to Governor William Tryon's demand and left the cannon alone, even continuing to supply the British ships. When the Continental Congress recommended jailing all persons inimical to the American cause, and especially royal officials, the Whig rulers of New York City hastened to assure Royal Governor Tryon of his permanent safety. Further, in early November, when the Continental Congress urged New York to seize all British military stores in the city, the Whigs flatly refused. What sort of a revolutionary war was this? New York was clearly a pest hole for revolutionary activities. Rendered desperate by the dead hand of the ruling Whigs, the New York radicals decided they had to carry on the revolution by themselves. In early June, before Montgomery and Schuyler marched for Montreal, Marinus Willett defied the Provincial Congress and raided the baggage train of the royal governor embarking for England. An ordnance warehouse was looted and a royal barge burned. Sears, backed by Montgomery, decided to seize Tryon and take him to Connecticut in the summer of 1775, but he was overruled by the oligarchs Schuyler and Washington. Finally, the defiance by New York of the Continental Congress on seizing Crown military stores and royal officials was too much for Sears. It was obvious to him that he could not fight a revolution in New York, and he left for Connecticut 
in early November. As for the other radical leader, John Lamb, he joined the army and participated in the invasion of Canada, falling, wounded, and captured, like so many other American leaders, at the Battle of Quebec. Meanwhile, the third radical, Triumvir, Alexander MacDougall, the last remaining in New York, continued to shift ever more steadily rightward into the Livingston camp. Thus, with their great leaders gone or recreant, New York radicalism and the Sons of Liberty were dealt a staggering and decisive blow, a blow which such new leaders as Daniel Dunscombe and William Goforth could not hope to repair. New York was now deprived of a left and remained only with a strong Tory right and a conservative, faint-hearted Livingston center-right. Volume 4, Part 2, Suppressing Tories Volume 4, Chapter 13, The Suppression of Tories Begins Throughout the rebellious colonies developed the pattern of governmental authority largely devoted to fighting the War of the Revolution, and exercised by illegal representative bodies, provincial congresses, or conventions. Realizing that the executive function should be inherently subordinate to the lawmaking function, the rebels created a highly democratic system, making committees of safety, operating committees of the legislature, the major executive arms of the provinces, which could function when the legislatures were not in session. On the local level, the old committees of inspection, observation, and correspondence, which had enforced the Continental Association, naturally evolved into new city and rural committees to run the war, specifically to raise and operate the militia, and especially to crush dissenting Tories. The Americans had had no chance to hear present-day opinion that they were merely fighting a conservative and moderate revolution. Hence, they went at the Tories with a zeal that went beyond the bounds of libertarian principle. The concept of enemy of American liberty was quickly extended from violators of the continental boycott to anyone critical of the revolution. Known and suspected Tories were hauled before the local committees, and as Professor Miller puts it, if the committees failed to persuade, the mob took over. Thus was created a police system, secret, efficient, and all-powerful. Letters, especially to England, were seized at the post offices and carefully examined. Spies eagerly took on the task of keeping watch on suspected Tories, and in contrast to enforcement of the Continental Association, committees did not try to confine punishment of Tories to voluntary boycott and ostracism. Instead, fines, imprisonment, confiscation, and banishment came increasingly into play. Persons were hauled before local committees for criticizing the Continental Congress, belittling the Massachusetts Army, criticizing Presbyterian prominence in the Revolution, and a host of other errors of opinion. The new extra-legal Massachusetts General Court urged Harvard College to dismiss all faculty members having Tory views. 
Individual Tories were not only boycotted and forced to recant their heresies, stronger methods of punishment were adopted as soon as the rebel committees became the effective authorities in their areas. As early as May 1775, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress recommended to local selectmen and committees that they confiscate the arms of all unfriendly to the rebel cause and forbid anyone to leave the province without special permission of the local committee or the Congress. The following month, the Provincial Congress directed the town committees and select men to confiscate and take charge of the property of all Tories who had fled behind the British lines at Boston or elsewhere. In New Hampshire, the Provincial Congress, as the supreme judicial body of the province, sentenced Tory Colonel John Fenton to indefinite imprisonment as an enemy to the liberties of America. In September, the New York Provincial Congress created a hierarchy of penalties for Tories, including fines, disarming, prison, and banishment. And in November, the Rhode Island General Assembly passed a law decreeing death and forfeit of property to anyone assisting the British Army with information or supplies. One of the critical litmus tests used by the local committees to smoke out Tories was a public oath of loyalty to a defense association succeeding the old Continental Association. As historian Alexander C. Flick concluded, the association became the first decisive test of the politics of individuals. It stamped the individual as a Whig or Tory in the eyes of his neighbors, and treatment was meted out to him accordingly. Hesitation to sign involved suspicion. Refusal, guilt. The loyalist who was true to his convictions, creed and king, was detested, reviled, and if prominent, ruined in business, tarred and feathered, mobbed, ostracized or imprisoned, and all this at the will of a committee self-constituted and responsible to no one. Thus, a revolution and revolutionaries dedicated to the cause of liberty moved to suppress crucial liberties of their opposition, an ironic but not unsurprising illustration of the inherent contradiction between liberty and power, a conflict that can all too readily come into play, even when power is employed on behalf of liberty. Hesitant to take any steps that might lead irrevocably to independence, the Continental Congress refused to do anything about hunting and combating Tories, leaving the task to the separate towns and provinces. This despite the request from Massachusetts and Maryland for a general congressional test oath for all the colonies. In October 1775, however, Congress learned that Dr. Benjamin Church one of the top revolutionary leaders of Massachusetts and chief surgeon of the Continental Army, was a traitor in the pay of the British. This grave shock led Congress to urge the various local committees to crack down on everyone who might endanger the safety of the colony or liberties of America. The committees redoubled their efforts in rounding up suspects, imposing test oaths and punishing recalcitrants with disfranchisement or prison. 
The Continental Army was also authorized to aid in suppressing Tories. Even as conservative a man as George Washington wondered why the Tories, abominable pest of society, who are preying upon the vitals of their country, should be suffered to stalk at large, whilst we know that they will do us every mischief in their power. In their grave concern with the American Tories, the American revolutionaries were not striking at phantoms. While the idea that Tory and rebel sentiment among the people was equally matched is a historical misreading of John Adams, it remains true that the Tories constituted a real and substantial threat to the revolution. A letter by John Adams has been traditionally interpreted by historians as judging that one-third of the Americans supported the revolution, one-third were opposed, and one-third were neutral. In fact, Adams was referring to American attitudes toward the later French, not the American Revolution. In another letter, Adams estimated that the American Revolution was supported by two-thirds of those taking sides one way or the other. About one-third of politically interested Americans were Tories or Loyalists, while the Revolution held the allegiance of the other two-thirds. Also neglected is what the Tories did during the Revolutionary War, for even the historians concentrating on the Tories have been so sympathetic to them as to highlight their status as refugees and to play down their considerable role as armed and militant warriors of counter-revolution. The population of the rebelling colonies at the time of outbreak totaled approximately two and a half million. Of these, about half a million were Negro slaves, who certainly were potential rebels against the revolutionaries and hence potential aides to the British. If we consider one-third of the whites to have been politically apathetic, then we have a mighty reservoir of another half million pro-British inhabitants, such a huge reservoir of active or potential defectors inexorably turned the American Revolution into a civil war as well. Who were the Tories? This question has suffered from insufficient research. Too many historians, in their eternal search for an American consensus of sweetness and light, have preferred to forget about the hard knot of American Tories and what was done to them during the Revolutionary War. The first thing to be said is that the Tories were not at all uniformly distributed geographically. For example, the two major centers of population, New England and Virginia, were relatively Tory-free. The few thousand Virginia Tories were concentrated among Ulster Scots on the frontier in western Virginia, settlers on the eastern shore, the Chesapeake Peninsula, and native Scottish merchants and factors concentrated on the coast near Norfolk. New England Tories were to be found in scattered pockets, many in Newport, in the coastal towns of the main region, New Hampshire, Cape Cod, parts of western Massachusetts. Western Connecticut, near the New York border, was the only one of these regions where Tories approached a majority, even though the bulk of Connecticut was overwhelmingly rebel. All in all, New England Tories barely reached one-tenth of the population. 
There were more Tories in the other colonies of the South than in Virginia, and these were mainly concentrated in the back country of the Carolinas, the pockets of Highland Scots near Wilmington and Cape Fear in North Carolina, and the city of Charleston, and in royal, bureaucrat-ridden and subsidized Georgia. However, in none of the major population areas of the South did the Tories constitute a majority, and all in all they totaled about 30% of Southerners. The most ominous and threatening center of Tory strength lay in the middle colonies, which were almost evenly divided between Whig and Tory. This equal strength was particularly true of New York, the greatest Tory stronghold outside of Georgia. In such areas as western Long Island, upstate, and the lower Hudson Valley, Tory adherence was almost overwhelming. New Jersey, in Bergen County and in the south, was almost as fertile Tory ground. Toryism was particularly strong in Philadelphia and the surrounding counties, especially among the Quakers. Tories were also strong in Delaware and on Maryland's eastern shore. Ethnic and religious minorities within a region tended to oppose the dominant majority and hence to side with Great Britain. Thus, while Anglicans in the low church Anglican South were solidly revolutionary, the minority of Anglicans in the North, far more high church and attached to Britain, were predominantly Tory. Also in the North, many Baptist and the budding Methodist movement were restive and Tory. Most Dutch in New York and New Jersey and Quakers in southern New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania and many native-born Scots tended to be Tories. The Ulster Scots, however, at least in the South, were rather evenly divided. Had the British acted early and energetically to mobilize the Tories to organize their scattered centers of strength, and to exploit the potential conflicts within American society, they might have been able to deal the revolution a crippling blow. The Negro slaves, as we have pointed out, were a huge potential reservoir of discontent to mobilize against the revolution. And New York, a fertile field, lay available for exploitation. The revolution split the landed oligarchy of the province with the Anglican Delanceys of New York City and Lower Hudson Valley turning Tory, while the Presbyterian Livingstons of the northern Hudson Valley supported the break with England, though only meekly. As a result, the disgruntled tenants of the Livingstons and their fellow Whig landlords naturally gave their support to the Tory cause, and many Ulstermen of the backcountry Carolinas, long unhappy about under-representation and governmental discrimination against them, were Tories or lukewarm to a revolution made by the planters of the lowlands. However, the long-held view of historians that the old rebel regulators of the Carolinas later became Tories has been refuted by the recent researches of Johnson, Barnwell, and Brown. The former regulators of both North and South Carolina were predominantly Whig revolutionaries. Indeed, it was only the old South Carolina moderators who became largely Tory.
The Tories, as we have seen, ranged through all social classes and occupations, from the aristocratic Delanceys of New York to the lowly tenants of the Whig landlords and the backcountry settlers of the Carolinas. Neither were they dominantly concentrated within any broad social class. It is therefore impermissible to identify them with any particular economic or social group. However, neither can we discard social class analysis altogether. While most of the wealthy were rebels and the Tories ranged through all social classes, it is also true that the proportion of the upper class was greater among the Tories than among the rebels and a far greater proportion of Tories was concentrated among such well-to-do groups as royal bureaucrats and officials, British factors in the South, and Georgia planters. Thus, almost two-thirds of the councillors, members of the royally appointed upper houses of the colonial assemblies, became Tories. For the British to have organized and welded together all the disparate threads of Tory and anti-Whig potential would have required energy and ability that the British did not have. For one thing, the British, like all counter-revolutionaries always and everywhere, scoffed at the revolution as being a movement of a small, fanatical minority rather than a majority and as a movement of a weak and inferior breed of men. All counter-revolutionaries tend to gravely underestimate their enemies by treating rebellion as the work of a small subversive band of dogmatic and fanatical ideologues. The vast majority, these arch-conservatives typically feel, are deeply loyal to the constituted government. Therefore, the British confidently believed that no intensive coordination of the Tories was necessary. Surely they need only call or land, and the great majority of loyal folk would rise up and help their rulers smite the traitors. A second cause of chronic British optimism, as we have seen, was the chauvinist contempt for the Americans as a people and for their martial abilities, a contempt redoubled by the British devotion to orthodox military prescriptions and ignorance of guerrilla forms of warfare. The defeat of the revolution also required an indomitable will, but General Howe, the commander-in-chief of the British armies after the removal of the disgraced Gage in October 1775, was an ardent Whig opposed to the war. These inner convictions kept him valiantly trying for a compromise political peace, rather than a repressive military solution to the conflict, thereby substantially weakening the resolve of the counter-revolution. Volume 4, Chapter 14 Suppressing Tories in Rhode Island and Connecticut While the Tories stood disunited and lacking firm British leadership, the revolutionaries in colony after colony struck with keen efficiency and dispatch to disarm the actual and potential traitors in their midst. In Massachusetts, support for the revolution was so ardent and widespread that there was little organized Tory opposition, and the local revolutionary committees could work their will on individual Tories, unchecked 
Most Massachusetts Tories were concentrated in the West, in the towns of the Upper Connecticut River Valley, including Amherst, Hatfield, and especially Deerfield. Other concentrations were to be found in the town of Worcester, which was, however, predominantly revolutionary, and among the Baptist of the town of Ashfield. Tories were particularly numerous among the royal judges and bureaucrats, and it has been estimated that fully half the lawyers in western Massachusetts were Tories. However, no special measures had to be taken against the Massachusetts Tories since they were so few in number relative to the total population. Toryism was much more threatening in Rhode Island, where Newport abounded in loyalists. Particularly embarrassing was Rhode Island's governor, Joseph Wanton, who became an active Tory and urged the Rhode Island Assembly to seek a separate peace with England. In June 1775, the powerful Assembly, moving toward deposing Wanton, quickly forbade the oath of office from being administered to him and commissioned militia officers without his signature. In November, it deposed Wanton as governor and replaced him with the radical Nicholas Cook of Samuel Ward's old faction. Throughout 1775, Rhode Island, particularly Newport, suffered from the plunder of a fleet of British warships in lower Narragansett Bay, commanded by Captain James Wallace. Wallace disrupted and plundered Rhode Island's foreign trade and shipping and continually threatened Newport with fire and destruction if the citizens did not furnish food and supplies to the British army and fleet. Wallace finally did shell the defenseless town of Bristol and thoroughly plundered and partially burned Jamestown in 1775. Eventually, the months of British terror and imposed starvation took their toll. The people of Newport began to flee the city. By early November, nearly half of its citizens, largely women and children, had fled northward from the city. Most of these were rebels, so the revolutionary morale of Newport, never high at best, was weakened still further. With the consent of the Rhode Island government and the Continental Congress, Newport agreed in the autumn of 1775 to supply the British fleet with provisions and to withdraw the colony's militia from the town. In the meanwhile, however, the Rhode Island Assembly intensified its ardor to take stern measures against the Tories. Thus, it decreed the punishment of death and confiscation of property for anyone betraying the cause to the enemy or providing him with supplies. The Newport Agreement, of course, accepted. In December, Rhode Island authorities, alarmed at growing Tory power in Newport and fearful of a British attack from Boston, begged Washington for help. Washington sent down his best man, General Lee, with a handful of troops. Lee heartened the rebels and thoroughly frightened the Tories, enforcing upon them a public oath in support of the Continental Congress and arresting three Tories who refused to take it. His energetic activities at the end of the year, including arrest of Tory leaders and issuance of mass loyalty oaths, succeeded in cowing the loyalists in Newport. 
Tory opposition to the revolution in New England centered in southwestern Connecticut, in sharp contrast to the fierce revolutionary fervor of the bulk of that colony. Indeed, at the end of 1775, Connecticut became the first colony to enact a systematic body of law against Tories, including such severe punishment as forfeiture of all property and three years' imprisonment. For the first time in America, serving the king was officially branded a crime to be severely punished. Connecticut's fervor was such that it was the best place to imprison Tories from neighboring provinces. One of the principal prison sites in the colonies was the dank, abandoned copper mine at Simsbury. The New Haven town meeting opposed taking up arms against Britain, and the meetings of Litchfield and Danbury condemned the Continental Congress. In Reading and New Milford, the majority of the inhabitants went so far as to swear to loyalist oaths. The most acute Tory threat to Connecticut appeared in May 1775, when the bulk of the Waterbury militia, officers and enlisted men alike, declared their refusal to follow the policy advised by the Continental Congress. This threat was swiftly and efficiently countered by a secretly conducted night raid upon southwestern Connecticut by several hundred Whig militiamen from revolutionary eastern Connecticut. The Tories of the entire area were disarmed by the raiders, and a dozen Tory leaders were taken prisoner. Volume 4, Chapter 15, Suppressing Tories in New York New York, as we have indicated, was a hotbed of Toryism, and even the Whigs were dominated by highly conservative oligarchs. The colony was therefore held in understandable suspicion by the other colonies, and Isaac Sears, the leading New York radical who had left in disgust for Connecticut, was one of the first to realize that any radical action in New York would have to be accomplished from outside its borders. In late November, Sears, appointed a military commander by the Connecticut Assembly, collected 100 men from Connecticut and conducted a daring raid into New York City, smashing the Tory print shops. They seized three leading Westchester Tories, including the Reverend Samuel Seabury, and hauled them back to New Haven. Only Suffolk County in eastern Long Island, part of Ulster County, and New York City were largely revolutionary. But even in those places, the action meted out to the local Tories was negligible. Indeed, of 104 merchant members of the Chamber of Commerce of New York City, no fewer than 78 were Tories. Westchester County was largely Tory, and Dutchess County predominantly so. Indeed, in Dutchess, the Loyalists armed themselves openly, condemned the Continental Congress, interfered with the regular militia, and openly enlisted men for the British armed forces. Leading the Tories were the rivermen, who used their boats to convey enlistees to the British forces and threatened to carry the leading rebels off as well. During October 1775, many Tories of the lower Hudson Valley were planning to join the British forces, some in the Peekskill area. 
tried to rise up in arms, but were quickly disarmed by the local militia. The heavily Tory Staten Island sent no delegates to the Provincial Congress and was embargoed by the adjoining area of New Jersey for its unfriendly disposition toward the liberties of America. But the staunchest Tory region in New York was Queens County, covering most of western Long Island. The Queens towns not only refused to send delegates to the Provincial Congress, but passed loyalist resolutions in defiance of the revolution. In the November 1775 elections to the Provincial Congress, the freeholders of Queens County voted by three and a half to one against sending a delegate. The following month, the bulk of the county's voters declared their neutrality in the war and decided to arm in their own defense. The British fleet proved more than willing to supply them with arms. Rising Tory activity in Queens so alarmed even such conservatives as Jay and MacDougall that the latter held it imperative to disarm the Tories of the county. Even the Conservative Provincial Congress recommended embargoing these counties that continued to refuse to send any delegates. However, the Congress refused to agree to the urgings of its Committee of Safety to disarm all the province's Tories. The Continental Congress, however, angrily resolved to smash this resistance movement and declared the virtual outlawry of Queens County, denouncing its citizens as incapable of resolving to live and die free men. It declared that the Queen's Tories should be disarmed, the dangerous ones imprisoned, and the names of all be published throughout the country. No inhabitant of Queen's was to be allowed to leave the county without a passport issued by the New York Committee of Safety. It was clear, however, that any chastening of Queen's Tories would have to be accomplished from outside the province. Under the Continental Congress's direction, Nathaniel Hurd of New Jersey was sent into New York with 1,200 men in late January 1776. Hurd succeeded in disarming 600 armed but disorganized Queen's Tories without a fight. Seventeen Tory ringleaders were marched off to prison in Philadelphia. Succeeding Hurd was that great scourge of Tories in Toryism, General Charles Lee, increasingly in use as a radical military troubleshooter. With the Canadian campaign heading toward defeat and the siege of Boston moving towards victory, it was becoming ever more clear that the next problem was the expected transfer of the British Army from Boston to some more congenial spot on the Atlantic seaboard. Probably they would pick New York City. From there they might, in a combined pincers movement with forces in Canada, try to split the colonies in two, and riddled with Tories and neo-Tories as it was, New York might prove a hospitable haven for the British troops. Lee was among the first to press for more radical and vigorous measures against the British and the Tories. By the summer of 1775, he was advocating the independence of America and wondered why in the name of Satan, New York's Governor Tryon had not been seized. During the autumn, Lee urged MacDougall to seize Tryon and to inform the British naval captain in New York Harbor that, if he had bombarded the city, 
the first house he sets on fire shall be the funeral pile of his excellency, Tryon. In short, Tryon should be held as hostage for British good behavior. In October 1775, Lee pioneered in proposing two radical steps, that the war be partly financed by the confiscation of Tory property, and that American ports be thrown open to all European commerce, defiantly shedding the last American allegiance to the British laws of trade. In early January 1776, deeply worried about New York, Lee urged Washington to allow him to raise a body of Connecticut volunteers and Jersey militia in order to cleanse New York City of Tories and to fortify it. Washington hesitated for political reasons, but finally agreed when John Adams approved the plan. Lee promptly went to Connecticut and there collected 1,200 men recruited by Isaac Sears, whom Lee hailed and picked as his assistant for the expedition with the rank of lieutenant colonel. Approaching the border, Lee was met by hysterical pleas not to cross into the city, lest the British Navy bombard it. He characteristically replied that if they did, the first house set in flames by their guns shall be the funeral pile of some of their best friends. His arrival in New York in early February coincided with the arrival of British General Sir Henry Clinton in the harbor with several hundred troops. Lee took command and successfully threatened the British that opening fire on the town would mean the death of 100 Tories. He also cut off the supplies that the New Yorkers had been generously furnishing the British. The New York Provincial Congress protested with particular bitterness at the hard treatment Lee was meeting out to the Tories. It is curious that the Congress took time out in the midst of a dire revolutionary crisis and a fight for survival to complain about the fact that the Tory Samuel Gale had been imprisoned by Lee in Connecticut and his property invaded. Or perhaps it is not so curious when we reflect that Gale was an English surveyor allied to the landed New York oligarch and highly conservative Whig James Duane. Lee paid no attention to the carping. Instead, he sent out the eager Isaac Sears to tame the Tories of Queens County. Sears swept through Queens, denouncing the New York Congress and forcing a strong public oath of allegiance upon everyone. All non-compliers were arrested and sent to Connecticut. Lee was soon called elsewhere, but his activities did have the effect of shoring up the patriots and chastening the Tories. An indigenous New York left could not be restored, however, and the raid provoked such a storm of conservative New York protest that the Continental Congress and Army weakly withdrew from suppressing Tories. New York was where the British first tried to exploit another contradiction within American society, the disaffected Indians on the frontier. In any conflict between English and Americans, the tendency of the Indians would be to side with Britain, for it was the land-grabbing American settlers who constituted their supreme enemy, whereas the British had played a relatively mollifying role with the Indians, for example, in decreeing the proclamation line of 1763. 
The most that the Americans could hope for, therefore, was Indian neutrality in the war. It was that promise that General Schuller had gained from the Iroquois in the summer of 1775. Fortunately for the American cause, Sir William Johnson, Indian trader, superintendent of Indian affairs at Albany, and uncrowned king of the Iroquois, had died in 1774. But Johnson's nephew and son-in-law, Colonel Guy Johnson, succeeded him, and William's son, Sir John Johnson, ruled an enormous estate in upcountry Tryon County with the aid of a fierce private army of his tenant Highland Scots. Furthermore, Tryon County, covering most of upcountry New York, was predominantly Tory and rumors persisted of a plan for the Johnson Highlanders to join pro-British Iroquois and march down the Hudson Valley, raising Tories as they came. But the ardor of the several thousand pro-British Iroquois was dampened by the British themselves in the spring of 1775, when General Carleton, fearful of provoking an American invasion of Canada, advised them to lie low for the time being. And in January 1776, General Schuyler took several thousand militiamen into Tryon County in a surprise attack, thoroughly disarming Johnson's Scots and shipping six of their leaders to prison in Philadelphia. Thus, by early 1776, the rebels, with the use of surprise and skilled organization, had managed to disarm the Tories in the areas of their greatest support. Many of the Highland Scots, along with most of the other Tories of Upper New York, fled to Canada, there to work for vengeance in return. Back home, their property was confiscated, and the Tories who remained behind were imprisoned, flogged, and sometimes executed. Sir John Johnson managed to hold Fort Stanwix at the extreme western point of the Mohawk River until late spring of 1776, when he was forced to abandon his properties and flee to Canada. Volume Four, Chapter Sixteen: Suppressing Tories in the Middle Colonies. New Jersey had nearly as great a proportion of loyalists as New York. And Southern New Jersey was notoriously loyal to Great Britain. Its royal governor, William Franklin, illegitimate son of Benjamin, was particularly active in the British cause. In the spring of 1775, he tried to persuade the New Jersey Assembly to negotiate a separate peace with Britain. Failing this, he continued to organize Tory sentiment. Prodded by a series of petitions organized by him, the assembly vehemently instructed its delegates to the Continental Congress against any attempt at independence. Indeed, Franklin was almost able to induce the assembly to beg the king for peace, and only lengthy harangues by moderate delegates from the Continental Congress were able to dissuade New Jersey from such separate action. It was only in June 1776 that Franklin was finally arrested by the New Jersey Assembly and sent to prison in the recesses of Connecticut. Apart from Franklin's political activity, by the spring of 1776, the province was plagued with imminent insurrections in Monmouth, Hunterdon, and Bergen counties. 
Negroes were reported arming themselves to join the British cause and later to be intriguing with British prisoners of war. In conservative Pennsylvania, the Tory cause had been crippled by Joseph Galloway's decision not to run for the Second Continental Congress and his withdrawal from political life. The bulk of the Tories continued to be the Quakers in the Philadelphia area. The Philadelphia meeting sent dispatches to Quakers throughout the middle colonies, urging them to abstain from all forms of rebellion and to remember that it was their religious duty to honor the king. From their old anarchic individualism, the Quakers had now evolved into a non-violent bulwark of state and crown. It was not their business, the meeting warned, to plot and contrive the ruin or overrun of any government. The Toryism of the Quakers remained passive, however, and there was no worry about their taking up arms against the revolution. In Maryland, a sharp geographical split prevailed, with the tobacco-growing regions on the western shore of Chesapeake Bay being staunchly revolutionary while the maritime eastern shore was predominantly Tory. In heavily Tory Worcester County on the Atlantic coast, the Loyalists, led by Hugh Kelly, obtained arms during the fall of 1775 from a vessel of Lord Dunmore, royal governor of Virginia. Meeting in secret and signing a joint oath, 1,900 Tories formed an association, met for military drill, declared themselves for the king and against Boston, and pledged themselves to resist any conscription into the Continental Army. They also managed to seize some local Whigs and hustle them aboard Dunmore's ship in a futile quest for recruits. In adjoining Somerset County, one Isaac Atkinson led over half the local militia into a counter-revolutionary force for the king, and he threatened one day to fight it out. He also denounced the revolution as a Presbyterian plot. Several companies of militia in Caroline and Dorchester counties on the eastern shore laid down their arms in defiance of the revolutionary cause. The colony of Delaware almost wholly on the Chesapeake Peninsula, was riddled with Tory sentiment. By the spring of 1776, 1,000 Tories were under arms in Sussex County in the south, and in northern Newcastle County, British ships on the Delaware River were regularly furnished supplies by the inhabitants. Volume 4, Chapter 17, Virginia Battles Lord Dunmore Virginia had only a few thousand Tories at most, but they were concentrated in a few strategic areas. Aided by Lord Dunmore, the highly energetic royal governor, they gave the American rebels a good deal of trouble. Apart from the Tory predominance on the eastern shore, the Loyalists were concentrated among the Scottish merchants in Virginia's commercial city of Norfolk and on the extreme northwestern frontier around Pittsburgh. After the rejection by the Virginia Assembly of Lord North's conciliation scheme in June 1775, Dunmore fled with over a hundred British regulars to a British ship in the harbor of congenial Norfolk. 
Toryism was strong, though not predominant, on the American frontiers, undoubtedly in part because of a suspicion that the American governments might not be able or eager to supply armed forces to push back the Indians. Toryism on the Virginia frontier was concentrated around Pittsburgh, now in Pennsylvania, near where Fort Pitt had been dismantled three years before. Under Dunmore, Virginia, during 1773 and 1774, had aggressively expanded its territory. Dunmore had seized control of the Pittsburgh region, arresting and expelling Pennsylvania officials and creating a new West Augusta County there for Virginia. Furthermore, in Dunmore's war, the governor had defied the proclamation line of 1763 and had driven the Shawnee Indians out of Kentucky. When the Revolutionary War began, John Connolly, a physician, Tory militia official, and faithful ally of Dunmore and Britain, conceived an audacious plan. Visiting Dunmore on his ship during August 1775, Connolly brought with him a pledge of loyalty to Dunmore and the Crown from several hundred inhabitants of West Augusta County, including the Indian traders Alexander McKee and Simon Gertie. More important, Dunmore and Connolly agreed to the latter's scheme, the Connolly Plot, in which Dunmore would raise a troop of Tories in the east, while Connolly, made a lieutenant colonel, would winter at the British fort of Detroit, where Connolly would form a regiment of British regulars and Tory militia into the Royal Foresters, after which he and McKee, with a troop of Indians, would march up the Ohio and seize Pittsburgh. Dunmore would march west and Connolly east, perhaps enlisting oppressed indentured servants as he went to meet at Alexandria in northern Virginia, cutting the American colonies in two. In early October, a peace conference at Pittsburgh between Indians and the representatives of Virginia and Pennsylvania had resulted in an agreement that provided for Indian neutrality in exchange for an American pledge to maintain the proclamation line of 1763 as the limit of Western settlement. This agreement defied the fact that the line had already been rendered de facto obsolete by the white victory of Dunmore's war over the Shawnees and by the subsequent beginning of the settlement of Kentucky. McKee and Connolly were agreeable to this arrangement as a short-term tactic until their proposed campaign could begin. It was an ambitious and undeniably unworkable scheme, but at any rate, it never had a chance, as Connolly and two aides were arrested shortly afterward by alert militia at Frederick, Maryland. Connolly was brought before the Continental Congress for trial and promptly imprisoned. As for McKee, he was soon confined to Pittsburgh by the local Committee of Correspondence, headed by George Crogan, for corresponding with an official of the British Army. The collapse of the Connolly plot left Lord Dunmore with his forces based upon the sea. For the first time in the war, the British now found themselves a small armed force facing a large, unorganized, 
hostile population. Except for the initial shock at Concord, the British forces had encountered regular American armies, as at Boston, or fought in friendly or neutral territory in Canada. But now Lord Dunmore was facing the essence of counter-revolutionary warfare, since it is waged by relatively small, though heavily armed, forces of the government or its supporters against the mass of the civilian population, counter-revolutionary warfare must needs be mobile, swift, and devoted to hit-and-run raiding. Even so, it is a grave mistake made by many analysts and historians to confuse this kind of raiding with true guerrilla warfare. Guerrilla warfare must rest on the active support of the bulk of the populace. The guerrilla troop is the armed spearhead of the revolutionary masses. Its fire is directed in pinpoint fashion against government troops and installations, and sometimes against their relatively few allies and sympathizers. Its aim is to dislodge the rulers from the backs of the people. Its long-run chances of victory are excellent. But counter-revolutionary raiding is necessarily conducted in wild and haphazard fashion by an armed minority against the bulk of the people. Its aim is not simply to dislodge a ruling group, but to spread terror among the people, to injure, harass, and disrupt the economy. Its long-run chances of victory are slight. The strategies proper to the two types of warfare reinforce these differences. The more scrupulously the guerrillas refrain from harming the civilian population, the more solemnly and securely the populace will support them, while the more vigorous the counter-revolutionary terror raids, the more bitterly hostile will the populace become. Short-term successes for guerrillas therefore promote victory in the long run. Short-term gains for counter-revolutionary bands anger the people still further and ensure long-run defeat. It was this sort of harassing force that Lord Dunmore established on the Virginia coast. Dunmore began in June 1775 with 100 regulars and a few ships anchored off Norfolk where he was kept supplied by the preponderantly Tory town, dominated by Scots merchants and their factors and clerks. When, in early October, Dunmore was angered by rebel newspapers in Norfolk, he sent a detachment of soldiers ashore to seize the press and paper, as well as the persons of two of the printers. The local militia was called out to stop the outrage, but the apathetic militiamen failed to lift a finger to protect the printers. The mayor and aldermen of Norfolk sent the governor a feeble pro forma protest. So mild, indeed, was Norfolk's indignation that shortly afterward a town meeting invited Dunmore to occupy the town. The Virginia rebels decided to take action against renegade Norfolk, and soon 300 local militia of adjoining Norfolk and Princess Anne counties met at Kempsville in Princess Anne. Dunmore, adding some Negroes and Scottish clerks to his force, marched against the rebels. The Americans skillfully trapped him in an ambush, but they fled in panic at the sight of the British. 
Greatly emboldened by his victory, Dunmore proclaimed martial law on November 7 and set up the king's standard for the colony. In a few days, 300 citizens took an oath of allegiance to the crown at Kempsville, as did 500 more at Norfolk. Soon 3,000 took the oath in Princess Anne, Norfolk, and Nansamand counties. The inhabitants of Princess Anne, pledging themselves to support Dunmore, end the crown to the last drop of their blood. On November 17, with imagination and daring lacking in his fellow British commanders, Lord Dunmore decided to exacerbate the contradictions in American society by offering freedom to any Negro slaves who would join his armed forces, thereby permanently enraging the conservative slaveholding Virginia planters, who would probably not have supported the British in any case. Soon he was able to organize two regiments of Tory militia, the Queen's own loyal Virginia Regiment and the Ethiopian Regiment composed of runaway slaves. The Conservative Committee of Safety, leading the rebel cause at Williamsburg, was now finally forced to act, sending two regiments of militia against Norfolk with the aid of a regiment of North Carolina militia. The rebels, over 900 men, led by Colonel William Woodford, faced Dunmore's 500 at Great Bridge near Norfolk on December 11, 1775. Dunmore, in the foolish European manner exemplified by Howe at Bunker Hill, chose to make a direct, massed frontal assault on the entrenched rebel positions. Rebel musket and rifle fire thoroughly smashed the British as they came forward, and the British suffered 60 casualties while only one rebel was wounded. Dunmore, decisively defeated, fell back to his ships, and Norfolk was recaptured by the rebel forces. The Virginia Army, on occupying the Norfolk area, recommended that the entire population of the region be forcibly removed to the interior to prevent any trade or intercourse with Dunmore's ships. While this recommendation was never really put into effect, a reign of terror was launched against the Tories in the area. Their homes destroyed and plantations seized, the bulk of them fled the colony. Some went to Scotland others to England and the West Indies. Many joined the British Army in Boston. The Tories were angered at being so callously abandoned by Lord Dunmore, who paid little attention to them, and treated even those who fled to his ship with scant consideration. The case of the Sproul family is a particularly poignant one. One of the wealthiest men in Virginia, and for several decades president of the Court of Virginia Merchants, the ardently Tory Andrew Sproul fled to Dunmore's ship as the rebels entered Norfolk. The revolutionaries destroyed his urban properties and confiscated his plantation. This was too much for old Sproul, who died soon after. His wife, Catherine, also on Dunmore's ship, obtained permission from Dunmore to visit her son, imprisoned as a Tory in a North Carolina jail. When she landed, the Williamsburg Committee of Safety refused to allow her the visit and sent her back. But now Dunmore cruelly refused to let her board the vessel. 
boot it back and forth between the two sides and not allowed a resting place, she was finally able to obtain passage to Scotland. She was placed on a modest British pension list, but was arbitrarily cut off by Lord Dunmore while her Virginia plantations were sequestered and sold by the Virginia government. On New Year's Day, Dunmore received well over a hundred regulars and much arms from Boston and St. Augustine. Emboldened by the reinforcements, he promptly shelled Norfolk, deliberately firing warehouses on the docks used for cover by the rebel forces. The revolutionaries used this incident as a convenient cover for brutally putting a large portion of Tory Norfolk to the torch. It is estimated that Dunmore's naval fire that day destroyed 50 houses valued at over 3,600 pounds sterling, but that the rebels deliberately destroyed nearly 900 houses valued at over 110,000 pounds sterling. In February, the ruling Virginia Convention made it official. At its order, the rest of Norfolk, over 400 houses, was deliberately and savagely burned to prevent Dunmore from ever again using it as a base. Thus did these moderate revolutionaries in a consensus America pass a harsh collective sentence upon the people of Norfolk. Yet, in the propaganda war, the rebels were able to lay the blame for the burning of the city upon Dunmore, who, the previous October, had desperately but unsuccessfully tried to burn the coastal town of Hampton as punishment for the people's burning of a grounded British warship. Outside of Norfolk, the Virginia rebels tended to be more lenient, and in December 1775, the Virginia Assembly offered pardon from arrest and confiscation if the Tories would take an oath of allegiance to the new Virginia government. However, enforcement often differed in accordance with race. Thus, in May 1776, 13 whites and 12 Negroes were arrested for Tory activity and sent to Williamsburg for trial. The Virginia Convention tried the cases in June. The Negroes were sent to forced labor in Virginia's lead mines, while the whites were either freed or given parole. Ousted from Miss Norfolk base and failing to rouse the West, Dunmore intensified his plunder and terror raids up and down Chesapeake Bay and along the Virginia coast. He ardently intercepted shipping, seized tobacco, and burned plantations, and many Negroes seized the opportunity to supply the British and to join Dunmore's forces, naturally enraging still further even the most conservative planters. All in all, nearly 2,000 Negroes ran away to join his fleet, even though only the Negro soldiers and not their families had been offered freedom. The slave exodus from coastal Warwick and Northampton counties was particularly heavy, but a severe smallpox epidemic decimated their ranks and ruined their potential effectiveness. His troops thus ravaged and his supplies running low, Dunmore decided in the summer of 1776 to give up and join the British fleet in the north. 
Several hundred of the healthiest remaining Negroes were taken north with the fleet, but Dunmore perfidiously shipped many others into slavery in Florida and the West Indies. Volume 4, Chapter 18, Battling Tories in the South North Carolina confronted concentrations of Tories among Highland Scots in the Wilmington-Fayetteville area, who owed their land to the Crown's largesse and who included a number of retired British Army officers. There were also strong but not dominant clusters of Tories in the back country. Perhaps fully half of the North Carolina population was Tory or at least lukewarm to the rebel cause. Furthermore, fear of Negro uprisings aiding the British led the North Carolina Provincial Congress in the spring of 1776 to urge all slave owners on the south side of the Cape Fear River to remove far into the interior all slaves capable of bearing arms for the British. In Wilmington, Negroes began to escape in droves into the woods, and whites enforced a nine o'clock curfew on them. In January 1776, Josiah Martin, the royal governor of North Carolina who had fled to a British warship, decided to mobilize the Tories of the province, over-optimistically expecting 9,000 Tories to rise in arms Martin urged the Highlanders and all other Tories to rally in arms for the king and march to the sea to join him and expected reinforcements from Great Britain. Soon, 1,600 Tories gathered under the veteran British General Donald MacDonald at Cross Creek, now Fayetteville. The Tory response was weakened, however, by the failure of Governor Martin to sail his ship past enemy fire to arrive at the Cross Creek Rendezvous. Reaching Moore's Creek Bridge near Wilmington on February 27, the Tories encountered a smaller force of 1,000 militiamen under Colonels Richard Caswell and John Lillington. The Americans held strongly entrenched positions, but in the absence of the ailing MacDonald, the new commander, the young and reckless Colonel Donald MacLeod, was able to override the advice of older officers. Once again, as in Virginia, the Tories hurled themselves heedlessly, but in orthodox fashion, against entrenched rebel positions, and were crushed even more effectively than at Great Bridge. The Tories suffered 30 casualties, whereas the revolutionaries enjoyed the incredible casualty rate of none killed and only two slightly wounded. The surviving Tories fled inland, pursued by relentless bands of American rebels who captured no fewer than 850 of the enemy. Among the killed were Colonel MacLeod and among the captured General MacDonald and the political leader of the Highland Scots, Major Allen MacDonald. Armed Toryism in North Carolina had suffered a crippling blow. After commiserating with their families and pledging them its protection, the North Carolina Provincial Congress decided to disperse the hundreds of captured Tories to all the provinces so as to guard against their pernicious influence. The rank-and-file prisoners were shipped to Maryland and Virginia, the leaders to remote Philadelphia. The people of North Carolina were solemnly warned that the treatment meted out to the prisoners would largely depend on the good behavior 
of the remaining Tories of the province. The year before, during the summer and fall of 1775, the English government had worked out a plausible plan. British troops would invade the South from the sea, and the charismatic presence of the Redcoats would inspire Tory risings by the Highland Scots and other loyalists to follow the royal governors Dunmore and Martin. British troops were to embark from Ireland to be led by General Clinton, who would join the expedition at Boston. However, bureaucratic bumbling and adverse weather delayed the expedition until April 1776, by which time Dunmore had been routed off the continent and Martin's premature Tory uprising crushed. When Clinton arrived near the Cape Fear River in mid-April, he was forced to abandon his projected invasion of the South. Tory disaffection was even stronger in South Carolina than in its northern neighbor, for there both British support and neutralism abounded among low country merchants and planters, as well as the backcountry frontiersmen. The revolutionist low country planters were in constant fear of pro-British insurrections by the numerous Negro slaves, and a Negro named Jerry was executed in the summer of 1775 for saying he would help pilot British warships into Charleston. Furthermore, John Stewart, the British Indian agent in the South, was plotting to raise the powerful Cherokee tribe in attack against the frontier settlements. This build-up was originally part of General Gage's plan for a concerted Indian attack on the entire American frontier, but the arrest of Conley in Virginia and McKee in Pittsburgh in October 1775 and the disarming of Johnson in New York in January 1776 wrecked that plan. Even so, Stuart and the Cherokees were still all too dangerous. Despite the great potential of Tory strength in South Carolina, lack of intelligent organization crippled its impact. In particular, the royal governor, Lord Campbell, instead of going to the back country to rouse his supporters, chose to conduct operations from British warships in Charleston Harbor. Seizing the opportunity presented by Campbell's caution, the rebels of Charleston sent their leader, William Henry Drayton, and the Reverend William Tennant, Charleston's leading Presbyterian minister, to the back country in August 1775 to organize the rebel forces there. By September, two large contending back country forces had gathered at 96, 1,000 rebel militiamen under Drayton, confronting a larger Tory force under Colonel Thomas Fletchell. Remarkably, Drayton and Tennant managed to sweet-talk Fletchell into signing a Treaty of Neutrality and to disband. The treaty pledged the neutrality of Fletchell and his men and even partially acknowledged the authority of the South Carolina Provincial Congress. Soon, however, the Tories rose again, led this time by Robert Cunningham. Over 1,800 of them gathered at 96 where in mid-November they unsuccessfully attacked a fort manned by one-third of their number. In the meanwhile, the South Carolina Council of Safety, the arm of the Provincial Congress entrusted with executive powers, decided to crush the Tories post-haste. 
and sent Colonel Richard Richardson to do the job. Richardson sped westward, collecting revolutionary militia from both North and South Carolina as he went. By late November, he had amassed over 4,000 men. Richardson's force crushed all Tory resistance before it, and hundreds of Tories were disarmed and compelled to pledge peaceful behavior in the future. An amnesty the following March completed the rout of the South Carolina loyalist. South Carolina, any more than its sister province to the north, could not now lend Tory assistance to an invasion by General Clinton. In Georgia, which had been the colony least enthusiastic for the opposition to Great Britain, armed Tory resistance was at first avoided by the very mildness of the Whig response to the revolution. Indeed, only the rebel enclave of St. John's sent a delegate to the Second Continental Congress. The opening of hostilities at Lexington and Concord, however, coupled with the angry boycott of Georgia by the other colonies, could only push Georgian opinion into a more active course. The development also advanced the fortunes of the Liberty Boys, who, on hearing the news, broke into the public powder magazine. Realizing that Governor James Wright's power could only be nullified and eliminated by force, the Liberty Boys organized an effective Savannah mob, headed by young Joseph Habersham, son of the president of the Georgia Council. This spearhead of the Liberty militants in the province consisted of a cross-section of the town's activists, aristocrats, laborers, and town rowdies alike. The blows of the mob soon wrecked the authority and morale of the royal government, and Governor Wright soon saw that his cause was lost. This was no longer his snug Tory Georgia. This campaign was capped in early July 1775 by Habersham and others openly and boldly carrying off the government's store of munitions. On June 13, several hundred Liberty Boys assembled at Savannah, put up a Liberty Tree, established a Savannah Committee to enforce the Continental Association, which Georgia had never joined, and called a Provincial Congress for the following month. This Congress, meeting on July 4, ratified the program and circulated a defense association around Savannah. The Congress became the de facto legislature of the colony and a council of safety its chosen executive. The joining of the other American colonies in revolt was particularly symbolized by George's finally choosing a full slate of delegates to the Continental Congress. Soon the Provincial Congress took over rule of the militia and the courts in Georgia. Thus, the Georgia rebels were fully occupied during 1775 with catching up to the other American colonies. In mid-January, British warships appeared at the mouth of the Savannah River to aid Governor Wright, who had been shorn of all authority by the rebel Provincial Congress. The Council of Safety promptly decided to seize Wright and other officials to prevent them from rallying the Georgia Tories. He was arrested by Habersham, but a few weeks later he escaped to flee to a British warship. Georgia Toryism, like its counterparts in the other southern provinces, had been outmaneuvered and effectively suppressed. Volume 4, Part 3 
The War in the First Half of 1776, Volume 4, Chapter 19, The British Assault on Charleston. Bereft of hope for loyalist aid in the South and ordered to return north in a short while, General Clinton still had his powerful expeditionary force, and there was no point in not using it. He decided, not unexpectedly, to attack and seize the key southern port of Charleston, or at least Fort Sullivan in its harbor, which the British could then use as a firm base for invasion of the entire Southland. Aided by General Charles Lord Cornwallis, over three thousand regulars and a strong fleet of over fifty warships under Commodore Sir Peter Parker, Clinton sailed against Charleston to assault it by land and by sea. The American leadership knew that General Charles Lee was perhaps the only man who could save Charleston. Indeed, Lee was in urgent demand everywhere. As John Adams wrote to him, "We want you at New York. We want you at Cambridge. We want you in Virginia." George Washington wanted him in New York to counter the expected transfer there of the main British force from Boston. As Washington, later to be Lee's mortal enemy, wrote to his brother at the time, "He, Lee, is the first officer in military knowledge and experience we have in the whole army." If he could have been spared, Lee probably would have been chosen to lead the ill-starred campaign against Canada. As it was, both the dashing General Richard Montgomery, an old friend of Lee's, and after Montgomery's death, Benedict Arnold repeatedly urged that Lee be placed in supreme command over them. Now, in mid-February 1776, Congress unanimously decided to send him to Canada. To save the campaign, and such leaders as John Adams and Franklin and the unpredictable Hancock sent him glowing and optimistic letters of congratulation. But no sooner had he accepted the post and asked as his assistants for either General John Sullivan or the able young General Nathaniel Greene, an admirer of Lee who had served under him at Boston, then Congress changed its mind. The Southern leaders were now beginning to dread a British attack on the South, so at the end of February, the Southern members persuaded Congress to name Lee head of a newly established Southern military department, covering Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia. Lee hastily left New York, where he'd been cowing the Tories and strengthening defenses to assume his Southern military post, virtually independent of Washington. Indeed, with the imminent retirement of aging Artemis Ward, Lee was soon to be the second-ranking general in the Continental Army. Taking up his post at Williamsburg at the end of March, Lee, inveterate scourge of the Tories, was horrified to find Maryland's royal governor Robert Eden basking unmolested in wide personal popularity. Learning from captured dispatches that Eden intended to help a British invasion of the South, Lee urged Maryland to arrest him. When Maryland's newly constituted rebel authorities refused, Lee, with the support of the Virginia Council of Safety, boldly went over their heads to appeal for Eden's arrest to Samuel Perviance, 
chairman of the Baltimore Committee of Safety. Purviance and the Baltimore Committee readily agreed and sent a small troop to the capital at Annapolis to arrest Eden. The angry conservatives of the Maryland Council of Safety at Annapolis prevented Purviance and his men from fulfilling their task and issued condemnations of the actions of the Baltimore Committee. The Council of Safety would do no more than place Eden on parole, and even an order of the Continental Congress could not persuade the Council to place him under arrest. Instead, in June, the Maryland Convention peacefully suggested that Eden leave for England, allowing him to depart unsearched and unseized. Soon after his arrival, Lee learned of Clinton's projected invasion of North Carolina from captured documents and swiftly organized defenses and armed forces in the South. The Tories having been crushed in North Carolina, it was clear to him that Clinton would soon strike in force either at South Carolina or Virginia. When Clinton appeared off North Carolina in early May, Lee moved his 1,300 Virginia troops south to New Bern, slowly, so as not to be committed erroneously to a South Carolina theater of war while neglecting Virginia. By the beginning of June, Lee had learned that the British were probably sailing to Charleston, and he rushed down to the defense of that city in a battle that would decide the fate of the South for several years at the least. Both the Americans and the British fleet arrived at Charleston in early June 1776. Lee found the defenses at Charleston hopelessly inadequate. President John Rutledge of South Carolina's rebel government, in charge of the South Carolina militia, refused to abandon Fort Sullivan on Sullivan's Island in Charleston Harbor, which Lee found to be in an exposed and unsound position. Fortunately, however, bad weather and harbor conditions delayed the British attack for several weeks, allowing Lee to shore up the defenses of the fort and Charleston Harbor with great energy. On June 28, the British fleet attacked, but clumsy piloting ran several of their frigates aground. The gallant band at the fort under Colonel William Moultrie were almost miraculously able to outgun and batter the vaunted British fleet, even though they were badly short of ammunition and there were very few American casualties. After a few weeks of hesitation, the British abandoned their plans and sailed north. Lee, Moultrie, and their heroic men at Fort Sullivan had saved Charleston, and with it, much of the South. Paul Smith, in opposition to other historians, makes a quite unconvincing case for deprecating the importance of the Battle of Sullivan's Island. Volume 4, Chapter 20, Forcing the British Out of Boston The securing of the South was not the only decisive military victory gained by the American revolutionaries in first half of 1776. Another was the forced evacuation of Boston by the British. It is true that the British were contemplating an eventual shift of their base from Boston to New York where Tories and provisions would be plentiful and the inner parts of the colonies accessible to attack. But the British were driven out much sooner than they had planned. The idle siege army in front of Boston had its troubles, 
and the end of 1775 saw a huge turnover, as enlistment terms were up and new enlistments were secured. It was clear to the Americans that Boston could only be taken if the great guns that had been captured at Ticonderoga could be brought to bear. But how to transport them overland across the ice and the steep New England hills? The answer was supplied by young Boston bookseller and amateur student of military engineering, Colonel Henry Knox, head of the American Army Artillery. Asking Washington to be sent to transport the guns, Knox arrived at Ticonderoga in early December. He conceived a fantastically ambitious plan of dragging 16 big cannon, howitzers, and mortars, weighing over 120 tons in all, on 43 sledges over 300 miles of snow and ice. The sledges had to be constructed and then dragged by eight yoke of oxen, slowly driven by whips. Whenever a big cannon broke through and sank beneath the ice, it was laboriously hauled up again. Knox finally completed the journey of his wondrous caravan in early February. It was a remarkable achievement, a feat at which soldiers and engineers still marvel. Now that the Continental Army had the guns, Washington, ever eager for military glory in the classical European manner and drastically underestimating the number of British troops, proposed a direct frontal assault upon Boston. On three previous occasions, without the guns, he had impatiently urged such an attack, and each time had been opposed by unanimous war council of his generals. The council of war again demurred, and General Ward sagely proposed to place the guns upon the unaccountably still unoccupied Dorchester Heights, commanding Boston to the south, just as Breed's Hill and Bunker Hill commanded it to the north. Washington grudgingly accepted the plan, which was agreed to by all the generals. The American army, given something sensible to do for the first time since Bunker Hill, worked with renewed enthusiasm. The operation began on the night of March 2, 1776, with three nights of cannonading from the northwest, diverting British attention from Dorchester Heights. On the night of March 4, under cover of the bombardment, General John Thomas took 2,000 men and 360 carts and with splendid efficiency constructed two forts on Dorchester Heights. The Americans could perform this remarkable feat of constructing the entire works in one night by using a novel plan suggested by Colonel Rufus Putnam employing frames on top of the ground that required little digging in the frozen earth. The British awoke on the morning of March 5 to look up in amazement at the American heavy guns on the heights. General Howe sadly remarked that the rebels have done more in one night than my whole army could do in months. As at Bunker, he decided on March 7 to give up and evacuate for it was not safe for the British fleet to remain in the harbor under the guns of Dorchester. He had planned to move at his own will to New York, but was now forced to move to Halifax, a military base unquestionably safe for the British to await the arrival of supplies. 
the understandably fearful citizens of Boston soon obtained a promise from Howe that he would not burn the city if Americans would allow his troops to embark in peace and without bombardment. Washington took no official notice of the promise when it was conveyed to him, but he abided by its terms, and Boston was spared much devastation and bloodshed. Finally, Howe and the British troops, carrying with them no fewer than 1,000 Tories in flight, embarked on March 17 in a mighty armada of over 170 ships, soon setting sail for Halifax. It was truly a great victory. Boston, the spearhead of the revolution, the focal point of British military oppression, had at last been liberated. And in their hasty flight, the British had been forced to leave behind them an enormous amount of supplies and military equipment. As the Duke of Manchester was soon to declare in the House of Lords, let this transaction be dressed in what garb you please. The fact remains that the army, which was sent to reduce the province of Massachusetts Bay, has been driven from the capital, and the standard of the provincial army now waves in triumph over the walls of Boston. Volume 4, Chapter 21, Privateering and the War at Sea It was clear to all that, militarily, the Americans were most vulnerable at sea, where Britain ruled the waves, and no American population lived to support armed operations. We have seen how Lord Dunmore was able to use the ocean with impunity as his base from which to raid and plunder the American coast, and the entire coastline lay open to raids of this sort. Soon after the outbreak of war, the separate colonies began to try to defend themselves at sea. The first to react was Rhode Island, which chartered two vessels in June 1775 to try to save Newport and the coast from the depredations of the British fleet. Massachusetts and Connecticut soon followed with two ships each, and in mid-July, Congress correctly, but not very hopefully, urged each colony to defend its coastal areas. It soon became evident that American ships might accomplish more by taking the offensive, particularly in harassing the British supply lines to the Army at Boston. At the end of June, Rhode Island again took the lead. Its radical governor, Nicholas Cook, urged just one swift armed ship to seize arms and supplies. Washington took the hint and, despite lack of congressional authorization, appointed shipmaster Nicholas Broughton, a captain in the Army, and presented him with a schooner for that purpose. Broughton's successes led to more of the same, and soon Congress began to give its tentative support. By the end of October, the Continental Fleet consisted of six schooners, which acquitted themselves ably against the British. Particularly successful was Captain John Manley of the Lee, who cheered the Americans greatly by capturing several military ships filled with supplies and ammunition. In addition to the schooners, the Americans around Boston organized a fleet of 300 private whaleboats, which conducted guerrilla-type night raids on the British lighthouses and other installations in Boston Harbor. 
Nettled by his utter inability to cope with the American schooners and night raiders, Admiral Samuel Graves, commander of the British fleet at Boston, decided to punish the Americans collectively in their ports and harbors. In early October 1775, Graves sent out Captain Henry Mowat with two schooners and nearly 200 men on a savage. Terror raid of the coast north of Boston. He was ordered to burn, destroy, and lay waste every seaport town north to Maine, and to destroy all the shipping at their harbors. Specifically, he was to concentrate on burning to the ground the two port towns of Gloucester and Falmouth, now Portland, Maine, whose people, according to Admiral Lord Howe, were distinguished for their opposition to government. Finding it impractical to destroy Gloucester, Mowat entered Falmouth on the October 16. Giving the townspeople one day to evacuate, he shelled and fired the town until its over 200 houses, 11 ships, and wharves and warehouses were completely burned. The wanton destruction of Falmouth spurred Congress into action. By December, prodded by John Adams. It was ready to create officially a small marine corps and a continental fleet of four vessels to name its officers and to establish for its supervision what would become the Marine Committee. As commodore and commander of the little fleet, Congress selected the veteran General Isaac Hopkins, until then head of the armed forces of Rhode Island. By the following spring, the Continental Navy was ready for offensive exploits in the British West Indies. Commodore Hopkins' first operation was to raid Nassau on March 3, 1776, and to seize large stores of British gunpowder. Bermuda also proved a good source of enemy powder. Such large-scale raids were exceptions, however, and usually the tiny Continental Navy was confined to forays by individual ships. As we have seen in the case of the whaleboats around Boston, the great many privateers were far more important than the governmental fleet. As their name implies, these ships were wholly private in ownership and operation. An old tradition of private armed merchantmen preying on enemy shipping during wars, privateering had reached a peak during the 18th century, and in America particularly during the Seven Years' War. As the Revolutionary War began, many hundreds of ships took to seizing supplies and arms by capturing British vessels. New England, particularly Massachusetts. Its fishing and carrying trades ruined by the war and by British control of the northern fishing banks was an especially successful center of privateering, as were Philadelphia and Baltimore. The inlet of Little Egg Harbor on the New Jersey coast was a particularly attractive haven for privateer vessels. Privateering flourished especially during 1775 and 1776. And it has been estimated that as many as two thousand ships sailed against the British. During 1776, half the Jamaica fleet was captured by American privateers, along with large quantities of ammunition and military supplies. In that year, the British lost several hundred vessels to privateers, with ships and cargo 
worth over one million pounds sterling, a figure exclusive of government transports and storeships. Privateering was not only a very effective means of naval warfare, it was a far less costly and a far more libertarian method than building a government navy. Reliance on privateers saved enormous sums and the time necessary to build new ships, since existing merchant ships were used. Moreover, it saved the taxpayers, including inflation payers, the expense of construction and operation. As in all private operations, the costs were borne only by those who assumed the risks, and their rewards were strictly proportionate to their successes. And the war effort also benefited Pari Passu with the successes of the privateers. Even Washington saw this, and when he created his small fleet in the autumn of 1775, he tried to approximate privateering conditions by granting to the seamen on each ship one-third to one-half of the proceeds from the vessels they captured, about the same incentive pay received by the crews of privateers. Not the least important advantage of privateers was the fact that they automatically disappear with the arrival of peace and convert to peaceful uses. The public would not then be saddled with the burdens, bureaucracy, potential tyranny, and the nuclei for the fomenting of future wars that are inherent in a governmental navy. Where in all this was the vaunted British Navy? Fortunately for the American cause, the overconfident British did not bother to launch a serious naval effort against the rebels, and no attempt was made to blockade the American coast. In these critical first years of the war, only a few British warships were stationed in American waters, and the British did not bother to provide armed convoys to their merchant shipping on the Atlantic. During 1775, the privateers proceeded happily, even though unauthorized by the governmental authority. In November, Massachusetts authorized the issue of official letters of mark and reprisal to privateers, and other colonies followed suit. The harsh British Prohibitory Act of late December 1775, denouncing the Americans as traitors and rebels, prohibiting all ships from trading with any part of the 13 colonies, and subjecting all American and foreign ships trading with them to seizure and confiscation, became known to the Americans by the end of February 1776. The Prohibitory Act spurred the Continental Congress to take further bold measures against Great Britain. In March, Congress officially authorized privateers, providing them with Continental letters of mark and reprisal. Volume 4, Chapter 22, Commodities, Manufacturing, and Foreign Trade Before the war, Great Britain had been the principal exporter to and importer from the American colonies. America had been particularly dependent upon Britain for supplies of high-grade manufactured goods, including textiles and ammunition. Now the outbreak of war suddenly cut off these supplies, necessary for the American economy and, more acutely, for the American army. 
The total imports from England to the American colonies were 2.6 million pounds sterling in 1774, plummeting to less than 200,000 pounds sterling in 1775, and 50,000 pounds sterling the following year. Apart from privateering, the Americans would have to make up the gap by shifting to other sources of trade. The major obstacle to this vital shift in trade patterns faced by the Americans was, paradoxically enough, self-imposed. The Continental Association, an intelligent method of putting pressure on England before Lexington and Concord, was now simply a destructive, self-imposed barrier on importing supplies. The pressure policy had failed, war had begun, and now the desideratum was to obtain supplies. Already in July 1775, John Adams, Richard Henry Lee, and other radical delegates to the Congress had recommended that American ports be thrown open to all countries except Great Britain. Throwing American ports open to imports from all other nations, however, would mean open and outright defiance of the time-honored Navigation Acts, and hence a long step toward outright proclamation of independence from Britain, a step which the conservative and timorous in the colonies were not yet prepared to take. Despite the drastic change of conditions, the American rebels, suffering from a cultural lag, continued to enforce even the non-importation provisions of the Continental Association. And Congress, in effect, reaffirmed the association in May and July of 1775. By mid-July, rationality began to break through, and Congress authorized, for a period of nine months, the importation of munitions from anywhere in exchange for American produce, the Continental Association notwithstanding. Merchants were specially licensed by the Congress to receive these imports. So shamefaced were the delegates about this arrangement that it was not revealed to the public until late October. American foreign trade had been further gravely crippled by the approach of the date set by the Continental Association for non-exportation, September 10, and by its zealous enforcement by the local committees of safety. At the end of October, further breaches were made by Congress's recommendation to the provincial governments and to its own newly created secret committee to license ships to export produce to the West Indies in exchange for munitions. Moreover, export of food to Bermuda in exchange for salt and munitions was now officially allowed. It also began to dawn on some colonists that Britain's exemption of four of the less revolutionary colonies—New York, Delaware, North Carolina, Georgia—after April 1775 was now a boon rather than a bane. The conservative Whig Thomas Willing of Pennsylvania, a merchant and shipowner, argued in October that it was absurd to act like the dog in the manger. Not suffer the four colonies to export because we can't. We may get salt and ammunition by those ports, but on November one, Congress decided not 
to allow this major breach. And by the end of 1775, this particular matter had become academic as a result of Britain's anathematizing all American trade with the Prohibitory Act. November 1, indeed, was a black day for rationality as well as for the Revolutionary War effort, for Congress staunchly reaffirmed the Non-Importation Pact, with the exception of the specifically licensed shipments for munitions. Those aptly called fools by Adams in July had prevailed then, and they tightened their grip in November. Non-exportation would expire on March 1, 1776, and this fact, as well as the increasing strangulation of foreign trade, reopened the debate on open or closed ports at the beginning of that year. This time, Willing, eager enough to import goods into American ports, was hardly eager to throw open American importation to the ships of all nations. Typically, the conservative faction in Congress chose to place protection of the state-granted privileges above success for the Revolutionary War effort. Thomas Johnson of Maryland wailed that the merchants and shipbuilders would suffer if foreign nations enjoyed the carrying trade to America. Samuel Chase of Maryland and John Yockham Zubley of Georgia opined that opening of the ports smacked too much of American independence. Spearheading the fight for free trade with the rest of the world were the radicals, Richard Henry Lee and George Wythe of Virginia, Christopher Gadsden of South Carolina, and John and Sam Adams of Massachusetts. They pointed to the growing scarcity of goods and the consequent distresses of the poor. They also shrewdly noted that admitting the ships of foreign nations would be likely to bring in its wake foreign warships to protect the merchant vessels, thus aiding in the American struggle against the British Navy. The Virginia Provincial Convention urged Congress to open the ports, as did the Philadelphia Committee of Inspection. The British Prohibitory Act proved to be the decisive means of radicalizing Congress on this issue, and on April 6, they provided that imports and exports of all goods to and from all parts of the world, except Great Britain and her possessions, would henceforth be free. The onerous acts of trade and navigation were at last no more, and Sam Adams exulted that we have torn into shivers their acts of trade by allowing commerce, subject to regulation, to be made by ourselves with the people of all countries. Here was a momentous step indeed toward American independence from Great Britain. Although the restrictions of the Continental Association on Trade with Britain remained, the freeing of all other trade greatly reduced their crippling impact, and they were soon relaxed still further. One of the most onerous provisions of the Association, in effect since March 1, 1775, imposed total non-consumption of tea. Zealous enforcement by local radical committees understandably alienated many citizens from the radical cause. Also understandably, merchants put pressure on Congress to relax what had now become absurd as well as tyrannical regulation. Despite the opposition of Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Lynch of South Carolina, 
and Richard Henry Lee, Congress agreed on April 13, 1776, to permit at least the sale and consumption of all tea imported before December 1, 1774, when the non-importation clauses of the Continental Association had gone into effect. Since it was difficult to distinguish between tea imported before and after that date, this measure proved another advance toward freedom of trade. Still another important advance toward free trade was the liquidation of the economically absurd provisions of the Continental Association for fixing the prices of imported goods at their previous levels. Since the association and then the war were bound to make these goods far more scarce and therefore raise their prices, enforcement of such provisions could only lead to drastic shortages of the goods and dislocation of the economy. Shortages and dislocation later aggravated by the still higher prices necessarily brought about by the paper money inflation financing the war effort. In the North, the price regulations caused a great deal of trouble from the beginning of the non-importation, particularly in New York and Philadelphia and their tributary markets. Most foodstuffs were grown in America rather than imported and hence remained abundant during the war. The important exceptions were salt, tea, and the West Indies products, sugar, and molasses. The dearth and consequent high prices of previously abundant West Indies commodities, in contrast to the more stable prices of home products, were the particular irritants in the North and hence were the special objects of zeal in enforcement by the radical local committees. During the winter of 1775-76, the Philadelphia Committee continually harassed the merchants. In December 1775, the committee fixed detailed wholesale and retail prices for oil, following this up on March 6 with a comprehensive schedule of fixed prices for such West Indian trade products as salt, molasses, rum, coffee, cocoa, and sugar. Violators would be advertised as sordid vultures who are preying on the vitals of their country in a time of general distress. This petulant deed was quickly imitated by the New York Committee, which had previously harassed merchants for alleged overcharging in the price of pins. The Newark Committee followed with similar schedules for West Indian commodities on March 15, and other imitators were the Joint Committees of Inspection of the Towns of New London County and the Joint Committees of Hartford County, Connecticut. The New Hampshire Provincial Congress and the Providence, Rhode Island Committee also issued frequent warnings and outcries against the rise of prices. In the South, the major scarce imported commodity was salt. Salt was essential for the preservation of meat and fish, and the bulk of colonial supplies of salt had come from Turks Island in the British West Indies, now closed to American shipping. Local communities in the South, particularly in Virginia and Maryland, tried desperately and unavailingly to stop the rise in the price of salt, efforts which could only aggravate the shortage, 
People in the Virginia uplands went so far as to join in looting raids against the salt stocks of Tidewater merchants, raids which only intensified the shortage still more. Congress was finally moved at the end of December 1775 to relieve the salt shortage by opening Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina to the import of salt from any foreign country and to the export of any produce in exchange. Thus, salt, at least in the Upper South, won free trade before other commodities. Having watched the colonies struggle unavailingly against price increases for scarce commodities, Congress decided to complete its great free trade program of April 1776 by completely scrapping the price control provisions of the Continental Association. Wisely asserting that merchants should be encouraged to import from abroad by a prospect of profits proportionate to the risks incurred, Congress resolved on April 30 to end the powers of committees of observation and inspection to regulate the prices of goods. Domestic trade immediately flourished again with the sweeping away of the restrictions, and the merchants happily ignored the exemption the Congress had tried to make for green tea. The breaking of this logjam, of course, allowed prices to rise to their free market levels, thereby clearing supply and demand. Unfortunately, Congress soon partially backtracked on its free market policy, and on May 30, it advised the local committees once again to fix the price of salt. Most of the provinces and local committees were quick to adopt this advice, thereby perpetuating a salt shortage. The New Jersey Committee of Safety, on the other hand, displayed better sense. When, in various sections of the province, angry mobs formed to coerce merchants into lowering their prices, the New Jersey Committee warned the people that any forced reduction of prices would merely discourage importation and end by injuring the mass of the poor. The gravest commodity shortage for the American war effort was ammunition, especially gunpowder, the great bulk of which had formerly been imported from England. Without ammunition, of course, the war would be over promptly. The Americans made determined efforts to encourage and subsidize domestic manufacturing of powder, but with little success. America, after all, was not a manufacturing country and there was no reason why it should have been. Agriculture was its métier, and over 90% of the population lived on farms, including plantations. Cities were far more important as centers for commerce, trading in and for American agricultural products, than for manufacturing. What manufacturing took place was on a small scale indeed. There were artisans in urban centers, and the more prevalent household manufacturers, for example, of the family's chief clothing, in the rural areas. The exception to the paucity of manufacturing for the market was Philadelphia, the largest city in British America. Wood from nearby forest and hides from neighboring farms provided raw material for numerous types of manufacturing, and local iron, zinc, and copper mines supplied the material for manufacture of arms. 
Seeing that the powder shortage was critical, the Continental Congress as early as June 10, 1775, urged the provincial governments to subsidize or engage themselves in the manufacture of gunpowder. In Philadelphia and environs, with its tradition of manufacturing, six powder mills were soon producing several thousand pounds of powder a week. The Virginia Convention also passed a bill subsidizing powder mills, but with little success. Many Virginians attempted powder manufacture, but they soon found that the heavy capital requirements and costly operations forced them to abandon the field. As the powder shortage accelerated throughout the colonies and subsidized private manufacture proved hopelessly uneconomic, Virginia turned in January 1776 to consider the establishment of public powder mills at government expense. But despite the active support of the powerful John Page, the attempt was blocked by a majority of the Virginia Committee of Safety, and especially by the president of the convention, Edmund Pendleton. At any rate, it was rapidly becoming clear that domestic powder production could supply only a negligible amount of the needs of the American forces. Even Philadelphia's contribution could only be a drop in the bucket and was inferior in quality to European powder besides. In short, the great bulk of American powder still had to be imported The obvious source was the West Indies, and this meant that tobacco, the great staple demanded in Europe, would be the main source of funds to pay for the imported powder. And tobacco meant Virginia, the great center of tobacco production and export. The first attempt to expand the import of powder came in Virginia during 1775, when the merchant and planter John Goodrich was sent by the Committee of Safety to negotiate the purchase of powder in the West Indies. Goodrich, however, through no fault of his own, was soon in trouble on all sides. The British discovered his mission and arrested him, and after his release, Virginians, led by the Isle of Wight Committee of Safety, denounced him for daring to consider buying ammunition from the British West Indies. Few Americans, indeed, seemed to realize that purchase of war supplies from the British would be a boon, not a living shame for the American war effort. After all, there was no mystical taint attached to British ammunition. Goodrich, in understandable disgust at his persecution, abandoned the struggle and joined the British cause. A more successful effort to import powder came in April 1776, after the American seizure of Dorchester Heights and the British evacuation of Boston. French and Dutch merchants became far more optimistic about rebel chances and promptly began to sell a steady and abundant flow of powder to the Americans. Using the entrepot of St. Eustatius, Dutch West Indies, and Martinique, French West Indies, to exchange European gunpowder for Virginia and Maryland tobacco. Large, though necessarily sporadic, shipments of arms and ammunition also came from Spain to the back country of Virginia by way of Havana and the port of New Orleans in Spanish Louisiana. 
So abundant was the flow of imports after April 1776 that the colonies had no further worries about a shortage of gunpowder. For other types of arms and ammunition, American domestic sources were far superior. Particularly important was the rapidly growing iron industry of Pennsylvania. From producing only one-seventieth of the world's crude iron, bar and pig iron, in 1700, the American colonies produced 30,000 tons in 1775, one-seventh of the world's output and exceeding the iron production of England. Pennsylvania, with its abundance of iron ore, timber for fuel, and access to nearby markets was preeminent in iron output. Southeastern Pennsylvania had no fewer than 73 iron furnaces and forges, the largest and most numerous being in Berks County, north of the Schuylkill River. Hence, during the winter of 1775-76, Pennsylvania manufactured over 4,000 stand of arms. Other major centers of iron manufacture were in northwestern New Jersey, around Lake Hopatcong, northwestern Connecticut, around Salisbury, and northeastern Maryland, and, after 1775, in various parts of Virginia, and together they produced another 4,000 stand of arms. In contrast to the production of crude iron, the manufacture of finished iron had been restricted, though only slightly in practice, by the British Iron Act of 1750. The stimulus of war contracts, however, quickly spurred the construction of iron foundries in Massachusetts, New Jersey, Maryland, and especially in Pennsylvania. And village blacksmiths and other artisans were fully competent to turn their attention to finished iron for the war effort. The Americans also benefited from zinc deposits in northwestern New Jersey and copper mines in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Maryland. As a consequence, the Army suffered no shortage of iron, rifles, muskets, or ammunition. American cannon, however, proved far inferior to European, and the rebels quickly placed their reliance on cannon, whether iron or brass, imported from France or captured from the British. There was one vital ingredient of ammunition, however, that was short during the war, lead. So scarce was lead that as early as June 1775, the Continental Congress pleaded with the provinces to open up governmental lead mines. Several colonies tried this desperate experiment, but as might be expected, the results were failures. Yieldless mines, as in New York, or marginal mines, as in Middle Connecticut. This should have been expected, for any useful lead mines would have been discovered and exploited by private enterprise. The only workable lead mines were operating in southwestern Virginia, near what is now Austinville. By the summer of 1776, the Americans were stripping lead from clocks and windows to provide the Continental Army. Of the food products, we have seen that the major item in short supply was salt. While some salt could be imported from the West Indies, the Americans also constructed makeshift factories along the coast to make salt 
from evaporated seawater. This was a basically uneconomic process, to be sure, but was made temporarily profitable by the high price of salt caused by the scarcity of supply. Thus, when market prices were permitted to rise, the wartime shortage of salt created its own partial corrective. Also cut off by the war was a very large amount of textiles for clothing imported from Great Britain, but this drastic cut was nearly compensated by large increases in household manufactures of homespun cloth, as well as by seizures by privateers. In New England and the Middle Provinces, farmers, with ready flexibility, increased their household production of woolen and linen cloth. In the South, farmers and planters increased their output of homespun linens, cottons, and linsey woolsey and many backcountry settlers simply wore their deerskin clothing as before. Volume 4, Chapter 23, Getting Aid from France To open the ports of America, to trade for munitions, and with the West Indies, the Americans were required to take a step toward independence almost as momentous as throwing open the ports in defiance of the Navigation Acts. They had to negotiate as a separate country with the European countries supplying the munitions, especially with the major supplier, France. As early as July 1775, the Continental Congress began its first diplomatic efforts by sidestepping the British government and speaking directly to their fellow subjects. An address stating its wish for equal liberty was sent to the City of London. Appeals to the people of Canada and Jamaica to join in the colonial cause and a particularly noteworthy address sent to the people of Ireland were the first attempts to export the revolution overseas. Congress noted the grievances of the Irish under British rule and suggested that both peoples should engage in a common struggle for liberty, albeit within the framework of the British Empire. The subservient Irish Parliament, however, merrily moved to endorse the British War of Suppression against the colonies. At the same time Congress was moving toward liberty and independence, however, it was taking some steps at home toward oligarchic rule. Of necessity, it had already begun to function through various standing committees to discharge its vital responsibilities for the war effort. Generally, these functioned under the strict control of Congress itself and were always open to its guidance and supervision. But in late 1775, Congress created two secret committees, and as their name implies, they acted in secret and on their own initiative, without checking with Congress. Instead, Congress only had the power, largely unexercised, to ask for their records at its discretion. A great deal of working power was thereby put into the hands of a few men who dealt, furthermore, in the particularly sensitive area of foreign affairs. On September 18, Congress created the nine-man secret committee to handle the deals with foreign countries for munitions. On November 29, it created the five, later six, 
Man Committee of Secret Correspondence to correspond with our friends abroad. An omen for the future was the highly conservative complexion of the Committee of Secret Correspondence, consisting of John J., John Dickinson, Benjamin Harrison, and Thomas Johnson, who were arch-conservatives, and Benjamin Franklin, a thorough-going opportunist with highly conservative instincts. The establishment of this committee came as a response to the prodding by John Adams, Patrick Henry, and Samuel Chase of Maryland to open full diplomatic relations with France. Soon the two secret committees were able to work very closely and cozily together. This close working relationship was embodied in the person of the young Philadelphia merchant Robert Morris, destined to become the great Mephistophelian figure of the Revolutionary Era. At the turn of the year, he became a member of both committees. He virtually ran the Committee of Secret Correspondence himself throughout 1776 and quickly became the leading figure in the Secret Committee. He was, in fact, to serve as the second chairman of the latter committee, succeeding his friend and partner Thomas Willing of the firm of Willing & Morris. Thus catapulted to the very seat of power in the American colonies, the highly conservative Morris was able to make himself the center of a veritable plunderbund, which unabashedly and systematically looted the public purse for their private profit. One of the first deeds of the secret committee was to substitute for regular market purchases a system of contracting, the ancestor of modern cost-plus government contracts. Under this system, some favored firms were selected by the government to purchase or to produce certain goods, which the government pledges to buy at a rate that will give the merchants a guaranteed margin of profit a lucrative special privilege eagerly fought for by businessmen then and since. The secret committee established a handsome rate of profit on such mercantile purchases and often advanced the merchants the initial capital to buy the supplies. Moreover, Congress had thoughtfully allowed only merchants specifically to purchase supplies abroad, and, as we have seen, this condition obtained until April 1776. This authorization came from the secret committee, and it was soon clear enough that control of this committee was the open sesame to special privilege and high guaranteed fortunes to be made out of the revolutionary effort. Control of the committee Morris and Willing had, and they lost no time in exploiting their position. One of the very first acts of the committee was to grant heavy contracts to the firm of Willing and Morris. These commission contracts were not the only form of subsidy the company enjoyed. The committee now quickly granted it a startling contract for supplying gunpowder, guaranteeing a high, flat price of $14 a barrel, whether or not the powder reached American stores safely. This assured Willing and Morris a clear profit of $60,000 without even a fleeting risk of loss. Other members of the secret committee also came in for their share of the loot. John Langdon of New Hampshire provided contracts to his own firm. 
Philip J. Livingston routed contracts to Livingston and Turnbull of New York. Silas Dean of Connecticut furnished commissions to his brother Barnabas. But heading the associates in plunder were Willing and Morris. All in all, the secret committee paid out over two million dollars in war contracts from 1775 to 1777. And of these nearly $500,000, or one-fourth of all disbursements, went directly to the firm of Willing and Morris. Morris also directly shared with fellow members of the committee the largesse of nearly $300,000 in other contracts. Morris and Willing soon established a far-flung network of agents and followers, including leading merchants Benjamin Harrison, a member of the Committee of Secret Correspondence, and Carter Braxton, both of whom consequently received handsome contracts from the Secret Committee. Two particularly important committee agents were soon to double as congressional envoys to the French, William Bingham of Philadelphia and Silas Dean of Westfield, Connecticut. Dean was a prototype of the young lawyer with a keen eye to the main chance. He had launched his career by marrying the widow of a wealthy merchant, then capped that by divorcing her and marrying a member of the powerful Saltonstall family, thus getting himself profitably launched in Connecticut politics. Hardly had he latched onto a good thing in the operations of the secret committee, however, when the ungrateful voters of Connecticut unceremoniously turned him out of Congress in the elections of October 1775. But the lame duck congressman continued to stay in Philadelphia, knowing that he would soon be taken care of. His expectations were not to be disappointed. Great Britain, by its aggressive expansion of over two centuries, culminating in the conquest and arrogant seizure of shipping during the Seven Years' War had gravely alienated the other powers of Europe. Particularly bitter at England was France, crushed by the Pittite War and the Peace of 1763. France, of course, especially welcomed the American Revolution and its prospects of trouble and even loss of the colonies for Great Britain. A reduction in British power would benefit France and the other countries of Europe and would guard France against any possible resumption of a Carthaginian war against her by United Anglo-American Empire under another Chatham ministry. During the summer of 1775, the dashing young dramatist Caron de Beaumarchais, an agent of the French government in London, was able to make contact with many British and American radicals. On the basis of his information, he predicted turbulence in Britain and urged some understanding between France and the American revolutionaries. The shrewd French foreign minister, Comte de Vergen, thereupon sent to the American colonies a secret agent, Achard de Bon Vouloir, without making any definite commitments of French aid, Bon vouloir was to assure the Americans that France had no designs for reconquest of Canada, had nothing but admiration for the American revolutionary efforts, and would welcome American commerce in French ports. 
the Committee of Secret Correspondence had been recently established by Congress, and Bon Vouloir met privately with it to convey the French assurances to the rebels. In its turn, the committee was eager to convince the French that Congress was moving toward independence and thus spur French aid to the revolutionary cause. In early March, despite the absence of a declaration of independence, the committee decided to send a secret agent to France as its envoy to bid for French aid. This envoy was Silas Dean, who arrived at Paris in early July 1776 in the guise of a private merchant. He was able to use his crucial position in the procurement of munitions to serve also as an agent of the firm of Willing and Morris. There, Dean was able to draw many influential French financiers and officials into the Morris-Willing network. Dean and Morris employed the network to plunder public activities systematically for their private profit. In addition to granting themselves contracts, public ships and wagons were freely and abundantly used to convey their private cargoes without charge. Accounts were scarcely kept and remained virtually unsupervised, and thus Dean and Morris were able to engage in large-scale outright peculation of American funds. In 1776, on one contract alone, the government advanced Morris the large sum of $80,000 to buy goods abroad. Even though the goods were never delivered, Morris never returned the money. Furthermore, purchases on public account were given a back seat by Morris and his group in preference to their strictly private transactions. Before the dispatch of Dean, the Committee of Secret Correspondence was able to engage secret agents living abroad. The separate colonies had employed six agents in London. Of these, two were members of Parliament and hence effectively ineligible for further work. One became a Tory, actively serving the British cause, one resigned, and one, Franklin, had been forced to return home. This left the learned Massachusetts radical author Lee, Richard Henry Lee's brother, who became a secret agent of the Committee of Secret Correspondence in mid-December. The committee also engaged an old friend of Franklin's living at The Hague, Charles W.F. Dumas, to work for it in Holland. Meanwhile, Beaumarchais was strengthened in his purpose by frequent conferences with Arthur Lee, who had the verve and vision to ask for French aid on his own initiative. Beaumarchais pressed upon King Louis XVI a policy not only of permitting and encouraging private shipment of munitions to America by selling these munitions to French merchants, but of going beyond this to positive aid by the French government itself. This aid was to be secret through a dummy private firm so as not to provide Great Britain with a casus belli. Bonvoloir's optimistic report on American plans for independence persuaded Vergen to recommend and the king to adopt the Beaumarchais plan. On May 2, 1776, the king ordered the government to supply as a virtual gift to the Americans one million livres worth of munitions through Beaumarchais, who emerged as a supposed merchant representing the fictitious firm of Roderick Hortelez A.C. 
As part of the active new policy, the king also moved to strengthen France's army and navy. This gift was promptly matched by another one million livres supplied to Beaumarchais by Charles III of Spain, eager to join his ally in weakening their ancient foe. King Louis envisioned French governmental aid as an outright gift to the Americans in the guise of a loan. But when Beaumarchais saw that Dean had come prepared to purchase the munitions, he saw an opportunity for a huge future windfall for himself. He drew up an agreement with Congress to supply munitions on credit, to be repaid in money or in tobacco at an indefinite later date. He also advanced government credit to French ships to carry the war supplies to America. Indeed, Beaumarchais was to send to America on credit many times the initial Franco-Spanish subsidy. By mid-October 1776, he had shipped over five and a half million livres of supplies furnished by the government, of which Spain refused to pay more than the initial one million, including powder, guns, cannon, cannon balls, and clothing for soldiers. After the war. Beaumarchais had the nerve to demand 3.6 million livres from the United States in payment for the supplies, but the perceptive author Lee had early realized that Beaumarchais was simply a cover agent intended by the French government to give munitions in secret to the Americans. Congress properly paid Beaumarchais nothing. In 1835, however, the United States government paid. Eight hundred thousand francs livres to the heirs of Beaumarchais as a deduction monies paid to the U.S. by the French government under the Treaty of 1831. As the Americans had foreseen, France quickly followed its encouragement of private as well as its own secret trade with America by using its navy to protect that trade. France informed Britain in June that it would insist on full rights as a neutral under international law, to open its ports to American merchant shipping, to have its ships free from British search in French territorial waters, such as the French West Indies, especially Martinique and Cap Francois, in Haiti, the entrepôt for the new trade. And to keep its trade with its own colonies inviolate from British interference. The French could then keep their shipments within their empire and therefore inviolate until they reached the West Indies, thus protecting them most of the way to America. Furthermore, France greatly aided American privateers by secretly permitting them to fit out in French ports. British complaints were either ignored, or the privateers would be seized officially and then allowed to escape without loss. Volume Four, Chapter Twenty Four: Polarization in England and the German Response to Renting Hessians. During 1775 and early 1776, as we have seen, the American conflict escalated and intensified step by step, as the military clashes widened on land and at sea, as the British cracked down bitterly on the revolutionaries. As militant measures were taken against Americans loyal to Britain, and as the Continental Congress opened diplomatic relations, organized the war effort, 
and opened the ports to foreign trade and supplies in defiance of the time-honored British laws of trade. As the conflict got underway and for many months thereafter, most of the American leaders had conservative aims and goals. They aimed not at all at independence, but at intensifying the old pressure of the boycott to bring Britain to her senses and to abandon her recent policy of aggressive imperial domination. Others, at least, realized that Britain would adopt a hard-line policy of crushing the rebellion, inexorably pushing the Americans into greater conflict. But only a handful of the most radical and prescient leaders fought eagerly for the maximum goal, independence. They realized that France would only be interested in aiding an American movement that would aim for independence and not for eventual reconciliation and strengthening of the British Empire. Moreover, they saw that in the difficult war ahead, only American independence would provide the necessary inspiration for waging the struggle. The radicals realized, as Curtis Nettles has written, that the Americans had arrived at a crossroads of history. Backward, the road led to monarchy, serfdom, oppression. Ahead was visible the trace of a new path leading to emancipation, freedom, and self-government. Should Congress take the road backward to the oppressions of the old world or build a new road to the summit discernible in the distance? It was independence that offered an inspiring prospect, nothing less than the creation of a new nation, a great republic dedicated to rights of man. New England, the center of liberalism and democracy, with its tradition of virtual independence, had little difficulty in visualizing American independence. But as long as Massachusetts was the focal point of conflict with Britain, it and the rest of New England had to tread warily in Congress. Leveling New England was under enough suspicion as it was from the other colonies, and it would have been suicidal for it to take the lead in advocating independence, a most unpopular concept in 1775. Massachusetts and its chief radicals, the Adamses, had to lie low, waiting for the lead for militancy and eventual independence to be taken by Virginia, the foremost and the most radical colony in the South. This was a further consideration in the decision to give George Washington command of the Continental Army. He was an uncommon blend of impeccable conservative on social and political matters, and yet a militant in the fight against Britain. Yet the radicals had a difficult row to hoe indeed, for Congress began firmly in the hands of conservatives, who would not consider independence. Such leaders as John Jay, James Duane, John Alsop, Philip Schuler, and Philip and Robert Livingston of New York, John Dickinson, James Wilson, and Robert Morris of Pennsylvania, Thomas Johnson of Maryland, Benjamin Harrison of Virginia, Thomas Lynch and the Rutledges of South Carolina, and Dr. John Zubley of Georgia. Even New England had conservative delegates, Silas Dean of Connecticut, and Thomas Cushing and the waffling and petulant John Hancock of Massachusetts. Against such a formidable array, 
the Adamses, Patrick Henry and Richard Henry Lee, could only fume in private and await the passage of time that they firmly believed would be on their side. The superior insight of the radicals was partly due to their superior information on political conditions in Great Britain and on the formidable strength of the Tory forces. The prime source of this information was Arthur Lee, who was functioning as a one-man committee of correspondence from London from the late 1760s, sending his news and evaluations to the Adamses and other radical leaders. Lee and his other brother William, a merchant settled in London who had become important in London politics, reported clearly the feebleness and decline of the Whigs and radicals, as well as the triumphal successes of the imperialist and Tories and the subservience of a corrupt parliament. The American radicals soon saw this estimate of the temper of the British government confirmed as the king brusquely refused even to receive Dickinson's olive branch petition and issued the staunchly hardline proclamation of rebellion on August 23, 1775. The proclamation absurdly denounced the Americans as rebels and traitors who had now brought long-laid designs and traitorous conspiracies to open rebellion and war. The king announced that he would bring traitors to justice and condign punishment. This was quickly followed by a royal order to seize the ships of Americans or all those trading with America and the royal authorities expressed their determination to proceed against the Americans as open and announced enemies of the state. In England, the Whig and liberal cause had fallen to low estate. No mass protest of merchants or populace arose to block the determination of the North Ministry to crush the Americans. Many English merchants were beguiled by the temporary expansion of markets in Europe, aided by the recent peace between Russia and Turkey, and by the lure of government war contracts. The mass of the people were seduced by a wave of patriotism, as well as the desire to force the Americans to pay part of their tax burden. The aristocratic Whig leadership always inclined to luxurious indolence, decided against the efforts of Edmund Burke to arouse them, and instead to give up and absent themselves from Parliament. Burke did his best to work for peace on his own and roused peace petitions from London and his constituency in Bristol, but all in vain. Indeed, more people in Bristol addressed their support of the government on the American war. Burke's persistent appeals to the Marquis of Rockingham and the Whigs to oppose the war vigorously was not simple impetuosity. It was based on profound insight into the proper strategy for a party truly in opposition to the existing regime. Vigorous opposition, though in a weak minority at the time, would not be at all futile. On the contrary, local opposition would inform people of the available alternative to which they might turn in anger when present policy became bankrupt. But for such an angry turn toward a radical change of the system, there must be skilled leadership and direction. There must be a vanguard. As Burke wrote, to bring the people to a feeling, 
as tends to amendment or alteration of system, there must be plan and management. All direction of public humor and opinion must originate in a few. He vainly urged on the Whigs a large and powerful nationwide petition movement, which would remain permanently in operation as a network of local committees of correspondence to serve as the lever of dynamic political change. The eloquent young Charles James Fox, a son of Henry Fox and close to the Whig Party, also argued against the Britons' war against the Americans. The Pittites opposed the war, too, but were enfeebled by the chronic illness of Lord Chatham. Leading individual Whigs did make their mark by refusing to serve in the armed forces against the Americans, and these came to include Lord Effingham, an army officer, and the great Admiral Augustus Keppel. Meanwhile, the radical movement in Britain had fallen into rapid decline. John Wilkes' triumphal entry into Parliament in 1774, as well as into London politics, marked the beginning not of new triumphs for the Wilkite movement, but of its collapse. In any age of Tory ascendance, Wilkes proved to have been a far better radical leader in disgrace than in positions of power or influence. In fact, having realized his civic and parliamentary ambitions, it seemed that he no longer sought or depended on the acclaim of the lower orders of citizens. He was still a liberal opposed to the war, however, and he warned that victory would be hollow, since the Americans could not be kept permanently in subjection, even by large forces of occupation. Soon to abandon the radical position, Wilkes was to remain for a while an undistinguished liberal member of Parliament, but he began to follow the classic ever-rightward path of the renegade radical, until, after two decades, he died in the odor and sanctity of the new Toryism. The radical cause in 1776 had become moribund in Britain, a state aggravated by Parliament's recent reimposition of a high tax on newspapers, crippling the cheap and popular press that had served as a vehicle for gaining support of the cause from the masses. Of the radicals, only the doughty Reverend John Horne managed to remain active. He took up a collection in London in June 1775 for widows and orphans of the Americans murdered at Lexington by the British troops. He was promptly sent to prison for his audacity. It is significant of the decline of British radicalism that his arrest evoked none of the popular agitation generated by the imprisonment of John Wilkes in 1763. In their desperate state, the various liberal and opposition groups began to draw hesitantly together and to become increasingly radicalized by the American crisis. They soon realized that their only hope lay in a drastic British defeat at the hands of the Americans. Openly favoring the American cause, they grew more radical in their proffered solutions. Burke, who habitually dealt in terms of utility and expediency, or else tradition, now acknowledged in part the validity of the Americans' stress on their rights. Yet he was gradually being outflanked on his left. The Earl of Shelburne and other Chathamites 
along with the London radicals, called for repeal of the declaratory acts asserting full parliamentary sovereignty over America, including the right of taxation. And Charles James Fox was calling for repeal of every British measure toward America passed since 1763. With the liberal and radical movements weak and in disarray, the field was wide open for the hardline apostles of force and suppression. Bunker Hill was characteristically taken not as a signal to stop and think, but as a stain to Britain's honor, to be avenged as quickly and forcefully as possible. Only Lord Dartmouth, the colonial secretary, stood out against the war policy of the cabinet, but with no success. So widespread was British support for suppression that the manufacturing centers of Manchester, Lancaster, Liverpool, and Bristol presented pro-government addresses. Driven on by the king and by the war party in control of the rest of the cabinet and of popular opinion, the equivocal prime minister Lord North was forced to press the war with vigor. He raised troops, relieved General Gage and Vice Admiral Samuel Graves, who were considered dilatory by the war party, and sent five Irish regiments to America. In the autumn of 1775, moreover, the two cabinet moderates lost their posts. The Whig, Duke of Grafton, went into opposition in bitter protest against the war, and Lord Dartmouth lost the key post of colonial secretary to hardline Lord George Germain, a man bitterly opposed to appeasement of the colonies. Strengthening hardline dominance over public opinion was a pamphlet published in 1775 by the eminent Tory literary critic Samuel Johnson. With his accustomed perceptiveness, Johnson, in Taxation, No Tyranny, warned that the logical conclusion of the libertine and American hostility to taxation was no taxation at all or anarchy. Pro-war petitions, inspired by the government, denounced the sophistical arguments and seditious correspondence of a few disappointed men who were responsible for deluding the Americans into rebellion. The ministry propounded a similar line. Indeed, more serious than the imprisonment of John Horn was the arrest on a charge of treason of the radical alderman and leading London banker, Stephen Sayre, whom Burke and other Whigs were refused permission to visit in prison. Similar treatment for the Whig leaders was hinted to be in the offing, though Sayre was eventually able to sue successfully for false arrest. Having agreed to prosecute the war vigorously, North attempted to offer peace terms to the Americans. After a great deal of wrangling with Germain and the war party, he won an agreement in May 1776 to send as peace commissioners to America General Sir William Howe and his brother the Whig Admiral Richard Lord Howe, the newly appointed commander of the fleet in American waters. This wrangling was a waste of time, for the peace terms merely amounted to a demand for American submission in exchange for instituting North's rejected plan of conciliation and a plan to consider American grievances. There was not the ghost of a chance that the Americans would submit. As Professor Richeson comments, 
The terms thus held out were those a victorious and reasonably benevolent mother country might have granted to discouraged and chastised rebels. But the Americans, of course, were neither beaten nor discouraged. Lord North's first task in prosecuting the war was to raise 20,000 men to send to the American colonies. Rather than annoy the British people by raising the troops at home, he determined to use Britain's vast wealth to hire mercenary troops from other governments. He turned first to Russia, which had been substantially helped by Britain to defeat Turkey in the Russo-Turkish War of 1768-74. Russia had installed King Stanislaus as its puppet ruler in Poland, and in 1768, the liberal Polish Country Party, or Confederation of Bar, led by Counts Joseph and Casimir Pulaski, rose in rebellion against the king. By 1772, the Polish rebellion was crushed, and Poland suffered the loss of one-third of its territory and half of its population in the first partition by Russia and Prussia. Turkey had decided to aid the Polish rebels, earning the belligerent attention of Russia. But Russia's gratitude to Britain for its aid in the war had cooled. The German-born Empress Catherine the Great had come strongly under the influence of Prussia, and Frederick the Great of Prussia was peeved at Britain for what he considered unsatisfactory peace terms after the Seven Years' War. After much backing and filling and seeming agreement, Catherine finally refused Britain's request. North turned next to the Dutch. Ever since the accession to the English throne of William of Orange in 1688, the Dutch House of Orange had been subservient to Great Britain. They had been governed during the first half of the 18th century by the Libertarian Republican Party, which pursued a policy of thoroughgoing decentralization, minimal government, and profitable neutrality in Europe's wars. During the War of Austrian Succession, Britain had engineered a coup by the House of Orange. The Republic was overthrown, and William IV of Orange was installed as Stadtholder of the Dutch provinces. Now Great Britain asked the Dutch to supply the needed troops, specifically the Scotch Brigade, this brigade originally consisted of Scotsmen, but was now largely comprised of Walloons from the southern Netherlands. The House of Orange was, of course, willing to agree, but the Prince of Orange was by no means the autocratic ruler of Holland, and the Republican-led assemblies of most of the provinces vetoed the scheme. Eloquent opposition to providing the troops was expressed by John Dirk, who, citing English depredations upon the sea and upon Dutch commerce, declared that the Americans were contending for their liberty, just as the Dutch themselves had fought for their independence as rebels against Spain in the late 16th century. Leading the successful opposition to troop aid to Britain in the interior Dutch province of Overijssel was a man destined to become one of the most important figures in the international revolutionary movement in the near future, the nobleman J.D. van der Kappelen Todepol, who broke precedent by making public his views in the secret discussion within the provincial estates. Van der Kappelen, 
who also led the movement to abolish corvée servitude by the peasants of the province, was in contact with British radicals and was soon to correspond with the revolutionary governors of Connecticut and New Jersey. The substantial number of Republican merchants in the Dutch provinces also expressed their opposition to British dictation by happily engaging in illicit trade with the rebellious Americans and with the French, St. Eustatius in the Dutch West Indies serving as a crucial entrepot in the American trade. Twice rebuffed in their search for mercenary troops, the British now turned to some of the petty princes of western and southern Germany, who were always eager to augment their incomes by renting out their troops. In January 1776, Britain received into its service 30,000 German mercenaries from six principalities, including Hesse and Brunswick, of which three-fifths came from Hesse Castle. Of the 30,000 troops, 7,500 were to perish during the war, either in battle or of disease. Of the remaining 22,500, 5,000 were to desert to settle in the United States. While some of these German troops were mere hired killers or soldiers of fortune, many were imbued with deep sympathy for the American cause, proving to be reluctant fighters at best and often deserting outright to the American ranks. In their discontent, the German troops at least partially reflected a wave of enthusiasm for the revolutionary cause that was sweeping the intellectuals of Germany. The Enlightenment had deeply penetrated into German thought, and Rousseau and Voltaire were read as widely in Germany as in America. The rights of man were keenly admired, and the German intellectuals saw with enthusiasm that here was a new type of war, a war for liberty, a revolutionary war for an ideal very different from the familiar European war of mercantilistic and dynastic plunder. The rental of the troops to counter-revolutionary England ignited a torrent of protest in Germany. The German poets were in the forefront of the protest, including the young poets Goethe and Schiller. The poets were moved to use the American struggle for liberty to protest directly or obliquely against their own petty despotisms. The poet Johann Voss called courageously for Germans to drain the cup of tyrants' blood to triumph. Leading the campaign was the romantic poet and newspaper editor of Hortenberg, Christian F.D. Schubert, who had recently founded a lively paper to help launch Germany's political press. Also avidly enthusiastic for the American Revolution was the poet Johann George Jacobi, who hailed the Americans as really battling against despotism in all countries. An editor of a sentimental woman's magazine, Jacoby rhapsodized over revolutionary activities by the women of Pennsylvania. Another prominent romantic libertarian poet of the revolution was Christopher M. Wieland, former jurist and professor of philosophy, who founded Der Tuch Mercur, the most lively and popular and most politically oriented paper in Germany. 
Schubard and Jacobi were soon suppressed by their respective princes, but Wieland carried on, and he was joined in advocating the American cause by more sober thinkers. These writings included a constitutional defense of the American case and of American smuggling, and an attack on the Navigation Acts by Jacob Movillen, professor of military science at Castle. Movillen was greatly influenced by the first modern economist, the French physiocrats, who had evolved a rigorous libertarian theory that included a commitment to a strictly laissez-faire economy and to the natural rights of man. Movillon declared the lesson of the American Revolution to be that, to avoid revolution, the German states must abolish the statist repressions at home, including religious intolerance, monopolies, guilds, taxes on agriculture, and economic burdens on trade and commerce. Movillon's physiocracy, in turn, influenced his colleague, the statesman and economist Christian von Dome, who became the political commentator for Wieland's Mercure. Vendôme criticized the vicious trade monopoly of the British mercantilist system and pointed out that American independence would be a great boon to the world if only because it would smash this monopoly. He thereby summed up the German, indeed the European, radical hopes for the American Revolution. Its success would create new routes for trade, new types of industry, new connections between nations in various parts of the world. It can give wider circles of influence to the Enlightenment, new keenness to popular thought, new life to the spirit of freedom. Volume 4, Part 4, America Declares Independence. Volume 4, Chapter 25, America Polarizes. English Whigs and Radicals put up a gallant fight in Parliament in early 1776 against the hiring of mercenaries, but to no avail. As a result, sentiment in America for independence increased greatly. To the Americans, the hiring of the German mercenaries, generally called Hessians, was proof that Britain would treat them as aliens and foreigners. From observing British reactions, General Lee and the other radical leaders in the Continental Army had already been convinced of the necessity of independence. Lee began to pepper congressmen with urgings of greater militancy. In early October 1775, he wrote to the receptive John Adams, Now is the time to show your firmness. If the least timidity is displayed, we are all ruined. You ought to begin by confiscating the estates of all the notorious enemies to American liberty. Afterward, you should invite all the maritime powers of the world into your ports. Thus he gave the call for open ports and the confiscation of Tory property, which, before long, became the key planks in the radical platform. In another letter, he put his finger on the main stumbling block to American independence. Despite the general willingness to denounce Parliament or the royal advisers, Americans had been reluctant to break with the symbol of the king himself. Now he could write that people began to suspect that the king is as bad as the worst of his ministry. 
to have advanced such a proposition last year would have been thought treason and impiety. Next year, he added prophetically, if you will have patience, king and tyrant will be a synonymous term. Similarly, General John Sullivan of New Hampshire asked why Congress did not have the courage to declare independence. Did they believe that such a declaration would lead the British to throw their shot and shells with more force than at present? Sullivan insistently urged John Adams to destroy that spirit of moderation which, if not speedily rooted out, will prove the final overthrow of America. General Nathaniel Green wrote to a receptive fellow Rhode Islander, Delegate Samuel Ward, on behalf of independence. And General Horatio Gates was preaching independence so openly and enthusiastically as to astonish even Charles Lee. Despite the fact that the inner logic of the accelerating conflict called for American independence, Congress was by no means ready to take such a radical step. Congressional foot-dragging on the subject was in a large sense a function of opinions on independence in the respective colonies, for Congress itself was a creature of the individual provinces. Even if it wanted to, it could not declare American independence unless the respective provinces desired to do so. Each of the provinces, it is true, had rapidly and spontaneously developed a network of revolutionary bodies which took over the functions of local and provincial government. In each case, the royal executive and the royal governor had been quickly swept away so that only three royal governors remained in their provinces by the spring of 1776, and these had no political power whatsoever. By far the most dangerous of the three, William Franklin of New Jersey was placed under house arrest in March 1776 and shipped to a Connecticut prison. The popular and quiescent Robert Eden of Maryland was shipped home during the same month, and John Penn of Pennsylvania and Delaware, the last proprietary governor in the colonies, was sympathetic to the rebel cause and remained in Pennsylvania as a private citizen. In each province, the colonial assembly, which was part of the old royal structure, was abandoned, replaced by elected provincial congresses or conventions. These provincial legislatures retained the supreme legislative power of the colonial assembly as well as the supreme judicial power that had belonged to the assembly and to the executive. Of particular importance was the automatic liquidation during this process of the old bureaucratic executive that had been removed from all popular or democratic check. Replacing this ruling oligarchy were the legislatures themselves, which now appointed their own committees of safety, or councils of safety, which were totally subordinated to the elected legislatures. Philosophically, after all, the executive function is merely that of a hired hand to enforce the laws, so total subordination of the executive to the legislative power seemed the rational course. The conclusion was redoubled by the threat of oligarchic rule cut off from direct popular check, 
a threat inherent in any independent executive power. The separation of the executive and the legislature in England and other countries of the day was not the result of a competing philosophical view of government, but of the history of these institutions. The executive power had been vested as a result of previous conquest in the oligarchic rule of a monarch and his aides, a rule which the monarch always strove to be as absolute and unchecked as the traffic could bear. In Great Britain, Parliament became the legislature as a result of an effort by part of the public to exercise a check rein upon the king. Contrary to mythmakers on the English Constitution, the democratic wing of royal government was not the embodiment of reasoned philosophic principle of checks and balances or separation of powers. The democratic wing established itself in a pragmatic struggle to limit the power of the royal government. Originally, democracy was not so much a means of governmental rule as it was a means for the popular checking of government. Parliament did not begin as a way to rule. It began as a means of telling the king that if he did not redress grievances and lower his exactions and demands, the representatives of the public would not consent to paying taxes to the crown. Democracy, in short, originated as a libertarian weapon against the state rather than as itself a form of state. Later it became a form of government, but the former function still prevailed in 18th century England, for even though Parliament shared part of the governmental rule, it also tried at times to check its old nemesis, the crown. In the 18th century, however, it was America that had taken over the original libertarian role of democratic representation once played by the early institution of Parliament. The main function of the colonial assemblies was to check as much as possible the power of the royal bureaucracy. The assemblies were the arm of the public that combated and kept vigilance over the growth of royal executive power. One effective means to this end was keeping control of executive salaries firmly and day to day in an assembly's hands. Then, when royal government was swept away, the spontaneous local and provincial revolutionary bodies freely and frequently elected and thereby subject to popular check took over governmental functions, deposing the old oligarchy. As was true of so many aspects of the American Revolution, this was truly a revolutionary act for liberty and democracy, and it won unspectacular stroke it profoundly changed American political institutions. Not only was royal rule liquidated, but so too, for the time being, was the bureaucratic oligarchy. Not only was the executive oligarchy swept away by the act of revolution, but so too were the councils, the royally appointed upper houses of the legislatures, which had also served as executive aides to the royal governors. The representative part of the legislature automatically came to the fore as provincial congresses or assemblies, 
and equally naturally as unicameral legislative bodies. The glorification of separation of powers and bicameral legislatures by such Tory-minded theorists as Montesquieu was a method of keeping democracy in severely narrow bounds and preserving the dominance of arbitrary oligarchic rule. In recent years, neoconservative writers have sharply contrasted liberty and democracy and have loudly protested any identification between them. Their case rests on two broad grounds. Philosophically, because liberty refers to what government should do, while democracy refers to who should rule in the government. And empirically, because the main threat to liberty has allegedly been totalitarian democracy. But historically, for the late 18th and for earlier centuries, waving later centuries at this point, democracy and liberty were conjoined. Democracy was precisely the major instrument by which the libertarian revolt exerted pressure upon the tyranny of the ruling caste. The threat, or rather the reality, of continuing invasion of liberty came from the state apparatus and its privileged ruling caste. The popular democratic upsurge against this prevailing old order was the concrete form necessarily taken by the libertarian idea. The preeminent libertarian task was to end the dictation to and exploitation of the people by the rulers of the state apparati. In England, as everywhere, the state began in conquest and a democratic upsurge was the clearly indicated path by which the people could pursue libertarian goals. In addition to these historical reasons for democracy and liberty to go hand in hand, there is the further philosophic point that any direct popular thrust for tyranny is bound to be fleeting and episodic. Even as ugly a happening as the democratic lynch mob is necessarily erratic and short-lived. For one thing, the mass of the people generally have neither the time nor the interest to engage in continuing organized expressions of power or plunder. The average man is too busy at the tasks of everyday life to be even concerned about, much less active in, such matters. Hence the much-deplored phenomenon of political apathy. Only in revolutions does much mass interest in political affairs arise, and this is one of the main reasons why revolutions, disturbing as they are to regular routine, are so difficult to launch. Threats to liberty, therefore, will tend to come not from the formless and remote masses, but from professionals people directly and fully concerned day in and day out in political affairs, from an oligarchy, either government bureaucrats or those who can persuade or manipulate those bureaucrats to grant them special privilege and pelf, the ruling classes. The natural, though not perfectly invariant conjunction of liberty and democracy was well understood by the radical wing, the left, of the American revolutionaries, 
and hence their continuing concern to maintain governmental forms as close to popular democracy as possible. Hence, too, their constant vigilance against any recrudescence of executive oligarchy after the royal forms were swept away at the beginning of the revolution. Each American province then quickly found itself, after Lexington and Concord, with a new revolutionary governmental structure consisting of a provincial unicameral legislature and town and county governments and committees of safety. To adopt a formal constitutional frame would be an important step toward proclaimed independence. As spontaneous creatures of local committees of rebels, the new revolutionary assemblies were remarkably democratic in the sense of participation by the great bulk of the non-Tory population. Every one of the thirteen colonies had had freehold, landed, or personal property qualifications for voting in provincial and town elections. Although five colonies allowed a minimum of personal property as an alternative, and in New York and Virginia, long-term tenants were included as freeholders. Historians formerly believed that this colonial suffrage was severely undemocratic, disenfranchising most of the adult male population. Recent researches reveal the fallacy of this gloomy view, indicating that the average proportion of eligible adult males in the colonies ranged from 50 to 75 percent. It should be recognized, however, that this situation was far from idyllic and that one-quarter to one-half of white adult males of the American colonies were disfranchised. Including the slaves drags down the percentage of eligible voters still further, and even the few free Negroes were barred from voting in the four southern colonies. At the end of the colonial period, eligible voters constituted 90% of adult white males in New Hampshire, higher in local town elections, approximately 75 to 80% in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, over 80% in North and South Carolina, and generally over 70% in Georgia. In contrast to these high percentages, eligibility in New York and New Jersey ranged from 50 to 75%. In the lowest strata were Virginia, whose eligibility was approximately 50%, and Pennsylvania and Maryland, where it ranged from 35 to over 50%. Volume 4, Chapter 26, Forming New Governments, New Hampshire. After Lexington and Concord, the separate provincial bodies faced two broad sets of decisions. One was external, whether or not to push for American independence from Great Britain. The other was internal, whether to keep the highly democratic nature of the new revolutionary bodies or to revert to an oligarchic regime resembling the colonial era. The problem of adopting a formal constitution was both internal and highly relevant to the question of American independence. New England, in the forefront of American radical sentiment, pioneered the first self-made provincial constitution. Massachusetts asked the Continental Congress's advice on what sort of governmental form to adopt, 
And on June 9, 1775, Congress simply told Massachusetts to aim at preserving the old pre-coercive act, Massachusetts Charter. A few months later, in mid-October, New Hampshire asked for advice on a new government. The powerful Governor Wentworth and other royally favored oligarchs had fled, and New Hampshire was being ruled by a makeshift committee of safety and by local town committees. While New Hampshire was asking for advice, the British burning of Falmouth, Maine, on October 16, enraged the colonists, and Congress advised New Hampshire on November 3 to establish a new government to operate for the duration of the conflict. This change of advice was the reflection of a change in composition of the Congressional Committee answering the request. Arch-conservatives Thomas Johnson, John Jay, and James Wilson had been replaced by radicals John Adams, Samuel Ward, and Roger Sherman. Despite the radical advice to New Hampshire to form a new government, however, reconciliation with Britain and resumption of the pre-crisis status quo were still held up as the ultimate ideal. In eager response, New Hampshire called a constitutional convention, which met at Exeter in December to form a new government. Violently objecting to this revolutionary step were freeholders from the ports of Dover and Portsmouth, who denounced the new constitution as a virtual declaration of independence from Britain. The Exeter Convention followed on the heels of November elections that had swept away all freehold qualifications for voting and decreed that all resident taxpayers might vote. This important step toward democracy was not gained without a struggle, however, as at first the New Hampshire Provincial Congress had decided only to lower freehold qualifications for voting from ownership of property valued at 50 pounds to ownership of property worth 20. It was forced to reconsider and abandon freehold restrictions by strong public pressure. Thus, New Hampshire became the first province to put into practice one of the leading suffrage goals of the radical forces, voting rights for all taxpayers with no property restrictions, and admission of all militiamen and soldiers into the ranks of eligible voters. A somewhat more important step taken by the Provincial Congress was to reform representation in its lower house, the Assembly. New Hampshire apportionment was plagued not only by the inherent obsolescence of democratic representation, it had been further hobbled by the deliberate policy of the Crown and the royal governor to repress the voice of the western frontier towns. Only 36 of the 155 towns in New Hampshire had been allowed to send delegates to the Assembly, and even among these larger towns, delegate allocation was way out of balance. Thus, such of the larger westerly towns as Concord, Isping, and Londonderry had no representation. In calling the late 1775 elections, the Provincial Congress rearranged the representation, but amidst the corrections were numerous new inequities and over-representations of the new towns in the century-old manner of Massachusetts. 
The new New Hampshire Constitution was adopted by the Congress on January 5, making it the first Constitution enacted in and by an American colony. The major political power in the colony was thenceforth to be wielded by the elected House of Representatives. There was also to be an upper house or council which was to be elected in such proportions as to weight it in favor of the eastern seaboard towns. The Constitution was vague, but implied no property qualifications for voting, although there were property requirements for election to the legislature. The new Constitution fully satisfied few New Hampshire men. It was attacked from the right by those who objected to any form of government that made reconciliation with Britain unlikely. It was attacked from the left by those who complained of the patently insufficient degree of democracy. Thus, sixteen far western towns protested to the House, demanding better representation and the abolition of property qualifications for holding political office and the Council's veto on actions of the House of Representatives. They also urged a Bill of Rights to guarantee the rights of the individual. The powers of the Upper House did have a sinister aspect, since they resembled all too closely the powers of the old royal executive. Thus, the town of Chesterfield in extreme western New Hampshire charged that the new government threatened to settle down upon the dregs of monarchical and aristocratical tyranny in imitation of their late British oppressor. Or, as the sixteen far western towns trenchantly put it, it is a thousand pities that when we are engaged in a bloody contest merely to oppose arbitrary power without us, we should have occasion to contend against the same within ourselves. We are determined not to spend our blood and treasure in defending against the chains and fetters abroad in order to purchase the like kind of our own manufacturing. The western towns repeatedly stressed the revolutionary fact that they were at that point in a state of nature and that by their natural right they should form a constitutional convention. Leading the popular agitation in the West was Hanover, in extreme northwest Grafton County, the seat of newly established Dartmouth College, the only institution of higher learning in the province. Dartmouth had been founded and Grafton County settled by New Light Congregationalists from revolutionary eastern Connecticut. Fresh from separatist struggles against established churches, the men from Connecticut were acutely alive to infringements upon their liberties or rights. Dartmouth College and its president, the Reverend Eliezer Willock, led the protest movement, which was popularly dubbed the College Party. In fact, the protest of the far western towns had been adopted at Dartmouth College Hall, and authorship of the protest was attributed to the son-in-law of Wheelock, Dartmouth's professor, Bezalel Woodward. The town of Hanover and other far western towns soon determined to make their protests effective by refusing to send delegates to the legislature and by refusing to vote for candidates for seats in such an abhorrent institution as the council. 
Several of the towns pressed on and refused to pay taxes to New Hampshire altogether, preferring to conduct their affairs on their own. Volume 4, Chapter 27, New England Ready for Independence In a sense, the situation of Connecticut and Rhode Island was the most clear-cut in the colonies, for these two colonies had been uniquely free of any royal governor or royal arm of government at home. Virtually independent, while colonies, they needed no political or constitutional change to equip them for the struggle with Great Britain or for possible independence. Hence, with the exception of the ouster of the Tory governor wanton by the Rhode Island Assembly, there was no need for confrontations or political upheaval. Since Wanton was closely associated with the Hopkins faction, however, his overthrow meant the eclipse of the Hopkinsites and the taking of complete power by the more radical Ward faction. The new governor, Nicholas Cook, was a leading Wardite, as was brilliant young Continental Army General Nathaniel Green, scion of one of the first families of Rhode Island. Rhode Island was galvanized in early November by the burning of Falmouth to denounce the British and to declare it high treason to correspond with, supply, or aid the British forces, a virtual commitment by Rhode Island to American independence. Indeed, in that same month, Samuel Ward, leader of the Ward Party and one of the colony's delegates to the Continental Congress, openly opted for American independence working tirelessly for that cause from then on. Thus, by the end of 1775, Rhode Island and Connecticut were essentially ready for independence. But the key to New England, of course, was Massachusetts. And if that great spearhead of radicalism would not take the lead for independence, the cause would be lost. While Massachusetts had lost none of its fervor for measures against Britain, its delegation to the Continental Congress was grievously hobbled throughout 1775. Voting in Congress was by province, and hence an elementary requisite for Massachusetts leading a move toward independence was the ability to command the vote of its own delegation. And yet, this the Massachusetts radicals could not do. The Adamses were, of course, two of the brightest stars of the radical firmament, but the conservatives Thomas Cushing and Robert Treat Payne opposed any drive toward independence. The fifth, or swing, member of the delegation was the vain and flighty John Hancock, who clung to his largely honorific post of president of the Continental Congress. He never forgave the Adamses for nominating Washington for army commander-in-chief instead of himself. And, bearing that grudge, he broke with the radicals and veered sharply rightward, allowing himself to be feted by the Dickinsons and Duanes, the luxury-loving Hancock acquired the derisive sobriquet of King Hancock among the radicals. This meant an effective vote of three to two against independence, and thus Massachusetts radicalism was stymied. Sam Adams and the frustrated radicals began to threaten openly a separate independent New England unshackled by the dilatoriness of the other colonies. The critical turning point in this unhappy situation came on December 20. 
when the Massachusetts Provincial Congress turned Thomas Cushing out as delegate and replaced him with the brilliant young radical and follower of Sam Adams, Elbridge Gerry of Marblehead. This gave the radicals a majority in the Massachusetts delegation, effective the following February when Gary was to take his seat. Soon afterward, in mid-January, the Massachusetts Congress authorized the delegates to do whatever they thought necessary to establish the right and liberty of the American colonies on a base permanent and secure. Here was a virtual endorsement of American independence. Volume 4, Chapter 28, The Sudden Emergence of Tom Paine At the beginning of 1776, New England was ready for independence. So were such leading radicals as Richard Henry Lee and Patrick Henry of Virginia, Christopher Gadsden of South Carolina, and army leaders such as George Washington and Charles Lee. But the bulk of the colonies and the Continental Congress were not. One of the main stumbling blocks to a commitment to independence was personal loyalty to the British crown. There has always been a political taboo of almost mystical force against attacking the head of state, and always the convenient though emasculating custom of attributing his sins to his evil or incompetent advisers. Such long-standing habits impeded a rational analysis of the deeds of King George III. Furthermore, the old and obsolete Whig ideal of virtual independence under a figurehead king of both Britain and America could only be shattered if the king were to be attacked personally. To rupture this taboo, to smash the icon, and so to liberate America from its thrall required a special type of man, a man fearless, courageous, and radical an intellectual with a gift for dramatic and exciting rhetoric, and unfettered by the many ties that bind a man to the existing system. At this strategic hour, America found just such a man, Thomas Paine. Unlike most of the other eminent leaders of his day, there was nothing in the least aristocratic in the background of Tom Paine, the son of a poor English corset-maker, he was forced to educate himself for lack of schooling. After serving a checkered career as corset maker, sailor, and petty bureaucrat, he finally rose to the status of a minor English tax collector. He was soon characteristically in trouble with the authorities. Chosen by his fellow excise collectors in 1772 to petition Parliament for higher wages, he was curtly dismissed from the service by the authorities. Unemployed, bankrupt, the unhappy Payne began his life again at the age of 37 by emigrating to America, armed only with a letter of introduction he had managed to obtain from Benjamin Franklin in London. Landing in Philadelphia toward the end of 1774, he got a job with a Philadelphia printer and soon rose to the editorship of the printer's insignificant Pennsylvania magazine. He quickly proved himself an outstanding writer and publicist, and quickly made his reputation as a libertarian by publishing a blistering attack on the institution of slavery. 
in African Slavery in America, written shortly after his arrival and published in early March 1775, Paine pointed out that the African natives were often peaceful and industrious farmers brought into slavery either by European man theft or by outsiders inducing the African chieftains to war on each other and to sell their prisoners into slavery. He also riddled the common excuse that purchase and ownership of existing slaves was somehow moral in contrast to the wickedness of the original enslavement. Such men may as well join with a known band of robbers, buy their ill-got goods, and help on the trade. Ignorance is no more pleadable in one case than the other, and as the true owner has the right to reclaim his goods that were stolen and sold, so the slave, who is proper owner of his freedom, has a right to reclaim it, however often sold. The slaves, being human, have not lost their natural right to their freedom, and therefore, concluded Paine, the governments should in justice set them free and punish those who hold them in slavery. Shortly after this article was published, the first abolitionist society, the Society for the Promotion of the Abolition of Slavery, was established at Philadelphia. Largely Quaker, it included the deist Paine as one of its members. Lexington and Concord moved Paine to turn his talents to the radical revolutionary cause. In July, he urged upon the Quakers the justice of taking up arms in defense of liberty so long as disarmament is not universal. He denounced the British government as highwaymen, setting forth to plunder American property. Therefore, in self-defense, arms like laws discourage and keep the invader and plunderer in awe. For the British, nothing but arms or miracles can reduce them to reason and moderation. And in October, he combined his anti-slavery and pro-independence views to castigate Great Britain for trafficking in human flesh, and he looked forward to an independence that would end the slave trade and ultimately all of slavery. All this culminated in Paine's tremendous blow for American independence, his fiery and brilliant pamphlet, Common Sense, off the press in early January 1776, spread like wildfire throughout the colonies. A phenomenal 120,000 copies were sold in the space of three months. Passages were reprinted in newspapers all over America. All this meant that nearly every literate home was familiar with the pamphlet. Tom Paine had, at a single blow, become the voice of the American Revolution and the greatest single force in propelling it to completion and independence. Charles Lee wrote jubilantly and prophetically to Washington that, I never saw such a masterly, irresistible performance. It will, in concurrence with the transcendent folly and wickedness of the ministry, give the coup de grace to Great Britain. And Washington himself endorsed the sound doctrine and unanswerable reasoning of common sense. Common sense called squarely and openly for American independence and pointed to the choice for Americans as essentially between independence and slavery. But what was more, 
Payne boldly smashed the icon, directing his most devastating fire at King George himself. For the first time, the king, the royal brute of Great Britain, was pinpointed as the major enemy. The king himself, not just his wicked advisers, the king's advisers were attacked as being enthralled to him. Payne had quashed the taboo, and Americans flocked to imbibe his liberating message. Not stopping at indicting George III, Payne pressed on to a comprehensive attack on the very principle of monarchy. The ancient Jews had prospered without kings and had suffered under them, he wrote, following the great English tradition of Milton and Sidney, and Holland flourished as a republic. But more important, the division between kings and subjects is unnatural and bears no relation to the natural distinction between rich and poor on the market. How indeed had the natural equality of men before the law become transposed into subjection to a monarch? We should find the first of them, kings, nothing better than the principal ruffian of some restless gang, whose savage manners or preeminence in subtlety obtained him the title of chief among plunderers, and who by increasing in power and extending his depredations overawed the quiet and defenseless. And now the kings were but crowned ruffians. In this way, Payne not only laid bare the roots of monarchy, but provided a brilliant insight into the nature and origins of the state itself. He had made a crucial advance in libertarian theory upon the social contract doctrine of the origin of the state. While he followed Locke in holding that the state should be confined to the protection of man's natural rights, he saw clearly that actual states had not originated in this way or for this purpose. Instead, they had been born in naked conquest and plunder. Another vital contribution of common sense to libertarian thought was Paine's sharp, quasi-anarchistic distinction between society and government. Indeed, Paine opened his pamphlet with these words. Some writers have so confounded society with government as to leave little or no distinction between them, whereas they are not only different but have different origins. Society is produced by our wants and governed by our wickedness. The one encourages intercourse, the other creates distinctions. The first is a patron, the last a punisher. Society in every state is a blessing, but government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil. In its worst state, an intolerable one, for when we suffer the same miseries by a government, which we might expect in a country without government, our calamity is heightened by reflecting that we furnish the means by which we suffer. Government, like dress, is the badge of lost innocence. The palaces of kings are built upon the ruins of the bowers of paradise." In addition to limning brilliantly the nature and origins of monarchy and the state, calling boldly for independence and attacking George III, Paine set forth the proper foreign policy for an independent America. 
Here, he argued that the connection with Great Britain entailed upon Americans burdens rather than rewards. The Americans should not be tempted by the prospect of Anglo-American domination of the world. On the contrary, America would vastly benefit from throwing open its trade and ports freely to all nations. Further, the alliance with Britain tends directly to involve this continent in European wars and quarrels and set us at variance with nations against whom we have neither anger nor complaint. As Europe is our market for trade, we ought to form no partial connection with any part of it. It is the true interest of America to steer clear of European contentions, which she can never do while she is made the make-weight in the scale of British politics. Thus, Paine adumbrated for America what was later to be called a foreign policy of isolationism, but which might also be called neutrality or neutralism. Whatever it is called, it is essentially the libertarian policy of free trade and peaceful coexistence with all nations. It is an America that acts as a moral beacon for mankind rather than as judge or policeman. In addition to all these achievements, Paine managed to outline in this brief pamphlet the internal political program of the libertarian wing of the American Revolution, the new democratic system naturally created by the Revolution. This consisted of rule by democratically elected legislatures established by proportionate representation and responsible to checks upon them by the people. The aim of such government was simply to protect every man's natural rights of liberty and property. Securing freedom and property to all men and, above all things, the free exercise of religion, he saw that the superficially plausible lucubrations of such Tory writers as Montesquieu and Blackstone, with their talk of mixed constitutions and checks and balances, masked the repression and hobbling of the democratic element by unchecked aristocracy and oligarchy. Human reason, he implied, must be brought to bear on the myths and accretions of government itself. The much-vaunted British constitution was a tangle of complexities, and hence vague and devoid of a focus of responsibility. In effect, he charged, the so-called checks and balances have led to the aggrandizement of monarchical tyranny over the other branches of government. Indeed, at any given time, for government to act at all, one of the branches must predominate and outweigh the checks and balances. This argument is reminiscent of Edmund Burke's blast against the idea of mixed and balanced government in his anarchistic first work, The Vindication of Natural Society. Paine concluded the bulk of his magnificent pamphlet with these stirring lines, Oh, ye that love mankind, ye that dare oppose not only the tyranny, but the tyrant, stand forth. Every spot of the old world is overrun with oppression. Freedom hath been hunted round the globe. Oh, receive the fugitive, and prepare in time an asylum for mankind. 
sounding the clarion call for the democratic libertarian cause as the party of hope, the party of progress. In short, the party of a secular, rational messianism. He eloquently hailed the impending future. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. The birthday of a new world is at hand. The explosive success of common sense emboldened the radicals to follow with pamphlets and articles extolling the goal of independence, excoriating King George as a full-blooded Nero, and anticipating the great benefits of free trade with all the world that would flow from an independent status. That the Tories, the quasi-Tories, and conservatives who opposed independence should abominate common sense was, of course, to be expected, reviling it as that artful, insidious, and pernicious work of sedition and frenzy. Several Tories hastened to publish pamphlets of rebuttal, warning of the ruin, horror, and desolation that would stem from abandoning the happy and peaceful status of a colony to pursue the romantic chimera of independence. Independence was roundly denounced as absurdly impractical and utopian, a project of ambitious innovators who are attempting to hurry into a scene of anarchy. Their scheme of independence is visionary. It is true that Paine wanted the polity to approximate as closely as possible the libertarian state of nature. In that sense, as Halavy pointed out, the principle of the natural identity of interest when applied to the solution of the problem of politics seems logically to lead to the anarchistic thesis. Conservative landed oligarchs such as Landon Carter and Henry Lawrence considered the Paine pamphlet as indecent, rascally, and dangerous. But the Tories and conservatives soon found that their attacks on independence were in vain, that there is a fascination belonging to the word liberty that beguiles the minds of the vulgar. Volume 4, Chapter 29, Massachusetts Turns Conservative. By far the most influential rebuttal to common sense, however, came not from the fading Tories, but from a rapidly emerging right wing within the independence movement. Until 1775, virtually the sole focus of political conflict in the colonies was the anti-British resistance movement, on what side to take and how fast to travel. But after Lexington and Concord, another great problem confronted the Americans, the structure of the internal polity within each colony. And as independence drew nearer, the internal problem, the problem of who should rule at home, in the famous phrase of Karl Becker, came increasingly to the fore as compared to the older problem of home rule. Of course, this separation can be overdrawn, and clearly British rule had created and propped up an internal domestic oligarchy. But essentially, the internal problem had naturally been submerged by the struggle against Britain until the war began, and the choice of forms of government had to be faced. 
before Lexington and Concord then, the radical conservative left-right conflict centered around the struggle with Great Britain. After that point, a new set of conflicts emerged. Historians have long quarreled about the existence of internal conflicts and about the possible continuity of the various ideological factions over the years. The first thing that can be flatly asserted is that the conservatives on the British question became arch-conservatives on the domestic scene. Believers in strong, central, oligarchic government from abroad also desired strong, central, oligarchic government at home. Some of the conservatives became outright Tories and thereby put themselves outside the American dialogue. Others, as we shall see below, opposed independence up to the last moment and finally opted for the rebel cause in deep resignation in order to guide it in a conservative direction. In short, they were more flexible and adaptable than their outright Tory brethren. These conservatives particularly predominated in the quasi-Tory provinces of New York and Pennsylvania. Among conservatives, then, continuity prevailed before and after 1775. The ultra-right before was the ultra-right afterward. There were no cases of quasi-Tories later shifting to become radical on domestic issues. The same continuity did not apply, however, to the pre-1775 left, to those who had led the radical fight against Great Britain. Out of this increasingly victorious group, there began to emerge a cohesive faction who were radical on independence and yet highly conservative on domestic affairs. In one sense, this lack of continuity is understandable, for as the unifying British question began to give way to consideration of domestic matters, temporarily suspended differences among the radicals inevitably came to the fore. Every revolution, after all, splits as it advances from one stage to the next, and former advocates fail to adhere to its inner logic and go over into opposition. But in this case, the split was particularly poignant, for those who remained radical on domestic questions simply wanted to fulfill at home the grand rhetoric of liberty and democracy, which both wings had effectively employed in the fight for America against Great Britain. In the case of the powerful center of the Virginia oligarchy, this split was to be expected. It was clear from the beginning, for example, that Washington was a radical on Britain and independence, and yet a staunch conservative domestically. This rare centrist quality was one of the main reasons for his selection as army commander-in-chief. But the real shocker was Massachusetts. Massachusetts had always been the home of radicalism, the spearhead and vanguard of the American left. Now it was Massachusetts that was to turn almost en masse to deep-dyed conservatism on domestic issues. Certainly one great reason for this was a lack of opposition on which to hone 
one's edge. In contrast to Pennsylvania or New York, for example, where conservatism had always been dominant and radicalism precarious, Toryism had always been inherently feeble in Massachusetts. With little opposition on which to develop a cutting edge, the tendency for Massachusetts radicalism was to grow lax and conservative on domestic affairs. A second problem was a crisis of leadership. John Hancock, as we have seen, turned sharply rightward, largely out of peak. More serious was the collapse of the great Massachusetts leaders, the Adamses. The brilliant young John Adams not only turned sharply rightward on domestic matters, he was quickly to stamp himself as the major theoretician of conservative American polity, a polity that would eventually end up as British rule without Great Britain. And Sam Adams, now that the domestic scene was inevitably growing in importance, lost his former marvelous sureness of step. Uncertain, adrift in unfamiliar waters, he was from then on to drift and veer erratically leftward and rightward, his basically radical instincts at war with the influence of his brilliant cousin John. And with the Adamses shifting, the faithful followers of the Massachusetts left shifted with them. The basic issue in internal affairs was simply, would the American governments remain as they had emerged at the outset of the revolution, spontaneous, libertarian, democratic, and responsive to the checks of the people? Or would they revert to something very like oligarchic British rule, strong government, with an executive and upper legislative house far removed from the people and only partially checked by them? Would oligarchic power be resumed by a new set of Tory lords in another guise? This is what the internal struggle in the years after Lexington and Concord was basically all about. And this is why the separation of home rule from rule at home can be highly artificial. For in a profound sense, those who remained radical on the domestic front were carrying to completion the meaning of the struggle against Britain. After all, their objection was not only to a certain set of Tory and monarchical rulers, their objection was also directed to governmental power itself, to executive oligarchy, to taxes and restrictions, and to big government. They did not propose to overthrow one set of masters in order to raise up another. If Tom Paine became the ideological spokesman of the new left, John Adams was the theoretician of the new right. This new right was, of course, of inestimable value to the conservative cause, the New York and Philadelphia aristocrats, for example, who had to be dragged into independence, would have never been accepted as leaders of a new independent America. But John Adams and the Massachusetts men, impeccably in the forefront of the revolution, their presence in the conservative camp could not but lend that camp the color of patriotic respectability, which it so desperately needed after independence. In contrast to most believers in independence, Adams was angered 
rather than exhilarated by common sense. A vain and petulant man, he was patently envious of the popular success of one whom he considered a Johnny-come-lately in the independence movement. More than that, the democratic-libertarian sentiments went against his grain. Already he had set forth his views on the proper government to fellow congressional delegates from other provinces who had sought his valued advice. Now, to counteract Paine's influence, Adams hastened to publish these views in his Thoughts on Government, a highly influential work that would prove to be a virtual political manifesto of American conservatism. Adams' aim was, frankly, the counter-revolutionary one of restoring as nearly as possible the status quo ante, the pre-revolutionary form of government especially a powerful executive and judiciary, separate from the popular assembly and independent of it. His political system, akin to that of Blackstone and Montesquieu, rested on a separation of powers, especially a separation from the checks of democratic procedure. In order to limit and overcome the democratic arm, an independent executive power wielded by a new governor and council was to be added to the popularly elected revolutionary committees. This executive to have an absolute veto over the legislature. Within the legislature, an upper house removed from the people was to be created, supposedly as an aristocratic element in the polity. And Adams looked forward happily to the two houses being in perpetual conflict. Each house was to have an absolute veto over the other, and to make sure that the executive officials were to have little dependence upon the public, he proposed that the lower house choose the upper house and that they would together select the governor. Even this hedged in and ringed about democratic assembly was to be chosen only by property-owning voters. Furthermore, in contrast to the royal system of judges strictly under the control of the executive and the crown, Adams urged an independent judiciary holding life terms, a patent device to remove the judges completely from checks by the populace. The judiciary in America had never been in the least independent. The colonial assemblies had always had judicial functions, and in the 17th century, the Maryland, Virginia, and New England assemblies were the highest courts of appeal in their respective colonies. By the 18th century, however, the judiciary was appointed by the crown and became an organ of the executive. Life or good behavior, judicial appointments were originally advanced as a means of removing judges holding their offices at the king's pleasure, of curbing the absolute control of the crown. But with the royal power gone, life tenure of judges would be a backward step away from popular control. The emergence of John Adams as the primary theoretician of domestic conservatism was paralleled by a conservative course of the colony and of leaders who had formerly led the radical vanguard. Of all the colonies, Massachusetts in particular faced an easy political path and quickly took it. The British coercive acts, after all, had been directed against the Massachusetts Charter. What more apt 
and more safely conservative course than simply to reassert the charter of the status quo ante. And this is precisely what the Massachusetts Provincial Congress did when the Continental Congress in early June mildly advised it to do so. Of course, no governor could yet be found. But the general court, legislature, was reconstituted in elections, and the council was selected, as before, by the elected house, now to take on temporarily the entire executive power. The general court resumed in mid-July 1775 for a very long session. The leaders of Massachusetts were highly contented with their scarcely visible and conservative glide back to the Pre-Coercive Act Charter, achieving Adams's frankly stated aim to contrive some method for the colonies to glide insensibly from under the old government into peaceable and contented submission to new ones. In short, veneration for persons in authority of every rank. The former radical, James Warren, quickly concurred. Nor were the congregational clergy, especially in the seaboard towns, slow to inculcate such supposed virtues in their congregations. In his important election sermon before the general court in 1776, the Reverend Samuel West of the town of Dartmouth, a close friend of Hancock, urged everyone to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates. With the newfound veneration of power came also its perquisites, and the less scrupulous of the Whig leaders made full use of their new appointment powers. Thomas Cushing, for example, managed to obtain five important judicial posts from the council for himself. But not all the old radicals were content to celebrate the status quo, and a relatively small band of new radicals emerged who fought for further libertarian changes in Massachusetts government. Many radicals were unhappy at the continuation of the established Congregational Church in Massachusetts. Isaac Bacchus, the leading Baptist of New England, presented a strong plea to the general court for disestablishment and religious liberty, but his petition was quietly buried. Also prominent in the vain fight in the general court for disestablishment was Joseph Hawley, an eminent lawyer of Northampton and leader of the radicals in western Massachusetts. And a writer in a Boston paper denouncing such glaring instances of religious tyranny as the establishment of the Congregational Church asked if they were contending for liberty that we might have it in our power to trample on the rights of others. The plural office-holding engaged in by Cushing and others was widely protested in the press. A writer in the Boston, Massachusetts Spy, charged that the members of the assembly have divided among themselves and their particular friends all the civil and military offices in the colony. Another decrier of the new oligarchy warned that they might be fighting against a foreign slavery only to suffer a domestic one to spring up in our country. The center of the rapidly emerging new radical movement, however, was the farthest western county of Berkshire. The Berkshire towns had been radically anti-British for several years, led by college graduates, generally from Yale, 
who had entered law, politics, or the ministry. Also strongly Whig in western Massachusetts had been physicians, merchants, and storekeepers. Most of the lawyers in the West, heavily dependent on royal patronage, had been Tory. But the substantial number of Whig lawyers were led by the veteran Joseph Hawley. The congregational ministry in the West had been strongly radical, led by the young Reverend Thomas Allen of Pittsfield in Berkshire County and the Reverend Joseph Lyman of Hatfield. Now that the war had begun and the focus of radicalism was shifting to internal liberty, Berkshire took the lead of the new left. There are two factors that in part account for the activity in Berkshire. The relative youth of the Berkshire leadership, due to its status as a newly settled frontier county, and the indefatigable leadership of the Reverend Thomas Allen, who stumped the county organizing the new opposition to the status quo. Allen's friend, Joseph Hawley of Northampton, much further east, would have been a natural leader of the movement, but chronic illness allowed him to be effective only sporadically. Having traveled throughout the West, calling for a new and more libertarian constitution, Allen became known as the leader of the Berkshire Constitutionalist Movement. In mid-December 1775, he called a Berkshire County Convention of Town Committees of Correspondence to meet at Stockbridge in the southern part of the county, an area much less devoted to the radical cause than was the North. The resolves of the Stockbridge Convention were simple and straightforward. The people of Berkshire should at least be able to nominate men for county offices from which the Massachusetts Council could select its choices. From this simple and almost innocuous request, the delegates from eight towns in southern Berkshire issued an angry protest. The right-wing dissenters bitterly attacked the Stockbridge Resolution, charging that the leaders of the convention were men whose principles would tend to dissolve all government and introduce dissension, anarchy, and disorder. Five of the prominent conservative dissenters were, not coincidentally, recent council appointees to the very county post in contention, and hence had a vested interest in the defeat of the Constitutionalist movement. Of these, three were understandably under particular popular suspicion. John Ashley of Stockbridge, one of the hated 17 Tory rescinders of the Massachusetts Circular Letter of 1768, and Mark Hopkins of Sheffield, and Jaleel Woodbridge of Richmond, formerly justices of the peace by royal appointment. Stung by the conservative dissent, Allen drew up a remonstrance of the town of Pittsfield to the general court, setting forth his and other constitutionalist views systematically and at great length. It turned out that the conservatives from South Berkshire had not been far wrong in analyzing the ultimate position of Allen and his supporters. For many months, the towns and counties of Massachusetts had nullified the royal appointments and therefore closed the local courts. They had all been living in a state of nature, a state close to anarchy, and they enjoyed the experience. As Allen's petition strongly put it, since the suspension of government, 
we have lived in peace, love, safety, liberty, and happiness. The only governmental power was the local committees, and these were largely devoted to crushing Tories. But now the men of Pittsfield saw with dismay that assumption by the general court of the old executive power to appoint county judges and officials would shortly end this libertarian idol. We find ourselves in danger of returning to our former state and of undergoing a yoke of oppression which we are no longer able to bear, a yoke of unlimited passive obedience and non-resistance to governmental power. For their practical demands, Allen and the town of Pittsfield insisted on the right to annul the central appointive power by electing or at least nominating all of their local county officials. Heedless of the radical opposition, the general court tried to establish a county court in Berkshire. The local committee of inspection forcibly prevented the court from opening, and Allen repeatedly denounced the charter government of Massachusetts as oppressive, defective, and rotten to the very core, which ought not by any means to be submitted to. Significantly, he was supposed to have based his argument in part on Paine's common sense, which had just been published. To the east, neighboring Hampshire County, in a convention of delegates from its towns on March 11, decided by a narrow majority to close its county courts. This court-closing movement was led by Joseph Hawley and by the leaders of Chesterfield and other towns of far western and northern Hampshire. The resolution was opposed by the older trading centers of the county on the Connecticut River, Springfield, Hatfield, and Northampton. Allen's subversive discourses were reported in great detail to the general court by John Ashley and his fellow Berkshire conservatives, and Allen was denounced as an incendiary and sower of anarchy. He was reputed to have declared that it was the duty of the people to oppose the rotten charter government and that he would rather be without any form of government than to submit to this constitution. And again, the people of this province had lived in peace and good order for more than a year without government. He also trenchantly informed the people that they were not simply fighting Great Britain, but all tyranny. If the Congress abused its power, it should be opposed in the same manner as the king and parliament. He cautioned, Whilst we are fighting against oppression from the king and parliament, we must not suffer usurpers rising up amongst ourselves. Worried by the criticism relayed to the general court, Allen and the town of Pittsfield sent another remonstrance to the legislature in May 1776, elaborating and also bolderizing their position. They took hasty pains to assure the general court of their belief in the absolute necessity of legal government to prevent anarchy and confusion and to deny false charges that they were a mere mob of debtors eager to close the courts so as to avoid payments of their debts. They assured the legislature of their belief that legal government is a great blessing in this petition, they warned of the potential of domestic tyranny rising up to replace the old. 
A particular complaint was the practice of the county judges of handing out licenses to innkeepers at a fee of six shillings, and more and then dividing the fees among themselves. Allen then set forth their political theory, that the people are the fountain of power, that since the dissolution of British power, these colonies have fallen into a state of nature, and that the first step toward the restoration of civil government would be to form a fundamental constitution as the basis and groundwork of legislation, and to check the strong bias of human nature to tyranny and despotism by a wanton exercise of power. Furthermore, a new constitution, being above the legislature, could not be made by the legislature itself. It must be effected by a true compact among the majority of the people. The Massachusetts General Court responded to this pressure by reducing all court fees in the province, but this was hardly enough to satisfy the Berkshire demand, and the courts in Berkshire and Hampshire counties remained closed. The one writer cited by Allen as a most respectable authority for these views was James Berg and his work, Political Disquisitions. Berg, an elderly Scottish schoolmaster, published the Disquisitions in England in 1774. It was reprinted in Philadelphia the following year and soon became a highly influential bestseller throughout the colonies. It was eagerly read by the leaders and the common people alike. Berg had turned his searchlight on the tyranny and corruption of the English Parliament of his day. Slashing away at the tightly controlled oligarchy constituting Parliament, the radical liberal Berg called for thoroughgoing political reform. Corrected representation, annual parliaments, secret ballots by the public, open debates in Parliament, and universal manhood suffrage except for men on relief. Government, pensioners, and placemen should be abolished, he wrote, thus ending the economic dependence of members of Parliament on the Crown. To effect these aims, he saw that mere pleas to the extant Parliament would hardly suffice. Instead, the people of each parish and county in the land should band together in a great association to put severe pressure upon the government and even, implicitly, serve as the potential nucleus of revolution if other means should fail. The failure of reform would lead the people to prefer the temporary evils of revolution to the permanent evil of tyranny, distressing and debasing the human species from generation to generation and deluging the world in a never-ebbing sea of blood. Not only did he thereby anticipate the English Association Movement, but he also gave implicit backing to the burgeoning association movement in America, which fulfilled these very concepts. Berg also hailed Algernon Sidney's justification of rebellion, as well as the writings of Trenchard and Gordon, and attacked the practice of hiring mercenary troops. On specifically colonial problems, Berg bitterly attacked taxation without representation and the oppressive measures against America. The Handlin's attempt to downgrade the radical content and influence of Berg's disquisitions 
is unconvincing. If the Reverend Thomas Allen was the political leader of the Massachusetts left, the anonymous author of the brief pamphlet, The People the Best Governors, or A Plan of Government Founded on the Just Principles of Natural Freedom, was, in a sense, its intellectual leader. This trenchant libertarian writer declared that the people best know their wants and necessities and therefore are best able to govern themselves. He attacked upper houses armed with veto power and not directly responsible to the people as engines of oppression. A small council chosen by the assembly might be admirable for the sake of efficiency, but it should merely prepare material for the assembly and have no veto power over it. This writer not only wanted representation proportionate to the population, he called boldly for universal manhood suffrage shorn of any property qualifications which would lead to tyranny over the poor by the rich. He would have a judiciary and perhaps an executive elected annually by the people, but interestingly, the executive would be denied any veto over the legislature. Thus, he sensibly opposed not so much a judiciary independent of the legislature as a judiciary independent of the people. He also suggested that in each colony a House of Representatives armed with some judicial power be the Supreme Court of Appeals in the province, especially since, as he perceived, judges' decisions are often a camouflaged form of legislation. The author of The People, the Best Governors, grounded his program squarely on natural rights and natural law. God gave mankind freedom by nature, made every man equal to his neighbor, and has virtually enjoined them to govern themselves by their own laws. Everyone's right to freedom is the same. This identical right to freedom for all men is evidently what the author meant by equality. Any property qualification for voting or oligarchic organs of government would deny this natural equal freedom and make an inequality among the people and set up a number of lords over the rest. Volume 4, Chapter 30, The Drive Toward Independence As we have already learned, although New England was ready for independence from Great Britain, Torpor reigned in the Continental Congress through February. Cushing retained his seat until February so that the Massachusetts delegation was not yet under control of the pro-independence faction. And Virginia, the great mainstay of radicalism outside New England, was torn with dissension on this issue. Furthermore, the radical leaders, Richard Henry Lee and Thomas Jefferson, were temporarily back home, and the other independent stalwarts, George Washington and Patrick Henry, were serving in the armed forces, so that the majority of the Virginia delegation remaining in Philadelphia were arch-conservatives. In late February 1776, opinion in the Continental Congress shifted sharply leftward toward independence. The shift was spurred by news of the British Prohibitory Act as well as the proclamation of rebellion and the impact of common sense. 
and was quickened by the arrival in Philadelphia of Elbridge Gerry, an arrival which swung the opportunistic Hancock back to the radical line. Furthermore, Lee returned to his seat at Philadelphia to lead the Virginia radicals, and the conservative Virginia oligarch Benjamin Harrison shifted into the radicals' camp, thus giving them the vital majority of their delegation. The Continental Congress then had a probable majority for independence, a majority intensified by the good news of the British evacuation of Boston. On March 20, Congress urged Canada to set up a new government and join the United Colonies, and, significantly, there was no mention of eventual reconciliation. This was a move hinting strongly of independence. The hint became stronger still in the great April decisions, including winning French aid and throwing open American ports to all countries, all of which did everything up to the brink of a declaration of independence itself. Beyond this, Congress could not go, for it could not bind the separate colonies to independence. Indeed, some of the provincial delegations were instructed against independence by their constituencies. The final push for independence had first to be taken by the separate colonies themselves. After New England, the next region where independence came to the fore was the South. Paradoxically, the first virtual authorization came from Georgia, once the most laggard of all the colonies. Reacting to Lexington and Concord against its former indifference, Georgia had established a revolutionary provincial congress and a subordinate council of safety. Urged by the Continental Congress in November to step up military resistance to royal arms, the merchants and artisans of Savannah led the Georgia rebels to establish more formal government by the end of January 1776. The government fulfilled the crucial radical requirements, a unicameral elected legislature to which the Executive Council of Safety, the courts, and the militia were strictly subordinate, and the legislature was selected by universal taxpayer suffrage. The president of the Council of Safety, in turn, was strictly subordinate to the council and could not act without its consent. The stalwart, militant Archibald Bullock was chosen for this position, and five radicals were soon selected as delegates to the Continental Congress. In April, the Georgia rebels adopted a temporary constitution formalizing this regime, and on April 5, the Provincial Congress authorized its delegates to vote in whatever way they wished on independence. Thus, Georgia was the first colony to explicitly authorize its delegates to vote for independence. And considering the composition of its delegation, this itself was tantamount to an affirmative vote. By April, there were no worries about Georgia's readiness for independence. Georgia, however, was very small and one of the least significant colonies. Far more important was North Carolina, as was the case in most of the other provinces in 1775. North Carolina was run by a spontaneous network of county committees capped by a provincial congress. 
Several factors served to embolden North Carolina opinion in the spring of 1776. One was the rebel triumph of the Battle of Moore's Creek Bridge on February 27, where the Tories of the province were crushed. Another was the threat of invasion by General Sir Henry Clinton's fleet off Cape Fear and the inspiration provided by General Charles Lee. Lee's assumption of an independent Southern command that March had a vital military as well as political impact. This scourge of the Tories was as well-versed and radical in political warfare as he was in military matters. His arrest of Maryland's royal governor, the popular Robert Eden, galvanized the struggle. And this was followed by his sending an aide, General Robert Howe, to a convention of North Carolina radicals meeting in Halifax in early April. Chaired by the ordinarily cautious and conservative Samuel Johnston, the political leader of the colony, and influenced by General Howe, the convention took a noteworthy and climactic step, sending positive instructions on April 12 to its congressional delegation to vote for independence and for any necessary foreign alliances. Here was the first frank instruction for independence in America, albeit the instruction was to concur in independence rather than take the initiative. Lee warmly congratulated North Carolina on this promising step. While the North Carolina instruction for independence passed without difficulty, the April Convention for writing a constitution rent the province in bitter ideological conflict. The first local resolution for independence had been made as early as May 31, 1775, in Mecklenburg County, in the far western frontier of North Carolina. The Mecklenburg Resolution had declared all British laws and commissions, as well as the royal government of the province, to be null and void and coupled this early call for independence with the establishment of a county-wide court as the local government elected by universal manhood suffrage. The following August, Mecklenburg County spelled out its comprehensive domestic radicalism in its instructions to its representatives at the Provincial Congress. They called for suffrage by all free men, the abolition of property qualifications for members of the Assembly, and the correction of apportionment in the assembly in accordance with population. Plural office holding was to be prohibited and local officials elected by the people, and there was to be no oligarchical veto over the decisions of the elected legislature. True to its democratic liberal position, the county urged disestablishment of the Anglican Church but they were able to go only so far in their libertarianism and pagan or papal religions were decried as false and could not be tolerated in the province. At the Constitutional Convention in April 1776, the pro-independence forces split sharply on the issue of domestic democracy versus conservatism. A furious struggle ensued over bicameralism, popular election of local judges and suffrage restrictions, with Samuel Johnston, his brother-in-law James Iredell, and William Hooper leading the conservative forces. 
a deadlock between the two factions forced postponement of the attempt to write a constitution for North Carolina. The road to independence was not nearly so smooth in the neighboring colony of South Carolina. Throughout 1775, this province had a formidable block of conservatives deeply opposed to any hint of independence. Even the Provincial Council of Safety, dominated by conservatives, rejected the plea of the radicals to fortify Charleston Harbor against the expected British attack that finally came in June 1776. In early November, the Continental Congress suggested that South Carolina establish a new government for the duration of the conflict, a suggestion that it had also made to New Hampshire. At the February meeting of the South Carolina Provincial Congress, the conservatives and radicals battled furiously. The right wing, led by the influential planter Rollins Lowndes, even objected to any new government as a possible step toward independence. Battling for a formal government, for that very reason, were William Henry Drayton and the great veteran radical leader Christopher Gadsden, who characteristically called for independence publicly. The new government was finally adopted at the end of March, spurred by news of the hard-line British proclamation of rebellion and the Prohibitory Act. Even then, the South Carolinians took pains to dissociate this step from independence, and the irrepressible Gadsden was rebuked by the bulk of the Provincial Congress when he read passages from Common Sense to the assemblage. The South Carolina Constitution of March 1776 was, unsurprisingly, a highly conservative instrument. The Representative Assembly was to choose an upper house, and both houses would in turn select the third body, the Privy Council, to exert administrative and judicial authority in place of the old Royal Council. Both houses would also choose a president, who would have veto power over the legislature. Before the Revolution, South Carolina had had perhaps the most badly apportioned representation in the colonies, Three-quarters of the white population of the province living in the back country were unrepresented in the assembly. The new constitution allowed the back country 40 representatives out of 184, but while a considerable improvement, this representation was still weighted outrageously on behalf of the lowland areas. This constitution was severely criticized by the democratic forces for its hasty adoption without explicit approval by the people, for the presidential veto which smacked strongly of the royal prerogative, and for the oligarchic upper house. The outlook for independence in South Carolina was not bright, but the radical actions of the Continental Congress the news of the victory at Boston, and the bold move of North Carolina for independence strongly influenced the province. As Chief Justice of the new government, William Henry Drayton selected a new judicial structure free of royal authority, and at the end of April, he took it upon himself in a charge to a Charleston grand jury to proclaim South Carolina's independence of Great Britain. He declared that the colony was pursuing its right to revolution against a tyrannical government. 
treating the temporary Constitution of South Carolina as an act of permanent separation, he defended it as a reflection of the laws of nature and reason. South Carolina's president, John Rutledge, who had shifted to the side of independence along with other moderate conservatives, officially sent Drayton's printed statement to the Continental Congress. This act was properly received as tantamount to a call for independence by the province itself. The Southern accession to the cause of independence meant little, of course, without the adherence of Virginia, the preeminent province of the South. This province, despite its leadership in the resistance movement to Great Britain, would not be an easy mark. While it had been eager to resist Great Britain and had thrown itself into battle against Lord Dunmore's raids, its revolutionary bodies were in the hands of thoroughgoing conservative oligarchs who balked strongly at independence, especially Edmund Pendleton, president of the Virginia Committee of Safety, and Robert Carter Nicholas, the committee's treasurer. Patrick Henry, leader of the radical forces, was repeatedly humiliated by the Committee of Safety in his post as commander-in-chief of the Virginia militia, and, embittered, he temporarily retired to private life at the end of February 1776. One of the reasons for this treatment of Henry was his belief in an individualistic and democratic army. The Conservative Committee of Safety realized in dismay that he did not seem too conscious of the importance of strict discipline in the army, but regarded his soldiers as so many gentlemen who had met to defend their country and exacted from them little more than the courtesy that was proper among equals. The attitude of the Virginia Conservatives toward independence may be gauged by their vituperative reaction to common sense. The eminent planter Landon Carter was at no loss for words to vent his spleen. It was dangerous, absurd, scandalous, rascally, nonsensical, and brutish. Like so many arch-conservatives since, he raised a social argument against Paine's individualism. Realizing that Paine grounded his doctrine on the individualistic theory of natural law, he wrote, this man writes for independency and is under the necessity of stating an independence in man at his creation when it is evident he must be a social being. In early 1776, Pendleton, Nicholas, and the conservative forces of Virginia managed to send as a delegate to the Continental Congress the extremely wealthy planter and merchant Carter Braxton of the Carter family, who was the Virginia associate in Robert Morris's rapidly burgeoning financial empire. Braxton's mission was to block independence, and this he set out to achieve with great diligence. During April, however, sentiment in Virginia veered ever more toward independence. The news of the victory at Boston, the bold moves of the Continental Congress, and the decisions for independence by the rest of the South all played their part. Added to this were pressures for independence by Richard Henry Lee and by George Washington through his brother John, the fact of Washington's being a Virginian being highly important in attracting the patriotism of fellow Virginians. 
Finally, at the end of March, Charles Lee took up his post at Williamsburg as head of the Southern Military Department and added his determined and fiery personality to the pressure upon the Virginians. Indeed, Lee stayed at Williamsburg largely to rouse the inhabitants and press for independence. His presence was especially needed for the crucial April elections for the critical meeting of the provincial convention starting on May 6, elections that hinged on the issue of independence. So overwhelming was the sentiment of the new convention for independence that on May 15, Virginia unanimously instructed its delegates to urge the Continental Congress to declare the United Colonies free and independent states absolved from all allegiance to or dependence upon the crown or parliament of Great Britain. Here significantly was not simply an agreement as in most of the other provinces, to concur in any congressional resolution for independence, here was an instruction for actually proposing the final break with Great Britain. Congress was also urged to form whatever foreign alliances or confederation of the erstwhile colonies that might be necessary. The conservatives of the convention bent easily with the wind and endorsed the resolution. Having opted for independence, the Virginians believed they had to settle on a constitution for the province, and upon its nature, furious battles ensued. The internal struggle was not, however, as it was in such provinces as Massachusetts, between Payne-type Democrats on the left and Adams-like adherents to mixed government on the right. So conservative were all the leaders of Virginia that the debate shifted sharply rightward. The Virginia left held views similar to the Massachusetts right. Of its leaders, Patrick Henry hailed thoughts on government as fully expressing his own views, and Thomas Jefferson's doctrines were quite similar. Other leaders of the Virginia moderates were Richard Henry Lee and the eminent lawyer George Mason. Bitterly opposing these moderate forces were the ultra-conservatives, headed by Pendleton, Nicholas, and their chief theoretician, Carter Braxton. Braxton quickly published in An Address to the Convention of Virginia, specifically designed as a reactionary rebuttal to Adams's thoughts on government. The pamphlet brusquely hailed the current British Constitution as ideal and urged on Virginia a similar government. Braxton insisted that the popularly elected assembly choose a governor and members of an upper house of the legislature, both of these to hold their positions for life, that they might possess all the weight, stability, and dignity due to the importance of their office. In this way, both the governor and the upper house would be totally independent of the people and hence avoid the evils, the tumult, and riot of democracy. Braxton was here simply taking the concept of Adams, Jefferson, and Mason of some independent governing bodies and pushing it to its logical conclusion, life terms for everyone outside the lower house. The Virginia moderates, however, did not see the connection between Braxton's plan and theirs, and they dismissed his pamphlet as silly and contemptible. 
Patrick Henry, leading the moderates of the committee appointed to draft a Virginia constitution, despaired for a time of triumphing over the great bias to aristocracy among most of our opulent families. When he poured out his worries to his friend John Adams, Adams answered with an eloquent and thundering denunciation of Virginia's ultra-conservative and highly aristocratic nabobs. The Dons, the Bashaws, the Grandees, the Patricians, the Sockhams, the Nabobs, curse, but all in vain. The decree is gone forth, and it cannot be recalled that a more equal liberty than has prevailed in other parts of the earth must be established in America. That exuberance of pride which has produced an insolent domination in a very few opulent, monopolizing families will be brought down nearer to the confines of reason and moderation. Dominating the committee drafting the Virginia Constitution was Henry's right-hand man in leading the Virginia moderates, George Mason. Mason, who had drafted the Fairfax Resolves, put through the Fairfax County meeting by Washington, had played an important role in leading the revolutionary forces in Virginia. The Constitution, as submitted by the committee and adopted unanimously on June 29, signaled a victory for the moderates. An elected lower house would consist, inequitably, as in colonial days, of two members from each county. An upper house, or senate, would also be elected annually by the people. A governor would be elected annually by joint ballot of both houses of the legislature, as would a privy council or council of state, to assist the governor. To check entrenchment of an executive in power, no more than three terms in succession were allowed a governor, and he could not act without the consent of the privy council. Superior judges were to be elected by both houses, but county judges and other officials were to be appointed by the governor and were to hold office on good behavior, that is, virtually for life. Both the gubernatorial appointment and the life terms were holdovers from colonial rule. The proportion of two members from each county was palpably weighted in favor of the planter oligarchy of the Tidewater counties, which had larger plantations and fewer eligible voters than the Piedmont and Valley areas. Thus, tiny Warwick County in the Tidewater, with a few hundred voters, had a delegation in the lower house equal to large western counties containing a few thousand voters each. As time went on and emigration continued westward, this disproportion would grow still greater. Virginia's restrictive qualifications for voting were retained intact despite proposals by Mason and Jefferson to broaden the suffrage. In their desire to demonstrate that a... Colonial Virginia was thoroughly democratic except for the impositions of Great Britain, and b. that the American Revolution was in no sense an internal social revolution, Robert E. and b. Catherine Brown became mired in a grave inner contradiction. If, for example, representation was wholly undemocratic because of British coercion, then how is it that this imposition was cheerfully continued in the new Constitution by the supposedly democratic Virginia leadership? 
one cannot pin the responsibility for aristocracy in colonial Virginia upon Great Britain, insist with some justice that there was no internal revolution in Virginia, and then conclude that Virginia was democratic before and after the revolution. In his brilliant review of the Browns' work, Stephen Saunders Webb writes that they insist that the prevalence of appointive office in Virginia was owing to imperial control rather than to aristocratic dominance. They fail to consider that the appointive system was not significantly altered by the revolution, which eliminated imperial control. As for the absence of an internal revolution in Virginia, this is a fact which they attribute to a general acceptance of democracy. It is at least as logical and more consistent with the fact that almost every revolutionary leader in Virginia was an aristocrat to conclude that this remarkable quietude was the result of a continuing aristocratic hegemony. He justly adds that to take such quietude and lack of widespread public protest as a sign of democracy would mean that Louis XIV's France was not undemocratic either. Due to a determined fight by the Henry forces, the power of the governor was set as subordinate to the legislature. Only the House could originate legislation, and the Senate could not amend an appropriations bill. In selecting the governor, the moderates put up Patrick Henry, while the arch-conservatives selected the virtually outright Tory Thomas Nelson. Henry was elected by a vote of 60 to 45. The Council of State chosen to aid him was dominated by the conservatives. As a preamble to the Constitution, the Provincial Convention inserted a list of bitter charges against the person of King George III sent by Jefferson from his post in the Continental Congress. On the basis of these charges, leveled squarely and boldly against the king, Virginia repeated its assertion of independence and declared its connection with the British crown totally dissolved. If the Virginia left was middle of the road on the structure of government, the same caution and moderation were not shown on another critical struggle waged in the provincial convention. In one of the monumental libertarian advances of political history, the Virginia left decided to enact a Declaration of Rights committing themselves, at least in theory, to protect and not to invade the natural rights of each individual. Thus was born the monumental concept of a Bill of Rights designed to prevent government from invading the rights of the individual. On this issue, the Virginia left proved to be radical indeed. The convention had assigned to the committee with the job of drawing up a Declaration of Rights the man best suited to the task, George Mason, who threw himself into the work with a will aided by Thomas Ludwell Lee. In an effort to prepare the climate for the Declaration, numerous county petitions were circulated, vaguely calling for democratic and liberal measures. Drafted almost completely by Mason, the Declaration of Rights was introduced by the committee and modified by the convention. Some of the changes strengthened the Declaration, but the central struggle grew out of the determined attempt by the arch-conservatives led by Nicholas to weaken or block it altogether. 
Patrick Henry's disquieting defection on forbidding ex post facto laws and bills of attainder cut these clauses from the Declaration. But the major battle was waged over its magnificent first clause. Mason had there written that all men are created equally free and independent and have certain inherent natural rights of which they cannot, by any compact, deprive or divest their posterity, among which are the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and attaining happiness and safety. Here, in a scintillating and compact form, was the essential statement of the radical libertarian theory of natural rights. The conservatives, possessed of the clarity given to them by their vested interest, saw immediately the main danger of this clause. If every person has a natural right to be equally free and independent, what happens to the institution of slavery on which rested the power and pelf of the Virginia planter aristocracy? Undoubtedly, Mason knew what he was about, For as early as 1765, he had criticized the institution of slavery on moral and economic grounds. Nicholas and his set of aristocrats and masters, in the words of Thomas Ludwell Lee, fought the clause fiercely. To declare all men created free and independent would invite a slave revolt, they argued. The conservatives were able to force modifications of the clause natural was excised from inherent rights, and God in nature was excised from another important clause. Namely was substituted for among which are to restrict the scope of individual rights. But most important, the clause, when they enter into a state of society, was inserted between of which and they cannot. This made it possible for the conservatives to rest content with interpreting natural rights as belonging only to those men who had entered into a state of society. Clearly, the slaves had never been given a chance to make this entrance. Despite these modifications, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, unanimously adopted by the Convention on June 12, 1776, is one of the great documents in American history. It set the pattern for all future state, national, and foreign bills of rights and stamped the libertarian doctrine of natural rights, at least in theory, upon the American Republic. The preamble of the Declaration stated that the representatives of the people of Virginia assert a body of rights which do pertain to them and their posterity as the basis and foundation of government. Following the first clause, the Declaration included democracy, that all power is, originally by God and nature, vested in and consequently derived from the people, that magistrates are their trustees and servants, and at all times answerable to them. The right of revolution when government fails to secure or violates proper aims, a majority of the people hath an indubitable, inalienable, and indefensible right to reform 
alter, or abolish it. No right of special or hereditary privileges, separation of the judiciary from the other functions of government, rotation of office in the legislative and executive branches, free and frequent elections, no taxation without representation, the traditional rights of a defendant to know the nature of the charges against him, to confront his accusers, to have a speedy trial by jury, which must be unanimous to convict him of a crime, not to be forced to give evidence against himself, and to be free of excessive bail and cruel or unusual punishments. The prohibition of general warrants, searches and seizures by government, must be named in advance in special warrants, and supported by advance evidence. Freedom of the press, one of the great bulwarks of liberty. No standing armies, which are in time of peace dangerous to liberty. A people's militia as the proper form of defense. Strict subordination of the military to the civil power and freedom of religion. Religion can be directed only by reason and conviction, not by force and violence, and therefore all men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience. On this last point, the phrase free exercise of religion had been substituted for a far weaker stress on religious toleration at the suggestion of Mason's young colleague on the drafting committee, James Madison. Emboldened by the march of Southern opinion and action, as well as by its own deeds of the preceding months, the Continental Congress in mid-May took the penultimate steps toward a final state of independence. On May 10, led by John Adams and Richard Henry Lee, it resolved to recommend to those legislatures of the United Colonies which had not done so to adopt suitable new governments of their own. No phrases hinting at eventual reconciliation with Great Britain appeared in this resolution, as in the advice to New Hampshire six months before, but it was still sufficiently bland to win the support of the conservatives in Congress. The big battle was waged immediately afterward over the preamble to the resolution. Drawn up by John Adams and backed by Richard Henry Lee, the preamble began with a list of grievances against Great Britain, directed against the king as well as parliament, and then concluded with this crucial and devastating passage. It appears absolutely irreconcilable to reason and good conscience now to take the oath necessary for the support of any government under the crown of Great Britain, and it is necessary that the exercise of every kind of authority under the said crown should be totally suppressed, and all the powers of government exerted under the authority of the people of the colonies. Here the continent was hurled at Great Britain. This preamble, attached to a call for new government, was nothing less than a de facto declaration of independence, Opposition to the preamble was led by James Duane of New York, Carter Braxton, and the brilliant young James Wilson. Wilson warned prophetically that passage of the preamble would put his province of Pennsylvania into an anarchic state of nature 
and dissolve its existing proprietary government. Congress, however, overrode the objections of the conservatives and adopted the preamble on May 15. The vote has been reported as six or seven to four, and assumedly among the four colonies in the negative were Pennsylvania, New York, and Maryland. Adams was understandably jubilant, writing that Congress had passed the most important resolution that ever was taken in America, one that was total, absolute independence, independence itself. Volume 4, Chapter 31, The Struggle in Pennsylvania and Delaware Congress's May resolutions spurred independence sentiment throughout the colonies, and John Adams soon exalted that Every post and every day rolls in upon us independence like a torrent. Virginia had struck for independence, and the Massachusetts House primed support in the grassroots by asking the towns their views on independence. Through May and June, the Massachusetts towns, as might be expected, answered that they would support the measure with their lives and fortunes. Rhode Island, too, was stimulated to instruct its delegates to sign any necessary treaties with foreign states. It had opted for independence as early as May 4, when the legislature had renounced all allegiance to King George and assailed his debasing and detestable tyranny. Adams' jubilation was decidedly premature. America could not proclaim its independence without the middle colonies— and the middle colonies still stood obdurately outside or opposed to the independence movement. The powerful landed oligarchs of New York and the highly conservative Philadelphia financiers stood four-square against independence. Their brilliant leaders, the Morrises, the Jays, the Livingstons, the Dickinsons, the Willings, and others— not only thoroughly dominated their provinces, they were shrewd enough not to turn outright Tory and thus lose any hope of ruling their respective populaces. Independence could not be assumed while these two great colonies remained adamant in opposition. The Pennsylvania Assembly had, in November, specifically directed its delegates to oppose any plan for independence, and the instructions of New York, Maryland, and Delaware had clearly emphasized American ties with Great Britain. Even as late as the May 1776 assembly election, the conservatives carried Philadelphia. On May 15, when Virginia and the Continental Congress were taking such rapid strides towards independence, the Maryland Convention, in a burst of reaction, was resolving unanimously that a reunion with Great Britain on constitutional principles would best secure the rights, liberty, and happiness of the whole empire. The radicals readily concluded that Pennsylvania was the key to their problem. If that great ultra-conservative province should capitulate to the radicals and independents, the other colonies would have to swing into line. Maryland and Delaware, caught between Pennsylvania and the South, could not hold out, and neither could a New York, isolated from all of her sister colonies. But to accomplish such a drastic change would require something on the order of a veritable internal revolution. 
the key to Pennsylvania politics was its almost unique status as a proprietary colony, a status it shared only with Maryland and Delaware, the latter being associated with it in the proprietorship of the Penn family. Directly under a sympathetic proprietary rather than the crown, Pennsylvania did not have to confront the royal tyranny directly or have its assembly dissolved or humbled by Great Britain. In contrast to the other colonies, therefore, Pennsylvania was not propelled into a state of nature and thence to a rule by spontaneously formed local committees and provincial congresses. Instead, throughout 1775, its colonial government continued complacently unaltered. Continuing in power were Pennsylvania's thoroughly undemocratic and malapportioned assembly, as well as its executive and judiciary appointed by the proprietary. Controlling the assembly with an iron hand was arch-conservative John Dickinson, along with the Quaker and financial oligarchy of Philadelphia and eastern Pennsylvania, all strongly opposed to independence. The Quakers and the proprietary party, formerly enemies, were now united in opposition to independence and in favor of the existing political structure. In Pennsylvania, there was no confusion between internal and external issues among the radical and conservative camps. The conservatives were opposed to independence and domestic reform, and the radicals were squarely on the side of both. Indeed, the issues were conjoined, as neither aim could be achieved without the other. One vital factor aiding the Pennsylvania left was the presence of the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. Heavily committed to independence, the Congress, especially since its resolution of May 15, 1776, exerted continual pressure on behalf of the Pennsylvania radicals. Over a month of agitation led by Joseph Reed, Washington's former aide, brought the assembly to enlarge its membership in mid-March. But this was a mild reform, and Dickinson, Robert Morris, and their conservative allies were still in comfortable control. While local committees had not assumed power in Pennsylvania, they were in existence and a growing force in the province. They were a vital part of the protest movement against Great Britain, and a provincial convention of these committees during January 1775, while effectively hobbled by Dickinson and the conservative leaders, had marked the beginning of influence by the spontaneous organs of public sentiment. After Lexington and Concord, county committees formed voluntary militia units called associations. While the county associations were governed by the assembly, Friction developed as the radicals, eager to get on with the revolution, demanded either conscription of or special taxation upon the numerous conscientious objectors in the province. And in September 1775, the Philadelphia Committee declared outright that free speech had to end when used for counteracting virtuous exertions against injury and oppression. In such cases, the human and divine laws justify the punishment of such 
licentiousness. William Nelson rightly adds that the committee thereupon adopted the tyrant's usual plea of necessity. No person has a right to the protection of a community or society he wishes to destroy. Thus, Pennsylvania pacifists, as well as Tories, were subjected to invasions of their liberty in the name of liberty. The restiveness of the associations was seen in the bitter attack by the Association of Lancaster County upon the pacifism of the Mennonites, demanding taxation of the Mennonites for military measures. Indeed, the living example of pacifism proved a catching, and the Philadelphia Association refused to serve as Minutemen after contemplating the total exemption of the Quakers from the war machine. The leaders of the Philadelphia Association also demanded a tax on conscientious objectors and a transformation of the libertarian institution of voluntary military association into the more familiar compulsory provincial militia. The assembly partially bowed to the pressure by levying a heavy tax of over two and a half pounds upon all non-associators. More important for the political structure of Pennsylvania was the radicalizing experience of belonging to the military associations, which were especially prominent in the West. For the masses began to wonder why they should risk their lives for the revolutionary cause, and yet not, in the words of the Committee of Privates headed by Dr. James Cannon at the end of February, be admitted to the enjoyment of all the rights and privileges of a citizen of that county, which they have defended and protected. The Assembly's brusque treatment of the committee's petition, as well as its presuming to appoint their military officers, led the Committee of Privates to the revolutionary repudiation of the authority of the constituted Pennsylvania government. Furthermore, the committee was perceptive enough to apply the argument of taxation without representation to affairs at home. Since they were not represented proportionately in the assembly, the authority of the government need not be recognized. Moreover, they moved to elect their officers and in many cases to make their military decisions by majority will of the particular military company. It is not surprising that the associators were noted for their individualistic spirit and their failure to abide by orthodox military rules of hierarchy and submission. That internal liberal democracy and independence were two sides of the same Pennsylvania coin was fully recognized by the Pennsylvania right. During the spring of 1776, John Dickinson declared retention of the British royal power indispensable to protecting the colonies from civil war and democracy. And his views were echoed more circumspectly by James Wilson. The looming threat of independence and internal reform propelled many ultra-conservatives into a quasi-Tory position and many of them wrote pamphlets and articles denouncing independence. Thus, the Anglican clergyman William Smith cited Montesquieu in praise of the English form of government as the best guarantee of liberty, and Civis 
railed against a republicanism that would lead to a government by a set of men whom nobody knows, by apprentices and immigrants. George Chalmers, the young author of the pamphlet Plain Truth, an attack on common sense, also cited Montesquieu and attacked Paine for not resigning himself to the necessary imperfections of mankind's state, especially man's laws. A particularly interesting statement of the right-wing position in Pennsylvania was that of the Tory Anglican priest Charles Inglis. His pamphlet, The True Interest of America Impartially Stated, was specifically designed as a rebuttal to common sense. Since its entire first printing was destroyed by a radical mob, it did not have any influence on the struggle over independence. Nonetheless, Inglis's arguments provide important insights into the thinking of the conservatives. He began with a statement of fundamental opposition to Paine's allegedly utopian individualism. Man was not born free in a state of nature, he maintained, but born necessarily into society, and therefore supposedly born under innate social obligations. Inglis saw that Locke's and even Hobbes's ultimate individualism had to be repudiated in order to uphold the Tory cause. He maintained that man could not exist without society. Society could not exist without law, and that law could not exist without government. After employing this string of non-sequiturs to imply that government was anterior to man, he naturally concluded that government was not a necessary evil, but a necessary good. He further adopted the classical Tory equation of government with human civilization. Thus, the clash of Paine and Inglis posed critical questions of political philosophy, among which were, is the individual logically anterior to society? Is society or civilization to be equated with or clearly distinguished from the state apparatus? Inglis, of course, deduced from his thesis that Americans were naturally and inherently part of English society and government, and therefore must not assert their independence. Moreover, he turned to Montesquieu to support the need for monarchy and aristocracy, as well as to eulogize British institutions. One assiduous radical writer perceptively charged that when the conservatives talked of their preference for the mild and wise laws of Great Britain, as contrasted to the tyranny of the many, they were really protesting at the prospect of losing their own special privileges, at being governed by any laws that will effectively secure the liberty and property of the people from their ravenous clutches. To this end, one radical, Elector, who may have been the radical theoretician Dr. Thomas Young, went beyond his fellows to advocate suffrage for all adult members of military associations in Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania radicals were handicapped by a lack of eminent leadership. 
The well-known and well-born were almost completely on the right. Even Joseph Reed was not a radical and was not really ardent about independence. But this lack of status was one of the main reasons for the unique intensity of Pennsylvania radicalism. Its leaders came from outside the Pennsylvania power structure. These were new independent men, free from vested interest in the status quo. The leadership of the revolutionary left included two mathematicians, the eminent astronomer David Rittenhouse and Professor James Cannon of Philadelphia College, the roistering Philadelphia mechanic and retailer Timothy Matlack, Colonel Daniel Roberdeau, and two great theoreticians of the radical libertarian movement, Dr. Thomas Young, the former Massachusetts mentor of Ethan Allen in liberalism and deism, and, of course, Thomas Paine. Virtually the only radical leader who had been prominent in the movement against Britain before the war was the Philadelphia merchant George Bryan. Cannon, writing as Cassandra, came to the defense of common sense against its enemies, and other radical pamphleteers called for extensive widening of the suffrage. Paine was a host unto himself, and in The Forester's Letters, published in April 1776, he counterattacked his critics and elaborated his libertarian doctrine. In his third letter, he answered the common conservative contention that the evil inherent in human nature requires a strong state to repress it. If all human nature be corrupt, it is needless to strengthen the corruption by establishing a succession of kings who, be they ever so base, are still to be obeyed. Furthermore, he argued, it is far more consistent for free men to choose their governors than to be ruled by mere birth. Certainly it is both folly and tyranny to give any one man power over all. No man since the fall hath ever been equal to the trust. As to whether America could be happy under its own government, Paine sensibly replied, As happy as she pleases. She hath a blank sheet to write upon. Let America make what it will out of this tabula rasa. Paine also stressed in this letter the libertarian importance of trial by jury as the people's way to completely circumvent the government in making judgments. Here the power of kings is shortcut. No royal negative can enter the court. The jury is a republic a body of judges chosen from among the people. He pointed out that, typically, the Magna Carta that secured this liberty had not been granted by the largesse of the crown, but had been forced out of the king by irresistible pressure from below. Paine also emphasized the goal of an isolationist foreign policy for the new republic that he envisioned on the horizon. America, he urged, will make peace with Britain as with an enemy. Then, independent, it will live in peace, remote from all the wrangling world, bounded by the ocean and backed by the wilderness. Who has she to fear but her God? During May, the Pennsylvania left was reinforced by the news of the hiring of Hessian mercenaries. 
followed by Virginia's electrifying decision for independence, and it stepped up its demand for a democratic provincial convention elected by all the free men of Pennsylvania. But the major impetus to the radicals was the Continental Congress's resolutions of May 10 and 15, denouncing all allegiance to the enemy George III and calling on all colonies to form their own governments independent of Great Britain. The main resolutions were implicitly directed against Pennsylvania, the only province, along with its associated Delaware, that was still dominated by its old British-directed government. The congressional resolutions acted as a mighty signal, perhaps prearranged, to the Pennsylvania left. The radical leaders, urged on by John and Sam Adams, now saw that they could put together the long-sought radical alliance of Philadelphia mechanics and artisans and Western frontiersmen. Swiftly on the night of May 15, the radical Philadelphia Committee, of which James Cannon was secretary, met to consider the formation of a new government. The opportunistic Delaware lawyer Thomas McKean was in the chair at the meeting, but the power resided in a steering committee that included Cannon, Young, and Payne. In presumed obedience to congressional advice, the committee called for provincial conference of county committees to demand a vote for independence and a constitutional convention outside the stultifying structure of the assembly to form a new and democratic, revolutionary government for Pennsylvania. A mass meeting of nearly 5,000 people, whipped up by Payne and others, gathered on May 20 at the behest of the Philadelphia Committee with Colonel Robertow in the chair. The meeting denounced the Assembly as holding its authority from the King and for being based on a narrow electorate. It also called for a constitutional convention for Pennsylvania, a provincial conference of committees was set for June 18 to organize a constitutional convention, and associations throughout the province enthusiastically endorsed the lead of the Philadelphia Committee. The conservatives of Philadelphia were able to organize a mass meeting of their own on May 21, as well as a remonstrance of 6,000 people to preserve the old government. This meeting was led by John Dickinson, Charles Thompson, and even Joseph Reed. Other conservative protests against the May 20 meeting came from the Committee of Inspection of Philadelphia County and from Chester County in eastern Pennsylvania. On the other hand, the York County Committee soon demonstrated its power by forcing the York Assemblyman James Rankin into a public recantation of the bad tendency of my past conduct in advocating the old Pennsylvania government. Citizens of Redding in Berks County burnt the conservative remonstrance as treasonable, and hundreds of Philadelphia signers shifted and withdrew their signatures. The numerous and powerful associations throughout Pennsylvania, superbly organized by Professor Cannon, joined the call for a new government and a constitutional convention. The tide of radical opinion was indeed swift. Not even repeated concessions by the Assembly could stem its flow. The Pennsylvania Assembly, bewildered at seeing its public support rapidly dwindling, 
decided to wither away and allow Pennsylvania's great internal revolution to be bloodless. In this resolve, it was aided by Assemblyman Joseph Reed. On June 8th, the Assembly withdrew its November instructions to the delegates to the Continental Congress to oppose independence. The delegates were now authorized to adopt any measures they deemed necessary to block any attempt by moderates to preserve the moribund assembly by taking charge of the forthcoming convention. Radical members boycotted assembly meetings after June 13, thus preventing the gathering of a quorum. The Pennsylvania Assembly drifted into hopeless adjournment on June 14. On June 18, the government of Pennsylvania changed hands in a peaceful but impressive revolution. The provincial conference met on that date with delegates selected by the radical county committees. The conference itself dramatized the thorough transformation of political power. None of the old conservative or moderate Whig leaders were present. No Dickinson, no Thompson, No Mifflin, no Wilson, no Reed, no Morris. Fully half the delegates were leaders in their local military associations. The conference looked to the Vanguard Philadelphia Committee for Leadership, and here the only old-line Whig in prominence was Thomas McKean, who was chosen president of the conference. That venerable opportunist, Benjamin Franklin, never one to be in any minority, had seen the way the wind was blowing and allowed himself to be included temporarily among the left. He nominally headed the Philadelphia delegation to the conference, but never attended meetings. Apart from McKean, the leading delegates from the Philadelphia committee were committee president Christopher Marshall, Dr. Benjamin Rush, and Colonel Timothy Matlack, with Cannon, Payne, and Rittenhouse active in the background. The provincial conference began its work quickly. The assembly was declared abolished in a constitutional convention summoned for new government based on the people of Pennsylvania. The suffrage for the convention was to be widened to all adult taxpaying associators. Unreconstructed Tories were denied the privilege. A more serious blow to liberty was the conference's decision to require an oath of Christian belief for all those elected as deputies to the Constitutional Convention. This oath, an effort to disfranchise the Quakers, opened a bitter debate between the elderly Christopher Marshall and the other far younger leaders of the radical camp. Marshall strongly supported the religious test oath against the vigorous opposition of Rush and especially Cannon, who privately denounced the supporters of the oath as fools, blockheads, self-righteous, and zealous bigots. Representation at the convention was not allocated proportionately and democratically. Understandably, exhilarating vengeance against the old overweighting of the East led to an even greater overweighting on behalf of the West. Each county was given eight delegates to the Constitutional Convention, so that sparsely settled Western counties enjoyed almost the same representation as Philadelphia. On June 24, the Provincial Conference surprised no one 
by declaring that George III had forfeited American allegiance and voting to concur in any declaration of independence. By late June, Pennsylvania was firmly in the camp of the pro-independence radicals. Indeed, the outcome had been clear since the beginning of June. As for Governor John Penn of the proprietary family, he was generally sympathetic to the American cause and gave little trouble about his disappearance from the political scene. Indeed, he was content to remain a private citizen of the new Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Where Pennsylvania went, little Delaware could not be far behind. The two were almost one province, having the same proprietary governor. Delaware, too, had retained its old assembly and governmental structure after Lexington and Concord. Its three delegates to the Continental Congress were Thomas McKean, a radical, George Reed, an arch-conservative, and Caesar Rodney, a centrist. By the end of 1775, Rodney had shifted leftward, winning the delegation for the American cause. Pennsylvania's opting for independence quickly convinced Delaware. On June 14, McKean presented to the Delaware Assembly the May 15 resolution of Congress along with the recent resolutions of Pennsylvania. On June 15, Delaware removed the restrictions that prohibited its delegates from voting for independence, which had been in force since March 1775, when the delegates were instructed to aim for reconciliation with the mother country. Now, in imitation of the Pennsylvania Assembly's resolve of June 8, the Delaware Assembly ordered its delegates to concur with other delegates in favoring whatever measures may be necessary for the interest of America. The way was clear for the Delaware delegation to vote for independence. Volume 4, Chapter 32 New Jersey and Maryland Follow New Jersey, a scene of conflict between rebel and Tory, had felt understandably diffident about antagonizing its two powerful and arch-conservative neighbors, New York and Pennsylvania. Lexington and Concord galvanized New Jersey, as it did the other colonies, and a provincial convention in Trenton was formed in the spring of 1775 out of a general provincial conference of county committeemen. But while favoring military measures, the convention had continued to protest its loyalty to the king. By early 1776, the New Jersey revolutionaries had established a provincial congress with a committee of safety as its executive arm. Even so, the Tories remained strong in New Jersey, and royal governor William Franklin continued to be active in political affairs as we have seen. Leading the radically militant forces in New Jersey was the distinguished president of Princeton College, the Scottish-born Reverend Dr. John Witherspoon. An early advocate of independence, he had seen his students fill the ranks of the Sons of Liberty, and he was prominent enough in the Revolution that he was one of the three Americans burned in effigy by the British and Tories when General Howe captured Staten Island in July 1776. By early June, an internal drive for militancy, combined with the transformation of Pennsylvania, easily swung New Jersey into the independence camp. 
The elections to the June meeting of the Provincial Congress at Burlington produced a clear radical victory. Two conservative delegates to Philadelphia were immediately recalled. And on June 21, the New Jersey Congress selected an entirely new delegation, all of whom staunchly favored independence. The new delegation included Witherspoon. The Provincial Congress also ordered the arrest of Governor Franklin, sent him to prison in Connecticut, and authorized the delegates to Philadelphia to concur in a declaration of independence. After completing this drive for independence, the Provincial Congress promptly decided to write a constitution for the virtually independent province. The new constitution, on which Dr. Witherspoon was the main influence, was approved at the beginning of July. It was moderately conservative, establishing a bicameral legislature, but also, by a vote of five counties to four, abolishing the old freehold qualifications for voting. Suffrage was broadened to all inhabitants with assets, personal or real, valued at 50 or more pounds. Perhaps through careless wording, the unintended effect of the legislation, after a time, was to give the vote to widows inheriting property worth at least 50 pounds, an initial breakthrough for women's suffrage. New Jersey's swift adhesion to the cause of independence left only Maryland and New York unconverted. Maryland was a proprietary colony of the Baltimore family, and for a century its politics had been expressed in terms of pro- and anti-proprietary parties. The court party was the party of the allies and receivers of special privilege from the proprietary. It defended the quit-rents and other exactions imposed by the Baltimores. It naturally controlled appointed officialdom, the governor, the council, the established Anglican clergy, and the body of the petty bureaucracy. In opposition was the country party, dominating the elected lower house of the legislature. Added to the disfranchisement of the sizable minority of Roman Catholic voters, the property qualifications for voting proved high enough to disfranchise proportionately more citizens in Maryland than in any other province. Probably little more than two-fifths of the white adult males of Maryland were eligible to vote. Furthermore, as elsewhere in the South, apportionment for the assembly was weighted heavily in favor of the older eastern counties, containing large slaveholding plantations and fewer white citizens than the western counties. Every county, regardless of population, had equal representation in the assembly. The exactions of the proprietary upon the land of the inhabitants were not merely academic. They included quit-rents, caution money from land purchasers, rents from proprietary manors, and alienation fines on those who transferred their land. From these sources, as well as fines and fees and tonnage and export duties on Maryland's staple tobacco, the proprietary derived a net annual income in the decade before the revolution of 12,500 pounds. 
In addition to this substantial sum, the people of Maryland were forced to pay 12,000 pounds in taxes per year to support the proprietary officials who enforced these exactions upon them, as well as 8,000 pounds to support the established Anglican clergy. Thus, over 32,000 pounds were extracted from the Marylanders to support the proprietary and a hundred-odd appointed bureaucrats and ministers. In contrast, the entire government of Maryland, including provincial, county, and local operations, cost Maryland only 18,500 pounds per year. It is easy to see that saddled with perhaps the most expensive state in the colonies, the grievances of the country party were real indeed. Both court and country parties were dominated by the social and economic leaders of the province, the wealthy planter oligarchs, their wealth based on slave cultivation of tobacco. The continuing attack by the country party on the place and privileges of the court party led naturally to their leading the wider opposition to British exactions in Maryland. In the course of the revolutionary movement, the country party established periodic extra-legal provincial conventions with a council of safety appointed to operate in the interior. The political convention functioned as a Supreme Court and appointed county committees. No American colony labored under such tight control of a small interlocking clique as Maryland under the country party. Virtually complete control was exercised by very few men. First and foremost was the very wealthy Matthew Tillman, head of a very prominent and powerful planter family on Maryland's eastern shore. Tillman presided over all the provincial conventions, was usually president of the Council of Safety, and later was president of Maryland's Constitutional Convention. Also prominent was Edward Lloyd, first cousin of Tillman, and an extremely wealthy member of another leading Eastern Shore family. Lloyd was one of the largest slaveholders in Maryland and one of the biggest wheat growers in all of the colonies. Another important figure in the province was Charles Carroll of Carrollton. A resident of the capital city of Annapolis, Carroll had the largest slave holdings in Maryland and was not only the wealthiest man in the province, but one of the wealthiest in America. A delegate to the Continental Congress, he achieved political prominence despite being a Roman Catholic. Almost equally important was another Charles Carroll of Annapolis, a distant relation to Carroll of Carrollton. Yet another Charles Carroll was the son-in-law of Carroll of Carrollton. He, too, was one of the wealthiest people in Maryland. Three prominent Annapolis lawyers, once partners, rounded out the country party leadership. William Packer, a delegate to the Continental Congress, made his fortune by marrying into the Lloyd family and became a leading planter and slaveholder. Thomas Johnson, another congressional delegate, specialized in acquiring land grants in unoccupied western Maryland. Before the Revolution, having put on enough pressure to gain himself the land, Johnson had joined with George Washington to try to persuade the Maryland and Virginia legislatures to open a vast Potomac navigation system to raise the value of their lands enormously. 
The third of these lawyers, Samuel Chase, was also a delegate to the Continental Congress. Under this sort of control, it is not surprising that Maryland's revolutionary movement was staunchly conservative and opposed the radical drive for independence, and, as we have seen, Robert Eden was courteously allowed to remain as nominal governor, though he retained no power. As late as May 15, 1776, the Maryland Provincial Convention reconfirmed its aim of reconciliation with Britain and its corollary, instructions to the delegates at Philadelphia. The American radicals almost despaired of Maryland, but its very tight control afforded a chance of radical chains through conversion of a few of the inner circle. The break came with the ardent adoption of the independence cause by two of the top oligarchs, Samuel Chase and Charles Carroll of Carrollton. To gain sufficient support and pressure for independence, they were forced to stump the western country, raising demands for independence among the Maryland masses, thus taking the risk of arousing domestic radicalism as well. In fact, along with a host of local committee resolutions for independence in western Maryland, many of the local groups were stimulated to agitate for domestic reform. Committees in western Frederick County, seeing the link between independence and domestic change, attacked the tyranny and discriminatory representation in the assembly as part of an effort to develop political organs that would agree to independence. Military participation heightened pressure for reform, as soldiers in the fight against Britain felt with a special keenness their disfranchisement and handicaps in representation. They pressed for broadening the highly restrictive Maryland suffrage, and demands arose for allowing all adult arms-bearing taxpayers the right to vote. Clearly, mass democratic pressure was beginning to push against the tight aristocratic control of the province. Chase's campaign and Western mass pressure effected a remarkable change in Maryland's position, a shift aided by Maryland's sudden, unwelcome isolation among the colonies and General Lee's agitation from Williamsburg. Moreover, Maryland was sternly confronted by the request of the Continental Congress for military aid, and this presented the stark choice of conforming or standing alone. Finally, on June 28, the Maryland Convention revoked its instructions against independence and authorized its delegates to join in a declaration of independence. Governor Eden was gracefully permitted to leave for Britain on a British warship. The convention also decided to draft a state constitution on August 1. Property qualifications for the Constitutional Convention were to remain the same, but representation was partially corrected by splitting Frederick County into three parts and adding more delegates from the major cities of Baltimore and Annapolis. Thus, by the end of June, all the colonies but one stood four square for independence, and almost all had either formally adopted a new government or were in the process of doing so. But one, New York, 
powerful and firmly in arch-conservative hands, still stood in the way of American independence. Volume 4, Chapter 33, Independence Declared On June 7, in happy obedience to the instructions resolved by Virginia on May 15, Richard Henry Lee submitted to the Continental Congress a momentous resolution for the independence of the United Colonies. His resolution embodied three historic affirmations. First was a declaration of independence, that these United Colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British Crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved. One of the great virtues is, well, as a corollary of independence, would be the ability to form alliances with France and other countries in support of the war. So Lee's second resolve affirmed the utility of forming such alliances. Finally, if the colonies were now to be separate and independent states, it was clear that no war, especially no war with a regular army, could be waged unless the states were in some way united and it was believed that a formal compact of unity was needed to bolster the standing of the Continental Congress, just as formal government was supposedly needed by each state to replace spontaneous and anarchic rule by organized networks of local committees. Therefore, Lee's third resolution instructed that a plan of confederation be drawn up and submitted to the separate states. The conservatives had no objection to confederation per se. Indeed, a strong central government over the colonies had long been a dream of many arch-conservatives. Neither did the prospect of alliances frighten them. After all, war was being waged, and the more help the better. The sticking point was independence, and this issue polarized opinion and was bitterly fought in the Congress. Leading the battle against independence were Robert R. Livingston of New York, James Wilson and John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, and Edward Rutledge of South Carolina, who privately blasted the resolution as madness. Ranged in favor of independence were New England, Virginia, and Georgia, respectively, led by John Adams, George Wythe, and Richard Henry Lee. Adams was exultant writing to a friend that we are in the very midst of a revolution, the most complete, unexpected, and remarkable of any in the history of nations. The opposition to Lee's resolution pretended to favor independence in principle and placed its hopes in postponement, arguing cogently that it would be more sensible to wait for a short while until the middle colonies had swung into line the radicals came to see the validity of this particular argument, and so Congress agreed to postpone the consideration of independence until July 1. Still, the radicals lost little time overall, for they were able to carry the appointment of a committee to draft a declaration of independence to embody Lee's first resolution. The committee to draft the declaration, appointed on June 11, had an overwhelming radical majority. John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Roger Sherman. It also included one conservative, 
Robert R. Livingston. Committees were similarly appointed on Confederation and on a plan for foreign treaties. The latter part of June did, as we have seen, bring the middle colonies into the fold, even though Maryland had first pleaded unsuccessfully for postponement of the discussion date beyond July 1. In addition, loose ends were wrapped up in those New England colonies that had not bothered to issue formal support for independence. By June 14, Connecticut flatly ordered its delegates to propose independence for the American states. The next day, the New Hampshire legislature pledged support for independence. Furthermore, Congress itself drove ever closer to independence. On June 24, it declared that any American adhering to the enemy king or levying war on his behalf was guilty of treason. In accordance with the resolve, Thomas Hickey, a private in the Continental Army, was hanged by that army for mutiny. The momentous day of July 1 brought with it the news of Maryland's affirmation of independence. New York's delegates, having received no firm reply to a request for instruction from the Provincial Congress, decided that they had best abstain from the vote on independence. Those radicals who really believed that conservative objections to independence had been met by the events of June were in for rude shock. After a fierce debate on the Lee Resolution in the Committee of the Whole, a vote was taken in which Pennsylvania and South Carolina voted against independence, while the two Delaware members present split on the issue. Clearly, the delegates from Pennsylvania and South Carolina were voting their own reactionary wishes in defiance of the will of their constituents. Here was a stunning setback to the radical cause. The next day, July 2, the independence resolution came to the floor of Congress. How was unanimity to be achieved in one day? Delaware achieved it by sheer energy. Thomas McKean sent for Caesar Rodney in a hurried call, and Rodney who had been leading militiamen against Tories in southern Delaware, rode all night in a thunderstorm from Dover to Philadelphia to cast Delaware's tie-breaking vote for independence. South Carolina's Edward Rutledge, a leader of the fight against independence, announced his decision to take his delegation into the camp of independence for the sake of intercolonial unity. That left Pennsylvania and new delegates were not to be chosen by the radicals in the provincial conference until the end of July. On July 1, the Pennsylvania delegation had voted 4-3 against independence, with Benjamin Franklin, John Morton, and, surprisingly, James Wilson, 4, and John Dickinson, Charles Humphreys, Robert Morris, and Thomas Willing, opposed. The next day, Dickinson and Morris deliberately absented themselves, and Pennsylvania's precarious three-to-two vote for independence made the congressional vote unanimous. The deed was done. The colonies were now separate, free, and independent states, and as the united colonies were now at last informally united states. John Adams was understandably enraptured at having achieved the goal of years of labor and devotion. A greater issue, he wrote blissfully, perhaps never was, nor 
will be decided among men. The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I am well aware of the toil and bloodshed and treasure that it will cost us to maintain this declaration. Yet, through all the gloom, I can see the rays of ravishing light and glory. The colonies had announced their independence, but only the bare assertion had been made. The Republic of the United States needed a justification, a philosophical explanation and groundwork for the unprecedented act which could inform and inspire the citizenry and the world at large. Heading the committee to frame such a declaration at the age of 33, one of the youngest members of Congress but already renowned for his brilliant pen was Thomas Jefferson. The committee presented his draft to Congress on June 28, and debate ensued in the Committee of the Whole after the approval of Lee's resolution. An amended declaration was approved by Congress on July 4, by the same vote as that two days before, and this noble and immortal summation of the philosophy and motivation of the American Revolution was first proclaimed to the public in Philadelphia by local associators on July 8. Jefferson's aim in drawing up the Declaration of Independence was not originality of principle, but the framing of a succinct expression of the American mind and of the sentiments of the day on the common sense of the subject. The document was indeed a superb epitome of the libertarian natural rights philosophy propelling the revolution, as well as the specific grievances that had roused the American people. Jefferson began with a brief explanation of the decision for composing the document. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. The natural right to independence and self-government was in turn grounded on a fundamental structure of the natural rights of man. Nowhere has this philosophy been better put into brief compass than in the succeeding paragraph of the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect their safety and happiness.
Here was the quintessence of John Locke and of the 18th century libertarian creed. It is axiomatic that all men are endowed by nature with inalienable rights. The proper aim of government, as derived from the consent of the governed, is to secure those rights. Nothing other than this function justifies government's existence Hence the right of the people to revolt against any government destructive of those aims. Jefferson went on to recognize the habit of mankind to suffer evil government rather than right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But a long train of abuses and usurpations tending toward despotism confronts the people with the duty, let alone the right, to revolt and abolish such government. He then proceeded to list the long train of usurpations, trenchantly summing up the history of the revolutionary struggle since the Seven Years' War. And, as he had done in the preamble to the Virginia Constitution, he pinned the responsibility squarely on the ultimate head and governing symbol, the king himself. In the concluding paragraph of the Declaration, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled declared the status of the colonies as free and independent states and repeated the text of the Lee Resolution passed two days before. For the support of the Declaration, they mutually pledged to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Clearly, the formulation of Jefferson's philosophical paragraph owed much to George Mason's Virginia Declaration of Rights. Jefferson's draft asserted, as had Mason, that men are endowed with inherent and inalienable rights. It should also be evident from the context that when Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal, he did not assert everyone's right to an equal income and he did not intend the absurdity that everyone is equal in capacity or natural endowments. He meant, in the words of Mason, that all men are by nature equally free and independent. In his original draft, he had written that all men are created equal and independent. In short, man's equality lies in his equal right to liberty. Neither is any profound significance to be read into Jefferson's use of the phrase pursuit of happiness rather than the more usual property. Mason's original draft of the Virginia Declaration had said that among man's inherent natural rights are the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Jefferson, compressing Mason's statement, originally wrote, Among which rights are the preservation of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? In short, the right to pursue happiness includes and implies the right to acquire and possess property. Jefferson knew as well as Mason, or the other natural rights theorist of the day, that the individual has no natural right to any quantum of property, 
rather his natural right, is the equal liberty to acquire and keep property. The Declaration's formulation, therefore, was in no sense a repudiation or weakening of the right of private property. Some paragraphs in Jefferson's draft were excised by the Congress, and historians have been decidedly unfair to Jefferson in ascribing his chagrin at these changes to mere personal pique and undue pride of authorship. High principle was often involved, and it was not personal pique that led his fellow committee member John Adams to fight tooth and nail against any changes in Jefferson's draft. One critical paragraph condemned King George in the severest terms for establishing slavery in America. This paragraph boldly, clearly, and specifically applied the general doctrine of the inalienable rights of life and liberty to the Negro slaves. He, George III, has waged cruel war against human nature itself violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur a miserable death in their transportation thither, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this execrable commerce. This paragraph, however, was excised at the insistence of the delegates from ardently pro-slavery Georgia and South Carolina, as well as by some northern reluctance to condemn a trade largely in the hands of northern merchants. Already a libertarian left was beginning to emerge in America, Jefferson, Payne, Mason, highly critical of the institution of slavery. Even with the attack on slavery removed, however, Jefferson's biographer is correct in saying that Jefferson's words in the Declaration should make tyranny tremble in any age. They have alarmed conservative minds in his own land in every generation, and some compatriots of his have regretted that the new republic was dedicated to such radical doctrines at its birth. With the Declaration of Independence, the United States of America made their final shift from arguing on the basis of historic British rights and privileges to the necessary grounding of their revolution on the universal principles of the natural rights of man. Revolution and independence necessarily went beyond the narrow bounds of an intra-British argument. Now the revolution must justify itself at the bar of the world and must therefore do so on principles universally applicable. In doing so, this philosophy brought the separate states closer together by providing a common revolutionary ideology. The Declaration was the embodiment of this break with the past. Professor Ariely sums up this development. The revolutionary separation from the mother country involved a radical break with the past, the transformation of English subjects into American citizens, and of the rights of Englishmen into the rights of nature. 
the very strongly developed consciousness of English national traditions and rights had to be reinterpreted by concepts taken from the natural rights philosophy. The fact that the American nation was created by a revolutionary separation from the mother country brought about the adoption of rationalistic values and norms. Volume 4, Chapter 34 New York Succumbs to Independence The Declaration of Independence had been proclaimed and the colonies were now United States. But New York had not yet signed. Surely it would not hold out against all the other American colonies, and yet its ruling landed oligarchy, the Livingstons, Jays, Duanes, Schulers, and others, were set against independence. The New York left had been effectively silenced, and as late as April 1776, arch-conservatives, a large bloc of whom strongly opposed independence, swept the New York elections, defeating radicals selected by the New York Committee of Mechanics. The revolutionary cause was fortunate in having the Continental Army stationed in New York from mid-April on to defend New York City from the expected British attack. In the course of his stay, Washington was able to cow the province's Tories and to pressure the Central Committee of Safety into prohibiting supplies to British ships. Congress's anti-King resolution of May 15 made little impression on New York. However, in early June, the New York Provincial Congress approved Congress's plan for an enlarged army to fight the war and pledged its support to Washington. The Provincial Congress also appointed the Committee of Seven to investigate, prosecute, convict, and imprison suspected Tories aiding the enemy. This committee was eminently conservative, including, as it did, Philip J. Livingston, John Jay, and Gouverneur Morris. But the very imminence of the British military threat necessarily drove them to more radical anti-Tory measures. New York was faced with the specter of a mighty British invasion fleet, carrying nearly 35,000 troops, which appeared off New York in mid-June. And on June 22, David Matthews, the royally appointed mayor of New York City, was arrested for being secretly in league with Governor Tryon, recruiting Tories for enlisting in British arms and plotting to kidnap Washington. The action against the Tory Matthews implied recognition of American independence. Furthermore, New York collaborated with Washington in arresting Tories in Ulster, in suppressing armed Tories on Long Island, in raising a patriot militia to cow the Tories of Dutchess County, and in billeting 500 troops on the numerous Tories of Queens County. Even so, an outright move for independence was extremely difficult for most of the New York aristocracy. Their Whig peers, however, displayed here, as on later occasions, a shrewd ability to compromise with the spirit of the times in order to keep control of affairs at home. By the end of May, J. Morris Livingston and John Moran Scott were beginning to move cautiously toward independence. On the other hand, the New York Committee of Mechanics was ardently for independence from Great Britain. On May 27, the Provincial Congress began cautiously by decreeing the dissolution of the old royal government in New York. Still, the Congress dallied, refusing to hurry its instructions to their delegates on the burning issue 
of independence. New province-wide elections at the end of June secured a large majority of supporters of independence. And on July 9, the fourth New York Provincial Congress meeting at White Plains sedately voted unanimously to join the Continental Declaration of Independence. New York's acceptance was read to the Continental Congress on July 15 and occasioned the angry resignation of New York's John Alsop, an arch-conservative irreconcilable to the last. In the course of providing for June elections to the Fourth Provincial Congress, the conservatives in control of the Third Congress had made sure that any new constitution written by the new Congress would not have to be ratified by the people, but would go automatically into force. This decision provoked a heated protest from the New York Committee of Mechanics, which pioneered in America in asserting the right of the people to vote on any constitution in a referendum. Such a referendum was the only characteristic of the true lawfulness of government, a requirement that derived from a God-given right of all men. If New York moved in measured steps toward independence, affairs were not nearly so placid in New York's proclaimed Northeast, the New Hampshire grant lands that were to become Vermont. The first flush of common enthusiasm for the war against Britain could not long obscure the basic conflict between New York land monopolists and Vermont settlers. New York continued to claim the Vermonters' land and the presence of Duane, Livingston, and other New Hampshire grantees in the Continental Congress did nothing to allay Vermont's suspicions. On January 16, 1776, representatives of Westside Vermont towns met at a convention in Dorset. The meeting agreed to petition the Continental Congress to agree that their loyalty to the American cause did not include fealty to New York as well. The Westsiders asked Congress to tell New York to refrain for the duration of the war from imposing its authority on the New Hampshire Grant lands. The petition was presented to the Congress in early May by Captain Heman Allen, brother of Ethan. The Congressional answer was to counsel the Grant region to submit loyally to New York rule until the end of the war with all land quarrels to remain, meanwhile, in abeyance. This recommendation greatly alarmed Allen, for he and his brother Ira had already quietly conceived a grand design for preserving the settlers' property intact against depredations, the creation of a free and independent republic of the Grant lands. To advance this goal, the Grants must not acknowledge New York rule. Agilely, Allen withdrew his petition on the suddenly invented ground that he had neglected to bring various vital documents. Thanks to this stratagem, the Vermonters retained freedom of action. Meanwhile, the Vermont Eastsiders were also growing restive, and a meeting of Eastside Committees of Safety at Westminster at the end of June hinted that they might prefer shifting their allegiance from New York to Massachusetts. A West Side Convention received news of the Declaration of Independence at the end of July with great interest. The Declaration, coming after Congress's resolution of May 15, was so clearly applicable to the Vermonters' own conditions that they could not fail to get the idea. Led by Ira 
and Heman Allen, Dr. Jonas Fay, and the canny farmer Colonel Thomas Chittenden, the Dorset meeting moved slowly toward independence by pledging loyalty to the new United States, but also expressing its distinct lack of enthusiasm for association with New York. The meeting then proclaimed the Grant area a separate district. These sentiments were embodied in the Articles of Association, which were sent to all the towns of the Grant district for endorsement. It was now unanimous. All the states were united on independence. The Declaration of Independence was proclaimed throughout the land. Toast rang out to liberty and to the union of states, to freedom and independence. The royal arms were everywhere stripped and burned. An effigy of the king was paraded through Baltimore, and a lead statue of King George in New York City was happily toppled and melted down into bullets. Predictably, the Declaration of Independence gladdened libertarians in Europe and deeply angered the conservatives. The French government warmly approved of the fact of independence, but the French people were enthusiastic over the libertarian philosophy as well. The great French liberal Marquis de Condorcet put the case well. Here was theory put into practice. It is not enough that the rights of man be written in the books of philosophers and in the hearts of virtuous men. It is necessary that men should read them in the example of a great people. America has given us this example. The act which declares its independence is a simple and sublime exposition of those rights so sacred and so long forgotten. English reaction to the Declaration was predictably hostile, although the brilliant young liberal Charles James Fox declared that the Americans had done no more than the English had done against James II. The virtually official reply to the Declaration was written by the barrister John Lind, who largely devoted himself to refuting the calumnies against the king. As for the philosophy of the Declaration, Lind thought it sufficient to make the penetrating observation that these doctrines put the axe to the root of all government. Since every existing or conceivable government alienates some of these supposedly inalienable rights. In short, that the logical conclusion of the natural rights philosophy was anarchism. Volume 4, Part 5 The Military History of the Revolution, 1776 through 1778. Volume 4, Chapter 35 the Invasion of New York The decision of the colonies for independence came at the beginning of a severe military crisis. Until then, there had been no organized or regularized fighting on the soil of the 13 states other than the siege of Boston. By the end of June, Lee and the Army of the Southern Department had beaten off the invasion of Charleston by General Clinton, but in July the main British army was ready to invade New York. The long-range British strategy was to invade friendly New York City and then conquer the Hudson Valley in a two-pronged thrust from Canada and the city, isolating radical New England from the softer and more pliable middle colonies, 
this strategy posed a formidable threat to the American cause. The mighty British invasion force began to assemble off New York City in late June 1776. It was headed by the Howe brothers, General Sir William Howe in charge of land forces, and his brother, Admiral Richard Lord Howe, newly appointed overall commander-in-chief of the American theater. By the end of June, 130 British ships were stationed in New York Bay, and General Howe quickly seized an undefended and strongly pro-Tory Staten Island to use as his base of operations. By mid-August, a truly formidable force of over 32,000 regular soldiers, including 8,000 Hessians, was poised on Staten Island. It was the greatest expeditionary force that the world's strongest military power, Great Britain, had ever mounted. The army was supported by a fleet of 30 warships and hundreds of transports manned by more than 10,000 seamen. Floating the expedition had cost the British Treasury the vast sum of 850,000 pounds. To oppose this vast force, Washington had a largely untrained army of 19,000 men. Surely the prime necessity for the American force was to pursue guerrilla war and avoid open contact with the British. Yet Washington decided on conventional resistance from fixed positions and elected to hold a city that Charles Lee had correctly warned could not be defended. First to urge Washington to abandon New York and to irritate him in the process was the brilliant young Major Aaron Burr, aide-de-camp to General Putnam. Compounding his blunders, Washington chose to divide his forces between Manhattan and the southwestern tip of Long Island. The idea was to fortify Brooklyn Heights, commanding the city from the East River, but both Long Island and Manhattan were death traps. The mighty British fleet need only have sailed up the East River to cut off the force on Long Island and up the Hudson to land troops in northern Manhattan to surround and annihilate the American force there. If the British commanders had applied even moderate intelligence or devotion to their task, they could probably have wiped out Washington's army then and there and perhaps have won the war on the spot. The British, including General Howe, realized that to win on land, they would have to mobilize their superior armed forces quickly and destroy the American army in one blow. Speed was of the essence. The strike had to come before the Americans had a chance to mobilize their resources and before France and Spain could send full-scale aid. Furthermore, the Howes and their commanders realized that the key especially in conducting counter-revolutionary warfare against a hostile populace, was not so much to gain territory, which could turn out to be futile, but to destroy the enemy army. Washington's absurd decision to dig in at New York provided the Howes a golden opportunity for smashing victory. Yet they failed notably to take up this opportunity to crush the American forces. This and later failures were so enormous as not to be put down as mere blunders. Historians have generally recognized that a deliberate policy must have been involved, 
and have concluded it was based upon a general British desire to avoid annihilating the American forces so as not to preclude a peaceful political reconciliation. Yet it should be clear that the government, especially King George and Lord Germain, the colonial secretary, were out to crush the Americans militarily, and as quickly as possible. They put no stock in peaceful negotiations or political solution. The deliberate policy, it appears, was the choice, not of Great Britain, but of the Howe brothers themselves, both ardent Whigs, and both strongly opposed to the war with America. The Howes took it upon themselves, in a move tantamount to treason, to avoid crushing the Americans and to hold out the olive branch of peace. Admiral Howe apparently convinced his brother of this policy upon his arrival off New York in mid-July. And from then on, General Howe pursued continuous acquisition and possession of territory rather than decisive blows against the Continental Army. Happily, Washington's stupidity was partially offset by the Howe's virtual treason to the British counter-revolution. On arriving off New York, Lord Howe delayed military action while offering peace terms to Washington, even though he was authorized by the Crown only to accept surrender by the rebels. For over a month he tried to negotiate with the rebels, but the Americans, happy in their independence, were long past conciliatory terms. General Howe was finally ready to launch his attack against New York in late August, but the important failure by the Howes was not the delay which was used to build up British forces, but the strategy employed in the attack itself. General Sir Henry Clinton sensibly urged landing in northern Manhattan to cut off nearly the entire American army. Yet Clinton's suggestion was ignored. Instead, General Howe virtually refused to entrap and decimate the American troops, electing only to push them out of New York City. On August 22, Howe and a force of 20,000 landed on Long Island across the Narrows from Staten Island. Their landing was unopposed, and the Americans sensibly taking their stand behind a ridge, the Heights of Guan, defending the approaches to the fortifications at Brooklyn Heights on the East River. The only competent American general in the area, Nathaniel Green, had fallen ill and could not command the 8,000 or so troops stationed on Long Island. Washington had replaced Green with General John Sullivan, who by his rashness had turned the retreat from Canada into a virtual rout. As the British landed, Washington had second thoughts and flightily replaced Sullivan with the still more incompetent General Putnam, leaving Sullivan in command of the American center. The confusion was compounded by Washington's failure to clearly allocate command authority between Putnam and Sullivan. Major Aaron Burr again only succeeded in irritating Washington by having the temerity and wisdom to urge that the troops be pulled out of Brooklyn while there was still time. Among the three of them, Washington, Sullivan, and Putnam, managed to leave the Jamaica Pass in the left wing of the ridge undefended, an arrangement that had passed muster with Washington. 
learning of this gap in the American lines, Howe executed a brilliant tactical maneuver. While the center and left of the British forces frontally attacked the ridge, Howe, guided by Tories, moved through the Jamaica Pass in a flanking maneuver during the night of August 26 and surprised, encircled, and fell upon Sullivan's forces. Washington could easily have learned of this flanking maneuver in one of two ways, by recognizing the significance of a previous shift of British troops toward the eastern flank, or by employing cavalry in his patrols. But he did neither. Furthermore, old Putnam, after learning of the penetration of the Jamaica Pass, failed to notify his commanders. Consequently, Sullivan's division was smashed and Sullivan himself captured, as was General Sterling, commander of the American right wing. Nearly 2,000 Americans were killed, wounded, or captured in the Battle of Long Island, while the British lost only 300 men. Instead of pulling out his forces as quickly as possible, Washington compounded his series of blunders by rushing six more regiments into Long Island and assuming personal command. By pressing his advantage, General Howe could have annihilated Washington's army then and there. But again, against the pleas of his commanders, he failed to move, allowing the Americans to regroup on Brooklyn Heights. For three days, he stalled and failed to mount an attack which could easily have overrun the entrapped American army. And neither did his brother's fleet ships, shell the Americans into submission. On the night of the 29th, Washington at last decided to move, mounting a mass evacuation of his army from Brooklyn. The evacuation proceeded successfully in a fleet of small boats. He has been extravagantly praised for a heroic retreat, but it could never have taken place had Admiral Howe bothered to station his ships in the East River. Furthermore, instead of moving his troops to the mainland, Washington sailed into another potential death trap, Manhattan Island. The fleet of fishermen from Salem and Marblehead, however, assuredly performed a heroic job of shuttling the entire force of 9,500 men and their equipment across the river in a night of poor weather. The morale of the Americans was in great disrepair as a result of the defeat on Long Island. Entire regiments deserted and left for home. Respect for Washington's military acumen among his officers had plummeted. One of his most brilliant officers, Colonel John Haslett of the Delaware Regiment, wrote, Would to heaven General Lee were here is the language of officers and men. Once again, Washington remained where he could be encircled and smashed, and once more Howe dawdled and did nothing. His brother opened another round of futile peace talks with the Americans, releasing the sympathetic General Sullivan to convey terms to the Continental Congress, terms which the Americans, now committed to independence, predictably spurned. General Green. Colonel Joseph Reed, Washington's adjutant, and other officers strongly urged a speedy evacuation of New York and even the burning of that largely Tory city to the ground. Congress vetoed the idea of destroying New York, but Washington refused to evacuate. 
instead as a supposed compromise ineffectually stringing his men out across Manhattan Island. Once again he was courting potential disaster by splitting his none-too-strong forces. Putnam's division was stationed in New York City at the southern tip of Manhattan Island. General William Heath's forces were put on the northern tip of Manhattan, and a small force under Green, over his strenuous protest, was placed in the middle of south-central Manhattan at the East River near what is now 34th Street. Characteristically, General Howe did not land in northern Manhattan and trap the Americans. Rather, he waited until Washington was beginning to move his forces that direction and then landed in the southerly part at Kipps Bay and Turtle Bay on September 15. Again, he was terribly sluggish and failed to march across Manhattan to cut off Putnam's retreat. Even so, the energetic but bumbling Putnam would not have escaped were it not for Burr, who conducted the troops up a little-known road near the Hudson River on the west side of the island. The properly wild flight north of Green's small force of militia was unsuccessfully impeded by the explosive rage of Washington, who himself was almost captured during a foolish attempt to rally them for a stand in the south. The next day, however, American troops, in an open skirmish in front of Harlem Heights, fought well, giving a boost to drooping American morale. Again, General Howe failed to pursue his advantage, allowing Washington to fortify Harlem Heights and Fort Washington in northern Manhattan. Almost incredibly, Howe spent another month erecting defensive fortifications in New York City. As Professor Alden puts it, Howe allowed day after day of good campaigning weather to pass while he threw up defenses against a weak and retreating enemy. Of course, instead of fortifying Manhattan, Washington should have taken the opportunity to flee north to the mainland. But in all fairness, it must be noted that in making this decision, he was bowing to the wish of Congress to hold New York and its environs. Again, he foolishly split his forces, now numbering 16,000, to hold indefensible fixed positions. Green was sent off with a rather small force to hold Fort Constitution on New Jersey's shore, opposite Fort Washington. The rest of the army was divided between Fort Washington and Kingsbridge, across the Harlem River from the northernmost tip of the island, guarding the exit route to the mainland. Meanwhile, supplies grew increasingly short and the soldiers were deserting in droves. On September 22, while Howe was dithering in New York City, the British executed Captain Nathan Hale, a 21-year-old schoolteacher from Connecticut who had volunteered to spy behind enemy lines. He had been betrayed by a Tory relative and was hanged without even the formality of a trial or benefit of clergy. His last-minute letters to his family and fiancée were torn up in front of his eyes. Before dying, the gallant young Hale uttered his famous words, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. When Howe finally moved on October 12, he blundered once again. 
he landed nearly his entire force on the mainland to the east of Kingsbridge to outflank and encircle the American troops. However, he landed in what is now the Bronx, at Throg's Neck, a virtual island linked to the mainland by a narrow causeway controlled by American troops. Washington was about to decide to fight off this flanking action rather than to retreat when, on October 14, Charles Lee, rushing up from South Carolina, reached the army to the undisguised joy of the American officers and men. He was immediately placed in charge of the hot spot on the American left flank, facing Howe's army. He began a strong and vigorous denunciation of Washington's decision to stay and fight on Harlem Heights, a decision that most of Washington's generals had supported. He urged the absolute necessity of quickly getting off Manhattan, where the Americans were in imminent danger of being surrounded by the British, and moving on to defensible ground. His pressure forced an American Council of War on October 16, and Washington and the Council were finally persuaded of this view. Lee's wisdom and determination here proved momentous, for the troops were thereby enabled to leave Manhattan in the nick of time, saving the American cause and probably the American Republic. This high judgment of Lee's last-minute achievement was voiced by many contemporaries, including Joseph Reed and Washington's close friend and admirer, the Marquis de Lafayette. But Washington seems to have been incapable of making a completely correct military decision, even after pressure and lengthy reconsideration of his initial blunders. Agreeing to retreat, he yet overruled Lee in one of the most disastrous decisions of the war. He left 2,000 men at Fort Washington, totally isolated and soon to be surrounded by the formidable British force, the 2,000 were doomed to certain capture. Meanwhile, after stumbling around in an impossible position at Throg's Neck and losing six precious days, Howe withdrew his entire force on October 18 to Pell's Point, three miles to the northeast, where he should have landed originally, and slogged north past Yonkers toward White Plains. On the same day, Washington's army left Manhattan. Howe could easily have sliced west and dispatched the long line of them. Instead, he lingered at New Rochelle in Mamaronic on the east coast of Westchester for an entire week, thoughtfully allowing Washington to gather and entrench his entire army on the hills overlooking White Plains. Howe's intended flanking movement could now never materialize. As the English historian Trevelyan acidly put it, the sun had set and risen more than forty times since General Howe broke up his summer cantonments on Staten Island. In seven weeks, with an irresistible army and a fleet which there was nothing to resist, he had traversed from point to point a distance of exactly 35 miles. On October 28, the British finally attacked Chatterton's Hill on the right wing of the American position at White Plains. The British won the hill after several hundred casualties on both sides, but failed to pursue the routed Americans. 
More egregious was Howe's failure to launch a simultaneous attack on the main positions of the Americans with the bulk of his forces. Instead, the Americans were allowed to rest and regroup, and at Lee's urging to fall back to more defensible positions on North Castle Heights, five miles to the north. After never having engaged the full body of his forces, Howe decided on November 5 not to attack the Americans and to withdraw southwestward to Dobbs Ferry on the Hudson. The Continental Army was safe at last. While Howe was graciously saving the American Army from Washington's repeated blunders, the Americans were confronting another grave threat in the north. The American forces had retreated from Canada in complete disarray in the spring, settling at the southern tip of Lake Champlain. In mid-June, Congress had ordered Washington to place the command of the forces in the north under General Horatio Gates, probably second only to his friend Lee, as the best general in the American army. Congress did not have the courage of its convictions, however and retained the less competent General Schuler in overall command in the North. After Gates arrived in the North in early July, he and Schuler, over Washington's and Putnam's objections, decided to withdraw southward from the crumbling fortifications at Crown Point to Fort Ticonderoga. Schuler took overall command at Albany, while Gates remained in charge of the troops at Ticonderoga. A build-up of militia raised the number of American effectives at or near Ticonderoga to nearly 6,500. In the meanwhile, General Carleton was gathering 10,000 redcoats at the northern end of Lake Champlain, preparatory to a strike southward to join General Howe and cut New York in two. While Carleton was building a fleet to sail down Lake Champlain, Gates brilliantly prepared the American defenses combating smallpox in the camp, greatly raising troop morale, and swiftly constructing a defensive fleet, which he placed under the command of Benedict Arnold. Gates had ordered Arnold to deploy his Champlain fleet defensively and to avoid engaging the more powerful British fleet. But from October 11 to October 13, the rash and headstrong Arnold foolishly got his force into a slugging match off Valcour Island in the northern part of the lake, and Carleton's fleet smashed the Americans, sinking eleven of sixteen ships. Arnold himself only managed to escape capture by miraculously slipping through British naval and allied Indian lines. Carleton pressed his advantage by swooping down to capture Crown Point, he then appeared before Ticonderoga, but Gates had built the fortifications too well, and winter was fast setting in. Confronted by these formidable obstacles, Carleton turned back to Canada about the same time Howe withdrew from White Plains. The British menace from the north was over for another year, and, as it turned out, the delay was fatal to the British cause. Benedict Arnold sharply and properly criticized by his contemporaries for his overwhelming losses on Lake Champlain, has nonetheless been extravagantly praised by historians for delaying Carleton until he was forced to turn back north. 
But if he had used his fleet defensively in herring raids, he would have delayed Carlton even longer and avoided the destruction of his own fleet. The real credit for forcing the delay on Carlton belongs to Gates. It was he who ordered the construction of the fleet, which forced Carlton to construct his, and he who had fortified Ticonderoga. Gates, not Arnold, was the true hero of the repulse of the British in the North. Volume 4, Chapter 36 The Campaigns in New Jersey Washington's army was now safe. It was clear that Howe would turn back to capture the force left at Fort Washington. Yet, despite the urging of Charles Lee, no decision was made to evacuate that isolated and indefensible position. General Greene, in overall command of both forts at Fort Constitution, renamed Fort Lee in honor of Charles Lee, made his worst blunder of the war by maintaining that Fort Washington could be held. He was supported in this by the bumbling General Putnam and by Colonel Robert Morgan, commander of Fort Washington. The dithering Washington left the decision to Green and himself took most of his forces into New Jersey on November 12 to counter an expected British thrust there. Lee was left behind at North Castle and Heath at Peekskill to guard against any British move north. When Green decided to reinforce Fort Washington with almost 1,000 more men rather than evacuate, Lee lamented, Then we are undone. A British force of 10,000 began the attack on the fort on November 14, surrounded it, and secured its inevitable surrender. The Americans lost over 150 men in casualties and more than 2,800 captured a staggering total loss of nearly 3,000 men. Three days later, the British crossed the Hudson and took Fort Lee, which Green had to evacuate hastily without securing or destroying its provisions. At the two forts, the British seized several thousand guns and muskets, large amounts of ammunition and flour, and hundreds of tents. Typically, Washington allowed Green to bear the brunt of criticism for the defeat without acknowledging his own grave responsibility. To Lee, the disaster at Fort Washington was the last straw. The incompetence of Washington could be brooked no longer. It was clear to him, and to many other Americans as well, that he would do far better as commander-in-chief, and that, at the least, Washington's superior rank must not be allowed to impose fatal blunders upon Lee. Washington had encamped at Hackensack, New Jersey, northwest of Fort Lee, and Green's forces joined him there after almost being cut off and encircled by General Cornwallis at Fort Lee. The American forces, totaling 14,000 effectives, were now split into three parts, Washington and Green in Hackensack with 5,400 men, Heath at Peekskill with 3,200, and Lee at North Castle with 5,500. Hackensack on a flat plain was not defensible, and Washington, with only 3,000 men, retreated southwest toward Newark. This was the beginning of his full-scale retreat across New Jersey. To him and to his discouraged and broken army, it seemed that destruction was imminent, 
and he contemplated a retreat all the way to Virginia and even west beyond the Alleghenies. As he retreated, rapidly losing militia whose terms of enlistment had expired, Cornwallis followed hard on his heels. Washington fled toward Pennsylvania to safety on the other side of the Delaware River. Cornwallis was on the point of catching and destroying the American army at New Brunswick in early December, but at the crucial moment, Howe ordered him to halt at the Raritan River for four days, to wait for him to come up with his army. Washington was thereby allowed to escape to the Delaware. At the same time, in a useless and wasteful move, Howe dispatched Clinton with 6,000 men to seize Rhode Island, where the British were to linger around Newport for several years. Washington thereby escaped to Trenton on the Delaware. When he got there, however, he uncertainly and with no clear goal or purpose turned back. When he learned that Howe had reached Cornwallis and that the two were again pushing forward, he fled across the Delaware on December 6. The British posted their men at Trenton and in the surrounding area and dug in contentedly for the winter. Meanwhile, Washington was repeatedly and frantically urging Lee to join him in New Jersey, but Lee refused. He carefully waited to clear Upper Westchester of Tories and to call up more Connecticut and Massachusetts militia to guard against any invasion of New England. Crossing the Hudson in early December, Lee decided that it would be better to remain in the western hills of New Jersey. Stationing his army at Morristown on December 8th, he quickly realized, as Washington did not, that Howe was not about to fall on Philadelphia that winter. Therefore, he would be better employed in harassing and disrupting the British communication and supply lines from New York to Trenton. Lee was forming a new and brilliant conception of the proper mode of waging revolutionary warfare. Washington, interested first and foremost in keeping his army intact, was willing to abandon New Jersey to the British, with the result that Tories began to sprout and multiply and Tory militia to emerge and round up rebels. Lee saw that a revolution depends above all on the support and enthusiasm of the populace. The army is, in a sense, the superstructure of mass support. He saw that the people's militia was the last line of local defense and that this militia must remain active if the entire population were not to succumb to collaboration with the enemy. But the fragmented and untrained militia would only fight, especially in the early stages, if supported by Continental troops nearby. While Washington was denouncing short-term militia and calling for long-service volunteers, Lee urged increased emphasis on local militia, which would create zones of resistance that could deny General Howe the fruits of his recent victories. Lee, in short, had set out to reconquer the Jerseys, and he wrote Washington that the militia in this part of the provinces seems sanguine. If they could be assured of an army remaining amongst them, I believe they would raise a considerable number. Lee was increasingly acting independently of Washington. Indeed, the New York Council of Safety tried to persuade Gates who was leading a column from upstate New York to aid Washington, 
to disobey orders and join Lee instead. Gates, less of a military rebel than Lee, refused the plea. Furthermore, the New York militia under General George Clinton was getting ready to join Lee's army. Against his better judgment, Lee finally yielded to Washington's pleas and marched slowly southwestward. On December 13, a chance British raiding party captured Lee and spirited him to the British lines. Americans everywhere, from the ladies of Boston to Washington and Green to Robert Morris, Hancock, and the Adamses, lamented the sudden grievous blow. They had lost their paladin of American liberty, as Lee was widely called. The British, on the other hand, rejoiced wildly, from the red-coated soldiery to General Howe and the officers to the public houses in England. Lieutenant Colonel William Harcourt, head of the raiding party, rejoiced at the imminent end of the war and received the personal thanks of King George for his exploit. Never had American morale been lower. Ill, barely clothed or sheltered, Washington's 5,000 men on the west bank of the Delaware could have been crushed by a determined British attack and Philadelphia easily captured. But the Howes were still primarily concerned with making peace, and they issued a proclamation of a full and general pardon to all Americans who would take an oath of allegiance to the crown. Conservative New Jersey responded with enthusiasm, 5,000 quickly taking the oath. Citizens fled the exposed capital city of Philadelphia in droves. The eminent and wealthy Allen brothers of the old proprietary party of Philadelphia fled to join the British at Trenton, as did Joseph Galloway. Congress hastily turned over all military direction to Washington and on December 12 adjourned to Baltimore amid the jeers of Philadelphia's Tories. With his brilliant sense of timing, Tom Paine now published his pamphlet, The Crisis. Paine had joined Green's forces at Fort Lee as a humble volunteer and shared the lot of Washington's soldiers. The crisis was a stirring call for redoubling of hope and effort. It opened. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. The crisis spread like wildfire through all the towns of America and among the soldiers in the Continental Army. Everywhere morale was raised, even in New Jersey, where widespread and indiscriminate rapine and plunder by British and Hessian troops in the north alienated many Tories. But the biggest boost to morale was Howe's decision over the objections of his officers not to cut through Washington's forces and take Philadelphia, but instead to withdraw his army to winter quarters in New York. Philadelphia and the Continental Army were now safe, Heartened by this disastrous British decision, Washington began to take on, for a while, the accoutrements of a guerrilla leader. With the British tied down, somnolent, passive, and withdrawing, 
Why not a swift attack across the Delaware? In this aim, Washington was reinforced by Lee's second-in-command, General Sullivan, who arrived across the Delaware with 2,000 troops, and Gates came from the north with another 500. All in all, Washington had 6,000 effectives by Christmas of 1776. In this situation, he happily decided on a swift strike across the river. On late Christmas night, through a driving snow, Washington ferried 2,400 men across the ice-laden waters of the Delaware. Most remarkable was the feat of Colonel Henry Knox in transporting across the river 18 field cannon, a proportion of cannon to foot soldiers about three times the usual amount in the 18th century. The cannon were particularly useful on a snowy night for the muskets of that day could not fire unless completely dry. In a perfectly executed maneuver, Washington and his men were able to surround the brigade of Hessians stationed at Trenton. They took them, sodden with the celebrating of Christmas, completely by surprise. Washington's troops had read the crisis before embarking on the raid, and now they fell upon the Hessians, crying, This is the time to try men's souls! In an hour, the overconfident Hessian commander, General Johann Rall, had been killed and the Hessians had surrendered. The Hessians suffered 30 casualties and over 900 men had been taken prisoner. In contrast, the Americans suffered only three casualties. George Washington had won his first real military victory, and it was indeed a brilliant one. It was also the first battle he conducted in quasi-guerrilla manner. With the confusion engendered in the enemy troops, Greene and other officers urged Washington to press his advantage and attack the Hessian units stationed to the south in Burlington. But he lacked the imagination to grasp the dimensions of his own victory, and he cautiously withdrew back across the Delaware. He indecisively waited several days to become aggressive once more, and the delay almost proved fatal. He plunged back across the icy Delaware on December 31 with 5,000 men and reoccupied Trenton. By this time, however, Lord Cornwallis, who had been about to set sail for England, had rushed back to Jersey and was advancing upon Trenton with 6,000 troops. Retreating just southward as Cornwallis entered Trenton on January 2, Washington was in grave peril, for the British were too close to allow the Americans to recross the river. Knox's guns held off the British advance in the Second Battle of Trenton, and Cornwallis, against the advice of General Sir William Erskine, overconfidently decided to wait until morning to deliver the coup de grace. Perhaps at the suggestion of Brigadier General Arthur St. Clair, Washington silently moved east during the night, taking a neglected old road to slip around Cornwallis's lines and move north. At Princeton in the morning, Washington encountered a British brigade under Colonel Charles Mawhood, and after a furious battle sustained by Knox's guns, the Americans routed the British force. If the American troops had been fresh, they might have sped on to capture New Brunswick and isolate Cornwallis in southern New Jersey. Instead, Washington promptly took his exhausted, 
but happy men, northwest to winter quarters in Morristown. The angry British were obliged to evacuate all of New Jersey except New Brunswick and Perth Amboy on the Raritan River. Washington's victories at Trenton and Princeton served to bolster and restore American morale. As one young Englishman noted about the Americans, a few days ago they had given up the cause for lost. Their late successes have turned the scale, and now they are all liberty mad again. This turnabout of morale was eminently justified. Professor Alden estimates with good reason that Trenton, and not the victory at Saratoga the following year, was the true turning point of the revolution. Certainly American fortunes were at their lowest ebb on the Jersey retreat in November and December. By the 1777 campaign, American forces were stronger, and the British never as confident again. As optimism returned, the Continental Congress moved back to Philadelphia. Despite difficulties in obtaining food, clothing, and recruits to replace deserters and short-term enlistees, by spring, new Continental regiments arrived at Morristown. Washington used dictatorial powers that had been granted him by Congress to commandeer food from the inhabitants of New Jersey, but the ravages and depredations of the British and Hessians had transformed the previously lukewarm Jersey populace into ardent patriots. As a result, the 14,000 British troops stationed at Perth Amboy in New Brunswick were virtually under siege. Any British foraging parties were subjected to devastating attacks by Washington's forces or by Jersey militia, all aided by the intelligence work of the Jersey citizenry. Volume 4, Chapter 37 Planning in the Winter of 1777 Howe's next objective was Philadelphia, but instead of taking it as he could at any time, he dawdled in New York through the winter and early spring, while Washington's army grew stronger. Several sporadic forays took place during the spring. In March, the British burned the American port at Peekskill. The following month, they sent New York Governor Tryon with 2,000 men to burn and destroy the large quantity of American military stores at Danbury, Connecticut. After successfully accomplishing their mission unopposed, the British were neatly harried on the way back by impromptu militia led by General Benedict Arnold. Arnold had been at home in Connecticut, all but resigned from the army. The fiery Arnold had made many enemies and had been passed over by Congress for promotion in favor of a brace of inferior generals. After his exploit near Danbury, Congress gave Arnold a belated promotion, and he was persuaded to rejoin the Northern Army. British planning for the campaign of 1777 was in the hands of three men, Lord George Germain in London, General Howe, and General John Burgoyne. All three of them were to share responsibility for the British disaster of that year, but the greatest share must fall upon the bizarre strategy and tactics of Howe. Burgoyne had been put in charge of the British Army in Canada, replacing General Carleton. Carleton was one of the best of the British generals, but he had become personally repugnant to the colonial secretary. 
Burgoyne's idea was that he would descend from Canada down Lake Champlain. A smaller force would cut through Fort Oswego and the Mohawk Valley eastward, and General Howe would bring his massive army up the Hudson Valley, the three to meet triumphantly in Albany. The colonies would be cut in two, and the combined British forces could proceed to capture New England, and then to turn upon the South. Given the rising American strength in 1777 and the nature of popular revolutionary warfare, the British might well not have succeeded in securing territory they had militarily captured, but at least such a plan had a good prospect of success. A greater emphasis on Howe's strike north than on a move southward from Canada would have been an improvement, however, for the terrain of Canada and northern New York was not well suited for an unpopular invading army. Howe, however, confused the situation completely by submitting three completely different strategic plans in succession, each one worse than the one before. To begin with, he no longer saw any prospect of winning the war in 1777. Neither, as Gruber puts it, did his subsequent performance endanger the fulfillment of his prediction. His first plan, made while Washington was in the flood of retreat across Jersey, was sound and similar to Burgoyne's. The key was that Howe would take 10,000 troops up the Hudson to join Burgoyne in Albany. Rhode Island would then be used as a base to strike at New England, and then they would march southward to victory. Soon after, even before Trenton, when the military situation had not yet changed, he submitted a radically different and much poorer plan, to take the bulk of his army to capture Philadelphia. Only 3,000 troops would be stationed in the lower Hudson Valley to assist Burgoyne. Philadelphia at this stage was a needless diversion and distraction, accomplishing little, disastrously splitting the British forces— and putting virtually the entire burden on Burgoyne's Canadian force. Apart from his political views, which were probably treasonable, Howe was bemused by the shimmer of innumerable Pennsylvania Tories arriving to greet him, a shimmer fostered in all good faith by Galloway, the Allens, and the other eager Tory emigres in the British camp. In April, he submitted a third and even worse plan. Now there would not even be 3,000 men to assist Burgoyne. Moreover, Howe would put his army to sea to invade Philadelphia by the circuitous route of the Chesapeake Bay. In this plan, his troops would be completely cut off from the possibility of helping Burgoyne in case of trouble. He did promise to raise 3,000 Tories under Governor Tryon to operate out of New York City and up the Hudson, but he never bothered to do so. If Howe made the principal errors of strategy, Germain erred in not cracking down on Howe, while Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne, a wit and a poser full of fustian, was supremely overconfident. Hence, neither Germain nor Burgoyne realized the disaster that Howe's strategy would open up for the British. In addition to Sir William's plans for 1777, the Howe's true outlook 
may be gauged by Lord Howe's disobeying the Crown's orders to blockade the coast of the United States. Instead, he directed his captains to allow subsistence fishing, to cultivate the goodwill and confidence of the Americans, and to grant them every other indulgence legally possible. The aim was to conciliate the friendly dispositions of the Americans. Moreover, the British sea captains were prohibited from raiding the American coast and the American ports. Howe persisted in this course despite the vigorous objections of his superiors in England, and Germain bitterly charged that, as a result of Howe's indulgence, the waters of Great Britain were teeming with American privateers. At the end of May, Washington had moved his camp southward to Middlebrook, in the hills above New Brunswick. General Howe made no attempt to seize Philadelphia quickly, and then returned to aid Burgoyne, but instead he spent most of June trying to lure him down into open combat, once almost succeeding. Finally giving up, Howe evacuated New Jersey altogether at the end of June and moved his men to New York. The astute General Clinton, as well as most of the other top British officers, pleaded with him to change his mind and adopt the sound first plan to march north up the Hudson, but he proved adamant. On July 23, his armada of over 260 ships, carrying 15,000 troops, set sail from New York toward Philadelphia. The enraged Clinton was left in New York City with 7,000 men, of whom half were American Tories, a force barely large enough to defend the city, let alone move north, to aid Burgoyne's army in the north. Burgoyne was left to fend for himself. Volume 4, Chapter 38 Rebellion at Livingston Manor While Burgoyne was preparing his fateful expedition, the oppressed tenants of Livingston Manor in upstate New York decided to take a hand in the struggle. To the downtrodden victims of the New York-landed oligarchy, the issues of the war seemed remote. The important issue was gaining ownership of the land they had tilled and brought into productive use. If their landlords happened to be Whigs, as were the Livingstons, leaders of the conservative rebel faction, then the tenants naturally and understandably became Tories. For them, only victory of British arms might bring the ownership of their lands. Certainly, there was no hope for them in a Livingston victory. Livingston Manor occupied the east bank of the Hudson, south of Albany, now Columbia County. From the outbreak of the Revolution, tenant unrest, which had erupted during the General Tenants' Rebellion of 1766, was renewed throughout the 160,000 acres of Livingston Manor. As leaders of Revolutionary New York, the Livingstons kept a tight control over the Manor Committee of Safety. Like parish vestries in the South, the Manor Committee was a self-perpetuating oligarchy, despite formal adherence to democratic regulations, such as annual elections by the inhabitants of the Manor. By the fall of 1776, unrest on the Manor was becoming grave and was being aggravated by conscription into militia preparing to fight in their landlord's battles against Burgoyne. 
Indeed, Henry Livingston, commander of the regiment of Manor Militia, refused to march north against Burgoyne, for most of the men would simply refuse to march, and the order would probably provoke an uprising against the Manor Committee. Many tenants were reported hiding in the woods, and one magnificently independent tenant, Jury Wheeler, warned the Manor Committee that if he had to go to the army, the first person he would shoot would be his captain. By October 1776, a number of discontented tenants had gathered in the southeast corner of Livingston Manor, and several signed a king's book, pledging that they would fight for King George. Tenants were also restive on other estates of Whig landed monopolists. In the late autumn of 1776, 400 tenants rose in arms against the Lord of Rensselaerwick. By April of 1777, a great increase of Toryism around Albany led to massive desertions of militia and an attack on the Albany jail by 700 men to free captured deserters. The intelligent path for the rebellious tenants would have been to hold off any uprising until Burgoyne had reached the area of Albany, that is, until the fall of 1777. If they had waited, they might well have turned the tide. But in those days, information was particularly faulty. They acted in May 1777 on the false belief that British troops were already in the vicinity. Consequently, the tenants made two fatal mistakes— they rose much too early, and once having risen, they failed to bring their full force to bear, expecting, as they did, British help at any moment. In addition, in their spontaneous action, they lacked the leadership necessary to guide and give intelligent direction to their uprising. Even so, the underground tenant organization was skilled and elaborate. Almost every tenant was included in the conspiracy, which was centered in the eastern part of the manor. Active in the rebellion were 400 tenants of Livingston Manor, 60 tenants of the lower manor to the south, and 50 non-tenant farmers and militiamen of the manor. Their goal was ownership of the land, which they believed rightfully theirs. Their arms were either homemade and improvised or stolen from patriot stores or Livingston Mill. The Livingston Tenant Rebellion, taking place during the first week of May, was precipitated by the arrival of outside militia escorting tenant prisoners. A series of tenant skirmishes ensued. Several hundred militiamen from outside, headed by landed oligarchs John P. Livingston and Robert Van Rensselaer, were brought in to suppress the tenants and viciously ordered to fire upon every man fleeing before them. On May 5, the hapless tenants, facing superior arms, offered to surrender in exchange for a guarantee against retribution. The offer was brusquely spurned, and the tenant uprising ruthlessly suppressed. Six tenants were killed in the fighting, and perhaps a dozen tenants were executed for their part in the rising. Over 300 tenant prisoners were dispersed outside the manor. A few were held hostage, while the suitably penitent were set free after swearing a loyalty oath to the revolution. 
This uncharacteristically gentle treatment of the rebels was due to shock and bewilderment among the Livingstons, who were afraid of further uprisings, especially with Burgoyne drawing near. There were, it is true, no further uprisings among the tenantry, but their sullen Toryism, or rather anti-Whiggery, continued. By the fall, the tenants were already repudiating the oaths of loyalty they had been forced to take in May, and nearly seventy Livingston tenants left to join Burgoyne's army. Even after Burgoyne's defeat, widespread desertions and draft-dodging continued on Livingston Manor. The tenants were not able to win their land, but they did accomplish one thing by their uprising— Never again would they be treated like cattle by their landlords, and never would their votes be simply taken for granted. Volume 4, Chapter 39, The Burgoyne Disaster General Burgoyne arrived back in Quebec from England on May 6. By mid-June he had assembled a force of 9,500, including 7,200 British and German regulars, and Tory and Indian auxiliaries, and a mighty fleet to sail down the Richelieu River and Lake Champlain. On June 14, he set sail from Fort St. John's in Canada. At the same time, Colonel Barry St. Leger set off for Fort Oswego in the Mohawk Valley to Albany with a force of 1,700, including 1,000 Indians under the brilliant Mohawk war chief Joseph Brandt. Burgoyne accompanied his launching with a flamboyant and preposterous proclamation to the Americans and his Indian allies, denouncing the Americans and proclaiming that Britain was fighting for the general privileges of mankind. Even in an age accustomed to high-flown rhetoric, this bombast was a ready subject for satire and ridicule. Numerous parodies appeared, and in England, Lord North laughed heartily at Burgoyne's rhodomontade. Burke ridiculed it, and the Whig writer Horace Walpole denounced the vaporine Burgoyne, that pomposo and her lothrumbo. Burgoyne overran Crown Point on June 27, and then advanced upon Fort Ticonderoga, that American Gibraltar, where the American army was supposed to make its decisive stand. The condition of the American army at Ticonderoga had deteriorated considerably from the previous autumn. Not only had the northern army dwindled away during the winter to only 5,000 men, of whom half were militia, but the problem of command was acute. Gates and Schuler had both lobbied in Congress for the post of commander of the army, and Congress had taken the worst course by vacillating between the two of them. In March 1777, overall command was given by Congress to Gates, but was handed back to Schuler in May. The quarrel between the two exacerbated the friction between New England and New York soldiers in the Northern Army, the radical Yankees admiring Gates and hating Schuler, and the Yorkers loyal to their leader. When Burgoyne appeared before Ticonderoga on June 30, 1777, the Northern American army was split in two. In command of the fort was Brigadier General Arthur St. Clair with 3,200 men, while Schuler maintained a force of 2,000 to the south. 
Ticonderoga was surrounded by three steep hills, and St. Clair's troops were not sufficiently numerous to garrison them. The major American error was to leave Mount Defiance, southwest of the fort, unfortified. Gates, seeing the danger of the peaks falling to the British, had repeatedly urged its fortification during 1776, but Schuler paid no heed. During his two months' tenure in command in 1777, Gates and the brilliant Polish engineer, Colonel Thaddeus Kosciuszko, who had come to America to fight for the revolutionary cause, prepared to fortify Mount Defiance. But Gates was replaced in May before he could get the project underway. Even after May, he continued to pepper Schuler with warnings, but Schuler again paid no attention. Seeing the possibilities, the British seized two of the three hills at once, and by July 5, British General William Phillips had transported several cannon to the top of Mount Defiance. Now directly under the big guns, St. Clair decided on immediate withdrawal, and in dead of night the Americans sped out of the fort, fleeing down the opposite shore. In pursuit, the British seized in rapid succession, Ticonderoga in its hills, Hubberton and Castleton across the lake in Vermont, Skeensboro near Whitehall, New York, and Fort Anne. Colonel Seth Warner and a rear guard carelessly dwaddled, and the British caught up to them on July 7, resulting in a slashing defeat and about 400 casualties for the American forces. The British also suffered heavy casualties, totaling 200. Warner, leader of the American rear guard, fled with the rest of his men to the Vermont mountains. The rest of the American army met and regrouped at Fort Edward on the east bank of the Hudson River. Meanwhile, Burgoyne's navy had destroyed and captured over 200 boats on Lake Champlain, and he had seized an enormous supply of arms and ammunition, including powder and more than 100 cannon, which the fleeing Americans had left behind at Ticonderoga. To Americans and the British alike, it seemed that a complete victory for Burgoyne was inevitable. Albany was only 70 miles away. King George exclaimed, I have beat the Americans. And John Adams talked angrily of making an example of a general leaving his post by having him shot. Actually, this was unfair to St. Clair, who did well considering the position he was in. His retreat was skillfully executed and saved his army. The common soldiers were better at pinning the blame where it truly belonged, and desertions multiplied as many men refused any longer to serve under General Schuler. On the brink of victory once again, the British stopped to rest at Skeensboro instead of pressing their advantage to a swift conclusion. In drawing up his plans for the campaign, Burgoyne had specifically rejected the route from Skeensboro to Fort Edward because it led through dense forest and marshlands. Instead, he planned to return to Ticonderoga and sail to Fort Edward down Lake George, even though that route, including the captured Fort George, was now used only for transportation of supplies. His enormous blunder in finally choosing the land route was made at the advice of Tory Major Philip Skeen. 
Skeen had obtained an arbitrary grant of over 30,000 acres in this region and was the owner of the Skeensboro colony on that land. Now he was eager to have Burgoyne cut a road from Skeensboro to the Hudson, as this would greatly raise the value of his property after the war. By going to Fort Edward by land through the Skeensboro Fort and area, instead of sailing down Lake George, and by dragging over fifty guns with him on the march, Burgoyne greatly slowed his own advance. Schuler astutely delayed him further by diverting creek water with boulders and by sending axemen to fell thousands of trees across the line of march. Burgoyne took twenty days to traverse twenty miles to Fort Edward, which he captured on July 29, the Americans retreating before him. He proceeded another seven miles down the east bank of the Hudson, stopping at Fort Miller at the Batten Kill. Schooler established American positions at Stillwater, 25 miles to the south on the Hudson River. As Schuler retreated, the American army began to gain strength. 600 Continentals joined the army from Peekskill, and masses of New England militia slowly marched west to guard America from the British threat. General Arnold and General Benjamin Lincoln joined the force and Daniel Morgan, released in an exchange of prisoners the previous summer, had been given a hand-picked corps of 500 riflemen by Washington and sent north. Morgan's men came from the frontier areas of Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, and included such noted frontier fighters as the celebrated Timothy Murphy. One army that was not sent north, but which should have been, was Washington's. As General Howe's mighty fleet sailed out of New York Bay on July 23rd, Washington, understandably, could not bring himself to believe that he would really desert Burgoyne and sail south. He naturally expected the British fleet to sail up the Hudson to join Burgoyne. Howe's interminable delays and dithering on the voyage sent Washington into an agony of indecision, and he marched up and down New Jersey and from New York to Pennsylvania, trying to see if Howe was engaged in an elaborate feint and would yet sail up the Hudson. But while Washington's tactics were understandable, the strategy was abysmal. Instead of trying to counter Howe wherever he went, Washington should have abandoned Philadelphia to Howe, which Howe was to conquer in any case, to swing north to join the northern army and crush Burgoyne. The combined victorious forces could then have swung down to meet Howe. In any case, Washington's considerable force would not have been wasted hanging around Howe's much larger and more powerful army. Stopping at Fort Miller and suffering from overextended supply lines, Burgoyne decided, upon the urging of the Hessian commander, Major General Baron von Rydessel, to detach a mixed force of only 700, under Lieutenant Colonel Friedrich Baum, another Hessian, on a raid to the southeast on Bennington, Vermont, which he knew to be richly stocked with food, ammunition, oxen, and horses, and therefore the answer to his supply problems. Reaching Bennington on August 14 and picking up eager bands of Tories on the way, 
Baum accidentally encountered a body of 2,000 American militia under General John Stark. Stark had served brilliantly in the Continental Army, from Bunker Hill to Canada to Princeton, but he, like Arnold, had been passed over for promotion, and he had left the Army. The New Hampshire legislature the previous month had voted to raise a brigade of militia to defend against the advancing enemy, and he was able to raise an enormous force of 1,500 New Hampshire men, no less than 10% of the enrolled voters of that state. This force was joined at Bennington by 500 Massachusetts and Vermont militia. General Schuler and Lincoln had ordered him to join Schuler's main army, but Stark flatly disobeyed, declaring that he was responsible only to the New Hampshire General Court. Instead, he decided to harry Burgoyne's lines of communication. Baum saw that, being heavily outnumbered, he should not attack, but he did not have the wit to retreat quickly. Instead, he asked for reinforcements, and Burgoyne imprudently sent German Lieutenant Colonel Henrik von Bremen with nearly 650 men. On the morning of August 16, Stark struck at the British, aided by a ruse in which the Americans encircled the Germans in shirt sleeves, pretending to be Tories. The ensuing battle was extremely bitter, the Germans fighting desperately despite the flight of the Indians and Tories. Finally, Baum was killed, and over 350 Germans captured. Too late, Bremen's force appeared, having absurdly plodded along at one mile an hour in parade ground formation. At the same time, Seth Warner arrived with nearly 400 men, and the combined American force sent Bremen, fleeing back to Burgoyne, with well over 200 casualties. Not only did Burgoyne not get his supplies, but he had lost the huge chunk of nearly 1,000 men at the Battle of Bennington. Since he had been forced to leave a large garrison to guard Fort Ticonderoga, he now had only 6,300 men in his main army. Before him were gathering an ever-larger Patriot army, and to the east American militia were forming and threatening to cut his supply lines. In this Revolutionary War, the British were learning the great lesson to be absorbed by all counter-revolutionaries. The formal army of the rebels is not the full extent of their might. Behind them lay the people, and now the people were rising up in arms all around Burgoyne to crush him. Neither could Burgoyne expect any help from St. Leger, slicing east across the Mohawk. St. Leger with about 700 British Tories and over 800 Indians, sailed down the St. Lawrence and reached Fort Oswego on Lake Ontario in mid-July, where he was joined by battalions of Tories and Iroquois. This particular fight was also part of a struggle for the soul of Tryon County, the vast, thinly populated frontier county of New York, west of Schenectady, Tories were powerful in this frontier domain. Sir William Johnson, the wealthiest landowner in the county, had been the British agent to the Indians, and he was regarded as a hero by the Iroquois nations. In the spring of 1776, his son, Sir John Johnson, 
had been forced to flee to Canada with his faithful Highlanders and other active Tories of the region. The remaining Tories had their property confiscated and were imprisoned, flogged, tarred and feathered, and even shot and hanged, often at drumhead courts-martial. Families and relatives of suspected Tories were seized by the Americans and taken as hostages. Zeal for battle was intense on both sides, and now Sir John led the Tory contingent under St. Leisure. The leading Indian ally of the British was the brilliant young Joseph Brandt, war chief of the Mohawk Nation. Brandt had been raised as a member of the Johnson family, and his sister was Sir William's wife. Brandt had been restless to attack the settlers since 1775, but Carleton discouraged Indian raids on the Americans. On the one hand, this lost him a golden opportunity to terrorize the American frontier. On the other, the American invasion of Canada had cut off the St. Lawrence, and hence possible supplies, from the Indians. The arrival of Burgoyne changed all this. Now the Indians were to be encouraged to aid the British in fighting the Americans. Brant and the Iroquois rushed to join St. Ledger for the fray. Marching east from Oswego, St. Ledger reached Fort Stanwix on the Mohawk River, the gateway to the Mohawk Valley, on August 3. Stationed at Stanwix was the main American force in the west, about 700 men, ably commanded by two young Dutch-American colonels, Peter Gansevoort and Marinus Willette, a radical. St. Ledger laid siege to the fort. General Nicholas Herkimer, a German-American who commanded the Tryon militia, marched west along the Mohawk with nearly 800 militiamen eager to defend their homes against the Indian menace. Reaching Oriskany Creek, eight miles short of Stanwix, he realized that he could not attack St. Ledger's overwhelmingly larger force on his own. When he failed to make contact with the besieged fort, he refused to go on. But his restive officers denounced him not only for cowardice, but also for treason, a charge to which Herkimer, with several Tory relatives in St. Leger's army, was understandably sensitive. On August 6, he was finally goaded into pressing on a few miles west, where Brandt, commanding 400 Indians and over a 100 Tories, had set a cunning ambush. It seemed at first that Herkimer's surrounded troops would be decimated, and the Indians eagerly pressed their advantage in one of the bloodiest engagements in the war. Despite the mortal wounding of Herkimer, the untrained farmers almost miraculously banded together to survive in bitter close fighting with Indians and Tories. They retreated hastily in deep and fearful conviction that they had lost the battle and that the worst was at hand. It is true the Americans suffered a staggering total of 400 casualties out of their 800-man force, but the Indian and Tory force had suffered almost as greatly. The Battle of Oriskany had also succeeded in breaking the morale of the Indians. They were not used to heavy losses, and these they had suffered. Furthermore, Colonel Willette had seized the opportunity of the battle to lead 250 men on a successful raid on the Indian camp. 
These setbacks were coupled with Indian rancor at bearing the brunt of the battle and the losses. Despite Brant's urging, they began to desert and drift away by the score. St. Leger was losing a major portion of his force. No longer the happy warrior, confident of an imminent march into Albany, he redoubled his siege of Stanwix, but now Schuler detached 1,000 Continentals under Benedict Arnold to go to the relief of Fort Stanwix. Reaching Fort Dayton, east of Oriskany, on August 21, Arnold was able to deceive St. Leger and particularly his Indians, about the size of his force. The approach of the renowned Arnold was the last straw for the Indians, who now fled en masse. Deprived of a large part of his troops, St. Leger was forced to abandon the fort on August 23, and he staggered back to Oswego, and thence to Canada. Arnold's force, victorious without firing a shot, sped back to rejoin the main American army. The St. Leisure threat was over, and Burgoyne was now completely alone. Burgoyne's misfortunes, moreover, were now aggravated by the desertions of over 400 of his original 500 Indians, disgruntled at British restrictions on their terror tactics and adept at gauging the changing tides of the fortunes of war. Increasingly isolated and in worsening straits, Burgoyne should now have hightailed it back to Ticonderoga and abandoned the Albany campaign. But rather than retreat and abandon his exuberant plans for military renown, he crossed the Hudson to the west bank at Saratoga, now Schulersville, in mid-September to launch a march to Albany. By this bold step, Burgoyne cut off any chance of retreat and came into position to attack the American force, now stationed southward on the same bank at the mouth of the Mohawk. It was to be all or nothing for Burgoyne in a final confrontation with the enemy. In the meanwhile, the loss of Ticonderoga had disgusted Congress with General Schuler, and in early August it replaced Schuler with his old competitor, Gates. Gates reached the American camp on August 19. The Americans' most able general, was now on hand to wage their most decisive battle. His arrival had an electrifying effect on the morale of the American troops. A week before he came, one officer despaired of the miserable state of despondency and terror among the men. Would to God Gates would arrive, he exclaimed. Soon after, he exulted that from that woeful state, Gates' arrival raised us as if by magic. We began to hope and then to act. He uplifted the American forces not only by his superior ability in battle, but also by his administration and respect for the New England soldiers who formed the bulk of his army, an outlook Schuler did not share. Close to his men and sharing the rigors and dangers of his troops, Gates had great confidence in the ordinary, non-professional soldier, and he understood his needs and problems. His announced policy, for example, was never to call up the militia until virtually the very moment that they were needed, and as soon as they finished their short terms of duty, he did not berate them as did Washington and others, for traitorously not re-enlisting. Instead, he thanked them courteously and sent them quickly and punctiliously home. In short, 
He understood that this was essentially a people's war, a popular revolution which depended for its success on mass uprising and mass support, not on European training and the European military system. Hence the flocking by the militia of all New England to Gates' side for the forthcoming battle. A British officer reported, The farmers left their plows, the smith his anvil, cobbler and tailor followed. The militia came marching from all the provinces of New England. By the final battle, indeed, the American militia outnumbered the regular troops. On assuming command, Gates moved the American army north from the mouth of the Mohawk, where Schuler had stationed it, and where the American force would be subject to defeat in European-style warfare on an open plain. Gates marched the army north and stationed it on Bemis Heights, a strategic bottleneck to Albany just south of Burgoyne at Saratoga, which Gates proceeded to have well fortified by Colonel Cusco. As Burgoyne advanced south upon the Americans, Daniel Morgan's picked regiment of riflemen did a brilliant guerrilla job of preventing the British from sending out any advance scouts to discover enemy positions. Even though deprived of knowledge of the terrain and of American positions, Burgoyne nevertheless decided to attack. As Burgoyne's column advanced down through the woods on Gates's left on the morning of September 19, Gates sent Morgan's riflemen to meet them. They were joined by a crack group of 300 musket men, also under Morgan's command. The two forces collided with Burgoyne near Freeman's farm. Morgan's men, long skilled at forest fighting, used mobile guerrilla tactics in thin, shifting skirmish lines, from which they could cut down the orthodox, bulky and plodding, linear formations of the British. At the clearing on Freeman's farm, reinforcements came up on both sides, and Arnold, commander of the left wing, sent several continental regiments to join Morgan. The heavy fire drove the British out of the clearing, but Arnold's continentals were themselves driven out of the clearing by a British bayonet charge. Morgan's riflemen, unable to wield bayonets, continued to stay hidden in the woods, subjecting the British to devastating fire. Furthermore, Morgan instructed his sharpshooters to concentrate their fires on the weakest links in the British chain, the officers, the skilled artillerymen, and the Tory auxiliaries. Tory morale was far lower than that among British regulars. The officers and artillerymen were, of course, key figures in the army's structure. Morgan was criticized for his ungentlemanly tactics of centering fire on the military elite, for in traditional European warfare it was the custom to send out the common soldiery to slaughter in bulky linear formation on the open field. A tacit gentleman's agreement usually spared the officers on both sides. Open field fighting, however, would not have been so attractive to the military elite if their own lives had been placed in jeopardy, and Morgan's sharpshooters began driving this lesson home. At the end of the day, Gates pulled back the American force from the furious battle, and thus ended the Battle of Freeman's Farm, or the First Battle of Saratoga. 
Burgoyne contented himself with a claim of technical victory since the British force held the field, but the de facto victory belonged to the Americans. Burgoyne's losses were extremely severe, especially those suffered at the hands of Morgan, 600 casualties as compared to 300 for the American force. The American losses were caused primarily by Arnold's reckless insistence on open frontal attack upon the enemy lines. Arnold had urged Gates to abandon his protected positions and sally forth to attack the enemy, a move that would have been ruinous to the American cause. While Gates allowed Morgan's force to fire upon the enemy in guerrilla style, he compromised by allowing Arnold his futile attack on the clearing at Freeman's farm. Even so, Arnold was furious because he had not been given more men. Burgoyne was now bogged down and surrounded by an American force that grew rapidly larger as more and more New York and New England militiamen poured into the camp. For more than two weeks, Daniel Morgan's riflemen harassed the British unmercifully as night raiding parties attacked and attacked on the flanks and snipers picked off any British emerging into sight. Again, scouts could not be sent out to provide vitally needed information. Furthermore, Burgoyne learned of a successful raid on Mount's independence and defiance by Colonels John Brown and Seth Warner, which captured 300 men and a score of boats. But even as supplies began to run out, as the morale of his men rapidly deteriorated, and desertions multiplied, and his chilly weather heralded the onset of winter and the importance of reaching winter quarters at Albany, Burgoyne decided to attack in a desperate gamble for victory. Meanwhile, Washington, engaged in unproductive battles with Howe around Philadelphia, asked Gates to send him Morgan's regiment, the crucial American unit at Saratoga. Gates declined the request and thus thwarted a possible disastrous loss that might well have been inflicted on the American cause. On October 4, Burgoyne held a council of war. General Clinton had proposed to come up from New York in an attempt to relieve Burgoyne, but nothing had been heard from him. Burgoyne's generals urged him to retreat, but he regarded this as dishonorable and instead determined on a probing attack on the American left wing to be followed, if successful, by a general assault the next day. On October 7, Burgoyne, still ignorant of the terrain and of American dispositions, led his probing attack with 2,100 troops on the American left at Bemis Heights, leaving fewer than 3,500 behind in his entrenched position. Gates again sent out Morgan and pursued his shrewd guerrilla-type strategy of keeping his main force deep behind fortifications. Denying the British the opportunity of a pitched battle, he continued to wear down Burgoyne's forces. The tactics of the battle were devised by Morgan, who suggested simultaneous flanking attacks on Burgoyne. Arnold had meanwhile been relieved of his command by Gates for insubordination after a violent quarrel. He did not think Gates had given him sufficient credit for the engagement at Freeman's farm. Sulking in his tent, Arnold saw that the Battle of Bemis Heights was still indecisive and inconclusive toward the end of the day. 
Restless at the stalemate, he rushed forth without authorization to help Morgan and assumed the lead of his exhilarated and cheering Connecticut brigade, shouting, Now, come on, boys, if the day is long enough, we'll have them in hell before night. Arnold led frontal assault after frontal assault on the British lines with the Connecticut and other brigades, without success. Finally, he led the Connecticut Brigade, Morgan's men, and two other regiments that had been supporting Morgan in a furious attack against Brayman's Hessian Redoubt, guarding Burgoyne's right flank. This attack succeeded, Arnold falling wounded and permanently crippled at the moment of victory. One of the important ingredients of this victory was the deliberate mortal shooting of General Simon Fraser, single-handedly rallying the British lines by Morgan's brilliant rifleman Timothy Murphy. Burgoyne was forced to withdraw from the field, and his main position now indefensible, he retreated his army northward. The decisive battle of Bemis Heights, the Second Battle of Saratoga, was over. The Americans suffered only 150 casualties, the British nearly 700. Arnold has generally received the credit for Burgoyne's defeat, but his charge, while dramatic and romantic, was reckless and could well have lost the battle. The victory really belonged to Gates, whose patient strategy would inevitably have worn Burgoyne down without the needless chances taken and extra blood shed in Arnold's charge. Compared to the roles of Gates and Morgan, Arnold's contribution to Burgoyne's defeat, while real, was flashy and superficial. Burgoyne's retreat was slow. When he took up strong, entrenched positions at Saratoga on October 9, he hoped that Gates would be rash enough to launch a frontal attack. Instead, Gates wisely sent out militiamen to encircle and entrap the British army and also to seize their boats. Burgoyne knew that Clinton had begun to move north, but he was still too far away to influence results. By October 12, he finally agreed to Baron von Rydessel's urging to flee northward, but he delayed another day, and by then it was too late. His once splendid army was a ragged force of 5,000 men and surrounded by a force that had swollen to three times that number. Gates demanded unconditional surrender. Burgoyne refused and held out for an agreement whereby the British force would be permitted to sail for England, provided that they would not fight again in America. Learning that Clinton's force of 3,000 men had broken through Putnam's defenses in the highlands and had reached Esopus, now Kingston, on October 15, Gates agreed to accept Burgoyne's offer or convention. On October 17, Burgoyne surrendered. The repercussions of the Saratoga surrender would prove to be momentous. The move to split New York had failed and one-fifth of the British forces in America had surrendered in one fell swoop. The entire British strategy was shattered. And, as will be seen, France was to be led by the heartening victory to recognize American independence and to enter the war openly on the American side. The surrender terms were violated immediately. 
The Americans, realizing that the British troops sent home would simply release other troops to serve in the war, refused to allow the prisoners to embark. Instead, they sent them to Virginia, where they deserted in droves. There being little they could do in their isolated state, the British forces in New York withdrew to Canada from Ticonderoga, now useless to them. As for Clinton, excessive caution had prevented him from racing up the Hudson to Albany after his breakthrough in the Highlands, and also from taking with him the 2,000 soldiers uselessly stationed in Rhode Island. Apart from the losing Charleston expedition the year before, this was his first campaign as head of his own army, and it was certainly unsatisfactory. The British might still have salvaged their fortunes, however, if Clinton had been allowed to keep control of the Highland forts, cutting American communications and supply lines across the lower Hudson. But General Howe, apparently over his objections, ordered him to evacuate Fort Clinton and to send reinforcements to Philadelphia. Clinton was thereby forced to abandon the Hudson Valley and withdraw quickly to New York City. Removed from his command and unfairly in disgrace, General Schuler apparently toyed with treason and secretly told the British that he was ready to rejoin the British Empire if Britain would abandon its taxation of America. There is also some evidence that he was partially motivated by his hatred of the rebellious Vermonters and that he may have had St. Clair abandon Ticonderoga to smoke out the Vermont forces. Their ardent fighting for the Americans may have led him to consider siding with Great Britain. Thus, the general American suspicion of Schuler's loyalty after Ticonderoga was not entirely without foundation. Volume 4, Chapter 40, Howe's Expedition in Pennsylvania While Gates was greatly helping to win the war in the North, Washington and Howe were seemingly competing with each other to see who could best lose the war further south. Howe had finally embarked with his huge armada on July 23. The voyage was a slow and lackadaisical one. Apparently he had no intention of finishing his business at Philadelphia quickly and then racing back to New York to help Burgoyne. He first sailed up the Delaware River on July 29, this being the shortest route to Philadelphia where he could land just south of the city. But then, worried about Washington's non-existent river forts near Wilmington, he turned around, sailed all the way round the peninsula and up Chesapeake Bay to land, finally, 50 miles from Philadelphia at Head of Elk, Maryland, on August 25. A full month had been consumed in this short voyage, and after all this time and the suffering of men and horses aboard from heat, rough seas, confinement, and shortage of supplies, the British forces found themselves considerably further from that city than they had been in New Jersey. Washington stationed himself at Wilmington, and when Howe landed, he decided to abandon the uncongenial role of guerrilla chieftain for that of orthodox general. He chose open frontal battle with a far superior British army in order to defend Philadelphia at all cost. His best strategy would have been to abandon Philadelphia to Howe, speed north to crush Burgoyne, and then lead the victorious army southward. 
In any event, he should not have courted terrible defeats by trying to keep Howe from a city which would do the British little good anyway. With 15,000 men to Washington's 11,000, Howe's army was superior in both firepower and manpower when the two forces met along Brandywine Creek at Chad's Ford in Pennsylvania near the Delaware border. Howe attacked on September 11, sending Cornwallis with half the troops in a deft and silent flanking maneuver, reminiscent of Long Island, to the left to cross the stream and come behind the American right wing. General Sullivan, commanding the right wing, turned almost at the last minute to meet the assault. Cornwallis had almost broken through Sullivan, but Nathaniel Green brought two brigades from the center and raced four miles in 45 minutes to save the American right from utter rout and perhaps the entire army from destruction. In the meantime, General Wilhelm von Nipphausen, commanding the center at Chad's Ford, was able to crash through the American center, and Washington was forced to retreat north to Chester, where Green brought back his brigades to join him. The American defeat had been severe indeed. Washington had lost over a thousand casualties, while the British had lost five hundred. Again, Howe failed to press ahead quickly, and destroyed the demoralized American troops. But this time there was perhaps the good excuse that the British forces were too weary. Washington's generalship had rarely been worse than at Brandywine. Apart from the strategic error of confronting the British in open battle, he failed to anticipate Howe's favorite flanking maneuver with less excuse than at Long Island, and he failed to use his cavalry as scouts to find out what the British were up to. In his report on the battle to Congress, he displayed a severe lack of graciousness toward his best subordinates that was rapidly becoming characteristic, and he completely failed to mention the feat of Green and his men in saving the American army. Despite the severe defeat, Washington continued to be optimistic about massive encounters with the enemy, he tried a frontal attack again on September 16 at Warren Tavern, west of Philadelphia, but a heavy storm halted the battle after fighting had begun. On the night of September 20, young General Anthony Wayne's division, left behind at Paoli, when Washington recrossed the Schuylkill to harass the enemy flanks, was surprised by a force under General Charles Gray. The British bayonet charge always effective against the Americans, routed Wayne's forces and inflicted nearly 400 casualties at the expense of virtually none. In this nighttime attack, the British were aided by Wayne's having formed his defense lines between the attacking Gray and their own campfires, the American silhouettes providing easy targets. Free of harassment, the British pushed north on September 22. In a clever maneuver, Howe seemed to be trying to trap Washington's forces, to outflank him on the right, or to go westward to seize American stores at Warwick. In response, Washington moved north, falling for the ruse. With Washington lured to the northward, Howe quickly turned southeast, crossed the Schuylkill unopposed, and marched easily toward Philadelphia. On September 26, 
Cornwallis and his column took occupation of Philadelphia, while the main British army camped north of the city at Germantown. The easy taking of Philadelphia, coming after his string of victories, caused Howe to grow overconfident. He scornfully refused to build entrenchments at his camp at Germantown and split his army by stationing considerable troops in Philadelphia and across the river in New Jersey to capture the fort at Billingsport. This left only 9,000 men in Howe's force at Germantown. In response, the Americans decided to attack from their positions to the north. In emulation of such ancient strategists as Hannibal and Scipio, Washington launched a concerted, multi-pronged, surprise bayonet attack on the night of October 3rd. But, in contrast to Hannibal and Scipio, Washington made several grievous tactical mistakes. He placed the bulk of his army in the center and weak militia columns on the flanks, while his ancient models had placed their strongest forces on the sides. He failed to realize there was a lack of communications between the four widely separated forces launching the simultaneous attack, and he ignored the roughness of the terrain, which was not conducive to bayonet charges. Despite these errors, however, the Americans almost won. Sullivan's column at right center was the first to engage the enemy on the morning of October 4. Green took his force, including two-thirds of the army at left center, swiftly south and southwest to join Sullivan. Together the two, aided by the bayonet charge of Colonel Peter Mullenberg, broke through British lines and were on the point of victory. But fog was thickening rapidly, and soon the divisions could not see what was going on. A series of tragicomic errors ensued. Colonel Henry Knox, inspired by classical military lore, persuaded Washington to waste precious time trying, unsuccessfully, to level Justice Benjamin Chew's house on the battlefield. Several British companies were using it as a fortress, instead of pressing his advantage in the battle. Moreover, General Adam Stephan detached himself from Green's column to bombard the house, gravely weakening Green's forces. As the fog thickened, Wayne got the idea that Sullivan, at his rear, was in trouble, and he abandoned the spearhead of the advance to effect a rescue. The two American divisions, Wayne and Stephan, thereupon fired upon each other, and both fled. Sullivan's troops, remaining in the right center, began to run short of ammunition, and fearing imminent encirclement, they too broke and ran. As for the American forces on the wings, Major John Armstrong's column on the extreme right was repulsed, and General William Smallwood's force arrived on the scene after the battle was over. Neither man pursued his task very energetically. Green had been left to fight the British all alone, and he was trapped. Mullenberg's bayonet brigade was already far ahead of him, but they wheeled back, charged, and joined him. In the course of this, an entire regiment was captured. Green's troops retreated, and soon the entire American army was in a rout. In this Battle of Germantown, the final pitched battle of the Philadelphia campaign, the British had lost over 500 casualties, 
but the Americans had suffered the staggering total of almost 1,200 men. In the three battles, Washington's forces had lost over 2,200 men. The most astute comment on the Battle of Germantown, indeed it could well apply to the entire two years of campaigning between Howe and Washington, appeared in a London newspaper. Any other general in the world than General Howe should have beaten General Washington, and any other general in the world than General Washington would have beaten General Howe. To hold Philadelphia, the British had to be able to supply it by sea, and now at last Admiral Howe sailed up the Delaware to reduce the forts above Chester in American hands. The fort at Billingsport fell quickly, but Fort Mercer at Red Bank on the Jersey Shore repulsed a massive Hessian assault on October 22, inflicting nearly 400 losses. But when the Americans foolishly tried to hold the indefensible Fort Mifflin on Hog Island in the Delaware, fierce British bombardment reduced it to rubble, killing or wounding 250 of the American garrison in the process. The British took the fort on November 15, and from there were able to go back and capture Mercer. The Delaware was now clear and in British hands. Meanwhile, Washington wandered around aimlessly, moving his camp to and fro without purpose. Howe withdrew from Germantown to Philadelphia and constructed fortifications. Washington toyed with the totally disastrous idea of a frontal assault on fortified Philadelphia and was supported in this by General Wayne, but the leading officers, including Green, Knox, and Sullivan, rejected the scheme. Howe tried once again to bring on the final battle with Washington and marched out in dead of night on December 4 against Washington's camp at White Marsh. But Washington was well prepared, and the brilliant American partisan leader, Captain Allen McLean, charged and harassed the British line. Apart from a few skirmishes on December 7, nothing else could be done, and Howe returned to Philadelphia. Volume 4, Chapter 41, Winter at Valley Forge Washington, now sensibly prepared to take his battered and half-fed men into winter quarters, rather than endure the rigors of another winter campaign as they had done the previous year. He favored quarters at Wilmington, where supplies would be plentiful and the weather mild. Furthermore, Delaware and Maryland could be guarded, and American boats could harass British shipping on the Delaware. The officers favored this plan, but in deference to Pennsylvania's howls against letting the British army ravage the countryside, and at the suggestion of Wayne, Washington weakly and unfortunately decided to winter on the icy slopes of Valley Forge to the west of Philadelphia. Few worse locations for obtaining supplies could have been selected than this ravaged area. Generals James Varnum and Baron de Kalb were particularly vehement at wintering in this desert. On December 19, Washington's army, short of food and water, poorly sheltered, and terribly short of shoes and other clothing, staggered into the ill-conceived camp at Valley Forge. In these conditions, disease spread like wildfire, 
through the camp. To obtain food, both the American and British forces sent foraging parties to confiscate cattle and other supplies from the hapless citizens. By the spring of 1778, massive desertions had reduced Washington's army to five or six thousand men. Green was appointed quartermaster general in the emergency, and he was able to scrape up and confiscate enough provisions to last the army through the winter. During the campaigns of 1777, a suspicion began to well up among many Americans that Gates was an excellent general and Washington a miserable one, and that maybe something should be done about it. In Congress, Forced to meet in the small town of York, Pennsylvania, it was the men of the American left that were restive, notably Joseph Lovell and Sam Adams of Massachusetts. Dr. Benjamin Rush, a leading Pennsylvania liberal and chief physician in Washington's army, urged his replacement by a Gates, Lee, or Conway. Thomas Conway, being a capable Irish-born French general recently commissioned, in the Continental Army. In November 1777, Congress advanced a step toward erecting a professional bureaucracy by creating a five-man board of war, not composed of members of Congress, to supervise the Army. As chairman of the board, Congress appointed the hero Gates, who was then too ill for field command. This apparent attempt to downgrade Washington and elevate Gates never got underway. In fact, it never reached the stature of an organized campaign. Indeed, no one in Congress ever proposed the replacement of Washington or even the curtailing of his powers. Two major factors contributed to the crushing of any murmurs of dissent against the commander-in-chief. One was Washington's ruthless use of an indiscretion he discovered, a letter critical of him sent by Gates to Conway. Washington and his influential friends immediately conjured up a non-existent widespread plot, the mythical Conway Cabal, supposedly designed to scuttle Washington. Both Rush and Conway were soon forced out of the army by the vindictive Washington. Conway's fall and subsequent emigration and Gates's decline were also spurred by a madcap plan Gates had for another expedition to invade Canada and possibly take Montreal. This proposed expedition was to be independent of Washington's command and was to be headed by the vain young French Catholic volunteer, the Marquis de Lafayette in a rather far-fetched scheme to appeal to the French-Canadian masses. But Lafayette, ever worshipful of his patron Washington, refused to be independent of his commander-in-chief and bitterly denounced the supposed conspirator Conway as responsible for an intrigue against Washington. When the proposed expedition fell through in March 1778, the failure hastened the demise of all incipient opposition to Washington. The board of war fell into a decline, and Gates, in virtual disgrace, and subject to Washington's continuing vengeance, was assigned a tiny and innocuous command on the Hudson Highlands. Thus, 
history had dealt in high irony with the victors at Saratoga. Gates, after the winter of 1777-78, was relegated out of the action to a minor command. Arnold, seriously wounded and crippled at Bemis Heights, was never again to bear arms for the United States. And Schuler, who for all his faults had after all harried and delayed Burgoyne in his march from Skeensboro, was in disgrace, suspected, with some justice, of treason. He, too, was never again to serve in the army, though eventually acquitted at court-martial for his actions at Ticonderoga. He left the army shortly after. Of the main victors over Burgoyne, only Morgan was to continue in action, and even he was soon to be treated shabbily by George Washington. Meanwhile, Washington, the architect of defeat, surmounted a flurry of opposition and continued more firmly in command than ever. As if the ragged soldiers at Valley Forge did not have enough troubles, they were to be further plagued by the arrival in February of a mendacious Prussian braggart and soldier of fortune calling himself Baron von Steuben. Actually, Captain Steuben was neither a baron nor, as he claimed, a Prussian general, but he managed quickly to be elevated to the post of Inspector General of the Continental Army. Steuben set about to Prussianize the American army, and so now the hapless soldiery suffered the infliction of the whole structure of petty and meaningless routine designed to stamp out individuality and transform the free and responsible soldier into an automaton subject to the will of his rulers. Ever since he had embarked on the Philadelphia campaign, Washington had grown ever further away from the guerrilla tactics that had won him victory at Trenton and had defeated Burgoyne. Washington had no desire to become a guerrilla chieftain. To his aristocratic temper, the only path to glory was through open frontal combat as practiced by the great states of Europe. Washington had tried this formula and lost dismally at Brandywine and at Germantown, but this experience taught him no real lessons. He was delighted to have Steuben continue the process he himself had begun the first year of the war of imposing petty enslavement upon a body of free men. Until recently, historians have rhapsodized uncritically over the benefits of Steuben's training, of the enormous difference in the army's performance. But Washington's and his army's performance was equally undistinguished before and after Steuben. Any differences were scarcely visible. In the midst of this Prussianizing of the American army, Charles Lee was released in a prisoner exchange in early April. While Washington and Steuben were taking the army in an ever more European direction, Lee, in captivity, was moving the other way, pursuing his insights into a full-fledged and elaborated proposal for guerrilla warfare. He presented his plan to Congress as a plan for the formation of the American army. Bitterly attacking Steuben's training of the army according to the European plan, Lee charged that fighting British regulars on their own terms was madness and courted crushing defeat. 
If the Americans are servilely kept to the European plan, they will be laughed at as a bad army by their enemy and defeated in every encounter. The idea that a decisive action in fair ground may be risked is talking nonsense. Instead, he declared that a plan of defense, harassing and impeding, can alone succeed, particularly if based on the rough terrain west of the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania. He also urged the use of cavalry and of light infantry in the manner of Dan Morgan, both forces highly mobile and eminently suitable for the guerrilla strategy. This strategic plan was ignored both by Congress and by Washington, all eagerly attuned to the new fashion of Prussianizing and to the attractions of a real army. Lee made himself further disliked by expressing yearnings for a negotiated peace, with full autonomy for America within the British Empire. During his year in captivity, it seems he had partially reverted to the position of the English Whigs, He did not realize that the United States was now totally committed to independence and that peace terms that would have been satisfactory three years earlier would no longer do. Too much should not be made of this, however. General Sullivan, in his earlier term of captivity, had also been temporarily persuaded of similar views. On reaching camp in late May, Lee soon embittered Washington by scorning Washington's abilities and praising Gates's in a letter to his friend Benjamin Rush. He did succeed, however, in having Steuben's powers curtailed. He also increased his unpopularity by objecting to, though reluctantly taking, a loyalty oath of allegiance to the U.S. and repudiating Great Britain, an oath forced upon every officer in the army. The old scourge of the Tories, the coercer of loyalty oaths, seemed to be growing soft. During the winter of 1777-78, Howe lost his last opportunity to crush Washington's army. Only twenty miles away, and drilling for open combat, it would have been easy prey. But Howe and his troops remained in Philadelphia. While the Americans froze, starved, and drilled, They reveled and partied, luxuriously enjoying the fiddles, wine, and women of Philadelphia. On May 18, Washington, chafing at the inactivity, sent out a force of 2,200 men, one-third of his army, for a reconnaissance in force against the British. He placed in command of this pointless foray the Marquis de Lafayette who was apparently being rewarded for his assiduous flattery of the commander-in-chief. Now he could have his own command and end his pouting. But 2,200 men seems an extravagant price for soothing Washington's protege. Lafayette advanced to Barren Hill, only two miles north of the British lines, and settled down to wait. He did not have to wait long. Howe, about to be replaced by Clinton as commander-in-chief, was determined to end his term on a triumphal note by capturing the young Frenchman. But Lafayette, nearly surrounded, managed to elude the enemy with his troops and to speed back home without fighting a major battle. Upon the collapse of Burgoyne, General Howe, joined by his brother, 
submitted his resignation. After furious objections by Howe's well-placed friends and relatives, Germain replaced him with General Clinton, who assumed command in mid-May. With the end of Howe's term, the last chance for a quick crushing of the American forces had gone, for France was entering the war on the American side. For Britain, the character of the war had now unpleasantly changed. From trying to teach a lesson to revolutionaries, Britain now faced an international, transatlantic, even a worldwide conflict. The first thing to do was end the occupation of Philadelphia, which at best had been a waste of time. Howe had thought of Philadelphia as equivalent to a European capital, the hub and nerve center of administrative, commercial, political, and military life. But in a decentralized people's war, such as the Americans were waging, there was no fixed nerve center. Indeed, there was scarcely any central government at all. All this gave the Americans a flexibility and an ability to absorb invading armies in a manner highly stratified Europe could not understand. Volume 4, Chapter 42 The Battle of Monmouth and the Ouster of Lee With a powerful French fleet sailing westward, Britain could no longer afford the luxury of being open to entrapment between French and American forces. Clinton had to disperse a large part of his troops quickly to fight against the French in the West Indies and to Florida as a base for southerly operations. He was ordered to evacuate Philadelphia immediately and repair to the main British base in New York City. Clinton evacuated Philadelphia from June 8 to 18. By sea, his ships transported 3,000 terrified Philadelphia Tories to New York. The army would have to march across New Jersey. His 10,000 men were soon vulnerably strung out and loaded down with baggage as they trudged slowly northeast across the New Jersey plain toward South Amboy and New York City. Washington's army was now in good condition, thanks to General Greene's supply efforts, and had swelled to 11,000, supplemented by militia in New Jersey. Before leaving Valley Forge, Washington asked advice of his council of war. The reckless General Wayne urged a full-scale frontal attack on the British in New Jersey, but the other generals agreed with Lee in arguing strenuously against an open attack. Far better to enjoy the victory implicit in the British retreat and to bid Clinton good riddance to New York. Washington appeared to accept this sober advice and followed Clinton's army, harassing them along the flanks and outracing them to Cranberry in central New Jersey. Reaching Allentown, east of Trenton, Clinton feared a possible attack crossing the Raritan River, possibly combined with a move southward by Gates. He veered east from the New Brunswick-Amboy Road to take his army to Sandy Hook on the Atlantic Ocean, there to evacuate his men to New York by ship. Washington was anxious to reverse the Council's decision for limited herring operations, and at another Council of War on June 24, he suggested a general open attack on Clinton's army. 
Washington was seconded by Wayne Lafayette and by his aide and theoretician, Colonel Alexander Hamilton. Lee, on the other hand, argued trenchantly that it would be criminal to risk a general engagement against Clinton's professionally trained and equipped troops, and that it would be far better strategically to build a bridge of gold to speed Clinton on his way to the strategically valueless nest in New York. Other generals, however, wanted to have their cake and eat it too, calling for a partial attack that would not risk the entire American army. In a typically muddled compromise, the council decided to keep the main army in reserve while 1,500 men attacked the British flank and rear. This partial attack would accomplish little, and, at worst, as Lee cogently warned, it would rapidly escalate into the very general frontal engagement that most of the generals were trying to avoid. Green's naively optimistic view that, I think we can make a partial attack without suffering them to bring us to a general action, was linked with his psychological argument for having the action at all. People expect something from us. On the other hand, Lafayette and Wayne wrote letters protesting what they regarded as too soft a decision. Hamilton wrote bitterly that the council's decision did honor to the most honorable body of midwives and to them only. Lee angrily refused to lead the 1,500 attackers, and the command was given to Lafayette, itching to get into action. He was ordered eastward to harass or strike at the enemy as he saw fit. But when Washington decided to escalate the partiality of the attack and to commit 5,000 men, fully half of his army, to the engagement against Clinton, Lee changed his mind and insisted on assuming command of the front-line forces, the possibility of defeat now being far more grave. Lee camped at Englishtown, and the British lay at Monmouth Courthouse five miles to the east. On June 27, Washington ordered Lee to attack Clinton's rear guard the following day to prevent Clinton from reaching Sandy Hook even though neither Washington nor Lee had had time to reconnoiter the terrain. Before this attack, Lee was to send out a skirmish force of 600, which joined with Morgan's 600 men on the British right flank, were to harass and scout the British force when it began to march northeast. Morgan's men, however, were too outnumbered to do any good. As the harassment began the following morning, Washington ordered Lee to advance to Monmouth with the rest of his men and to attack the British rear guard if possible, and as soon as possible. Washington was to remain at Englishtown in support of Lee, but because the terrain between Englishtown and Monmouth Courthouse could only be traversed across three morasses or ravines, any support he gave Lee would not be effective. Lee halted upon receiving contradictory information about Clinton's movements, then pressed on to Monmouth, not knowing that Clinton had anticipated the American attack and stood behind Cornwallis's rear guard of over 1,500 men with a crack force of more than 4,000. After some indecisive skirmishing, Lee saw that Clinton's large force stood right behind the rear guard. He ordered Lafayette to defend the right flank against assault, 
but instead Lafayette retreated without authorization, followed first by his fellow blowhard Anthony Wayne and then by General Charles Scott. Lee had no choice but to retreat back toward English town, and he managed to do so in good order, and he later admitted that Lafayette had done the proper thing by retreating. Lee's estimate of the futility of a large-scale attack had been vindicated against Washington's rashness and poor judgment. When Washington, making his advance, met Lee's force retreating, he gave him no chance to explain the retreat. He cursed Lee publicly in a vile manner, halted the retreat, and roused the soldiers to a demagogic pitch. After an attack by the British and furious fighting, the British withdrew from the attack, leaving approximately 350 casualties on either side. The Battle of Monmouth ended in a futile draw. With Clinton satisfied that he had conducted a model rearguard action, that night he slipped away and was soon at Sandy Hook and, on July 5, in New York. The long march across Jersey, the pursuit of Clinton, and especially the Battle of Monmouth accomplished nothing but the loss of lives. The order for attack at Monmouth over poor terrain was Washington's responsibility and his alone. Lee was correct in opposing the campaign, and especially the attack at Monmouth. His retreat was required by the circumstances. Washington's public outburst against Lee was typical of his habit of passing the blame for his own defeats and blunders on to his hapless subordinates. Unluckily for Lee, he was not the man to stand for this sort of despicable treatment. He quickly wrote an angry letter to Washington, accusing him of an act of cruel injustice and demanding some reparation. The letter led to a court-martial, which, subservient to Washington, found Lee guilty of not attacking according to orders, unnecessarily retreating, and being disrespectful of his superior officer in his letters of complaint. It was characteristic that the major force in prosecuting Lee was the reactionary Hamilton, who had exploded at Lee on the field at Monmouth and had accused him of treason. The court-martial suspended Lee from command for one year. Congress's approval of this unjust verdict led Lee to denounce Congress itself, and he was discharged from the army altogether. Yet both votes in Congress for approving the verdict of the court-martial and for dismissing Lee from the service, were close, surprisingly so since the campaign against Lee in Congress was largely made a test of confidence in Washington. The left, led by Sam Adams, James Lovell, and especially Richard Henry Lee, lobbied vigorously for Charles Lee. Dr. Benjamin Rush wrote angrily that the congressmen were beginning to talk of state necessity and of making justice yield to policy. Lee placed equal responsibility for his fall on Washington and his aide Hamilton. Also participating in the savaging of Lee were Lafayette, Wayne, Steuben, Scott, and Washington's aristocratic South Carolinian aide, Colonel John Lawrence. Defending Lee among the high officers, in addition to his legal aides, were Horatio Gates, Henry Knox, who had distinguished himself at Monmouth, General Alexander McDougall, General Benjamin Lincoln, 
who had been wounded and crippled at Saratoga, and Colonel Aaron Burr, who had also fought at Monmouth. Even Nathaniel Green, staunch supporter of Washington and personally estranged from Lee, acknowledged the grave injustice of Lee's treatment. Indeed, most officers acknowledged privately that Lee was right, but sided opportunistically with their commander-in-chief in public. Even General Clinton, certainly no friend of Lee's, thought the treatment of him grossly unjust and agreed that Lee's able retreat had saved the American army from a smashing blow by his forces. When Charles Lee heard the verdict of Congress, he turned to one of his beloved dogs and exclaimed, Oh, that I was that animal, that I might not call man my brother. Despite his being deeply hurt by the decision, he gamely fought on for vindication, publishing effective defenses in the press. In this, he pointed to Washington's series of severe military defeats and keenly raised the point of the similar treatment of General Conway by Washington. Finally, isolated and embittered, he retired to a Virginia farm. As he had wittily written to Aaron Burr, he would learn to hoe tobacco, which I find is the best school to form a consummate general. There he was to die impoverished before the end of the war, consoled only by a few friends, such as the young Virginian James Monroe, who rallied round. Even in death, Lee shocked the respectables, as his will revealed him to be a confirmed deist. His final estimate of Washington was apt. A man whose stern and composed visage masked an impoverished intellect and a vindictive cunning that destroyed every man who aroused his envy or injured his pride. His only military victory in an innumerable stream of defeats was in one successful surprise of a drunken Hessian. Monmouth was the last major battle of the war to be fought in the North. From that point on, the strategy of the war was to undergo a sharp change. It was now an international war, and the British government's aim for a quick knockout in the North had to be abandoned. From then on, only minor skirmishes and forays were waged in the North, with the bulk of the British Army concentrated in New York City. The scene of major conflict would now shift to the hitherto unscarred South. Volume 4, Chapter 43, Response in Britain and France The great aim of American diplomacy during the 1776-78 period was to induce France to expand her role from that of staunch but covert supporter to open ally at war with England. Pressures played upon the French government. The masses and the political opposition led by former foreign minister Comte Etienne Francois Chausseul were eager for war. But Foreign Minister Comte Charles Gravier de Vergennes, though deeply sympathetic to the new republic, cautiously drew back from open war, especially after American reverses in the summer of 1776 and in 1777. France and Spain had been about to go to war with England when Washington's ignominious defeat at the Battle of Long Island changed Vergennes' mind, and France again drew back from the break 
after Burgoyne's capture of Ticonderoga. Finally, Britain tried to intimidate France by threatening war if she did not cease her aid, while the Americans responded with subtle blackmail and threats of a separate peace with Britain, threats that conjured up to the French the fearsome vision of old Pitt heading a unified Anglo-American war to crush France. Negotiations for the fledgling United States with France were first handled by Silas Dean, who arrived in France in early July 1776. He was succeeded by a three-man commission appointed by Congress to negotiate treaties and agreements in Europe, consisting of Dean, Benjamin Franklin, and Arthur Lee. The commission arrived in Paris at the end of December 1776. The wily old tactician Franklin proved to be a master at the intricacies of lying, bamboozling, and intriguing that formed the warp and woof of diplomacy. Moreover, the old rogue was a huge hit with the French, who saw him as the embodiment of reason, the natural man, and bonhomie. This three-man commission was guided by a model set of treaties, the Plan of 1776, drawn up while Dean was still on his own in France by a committee of independence. The committee submitted its model in mid-July 1776, and Congress adopted it in mid-September. The plan, which furnished the model for all the 18th-century treaties of the United States, did not propose a formal political alliance with France, for John Adams had led Congress in adopting Tom Paine's isolationist view that America must be self-reliant, abstain from entangling alliances in the unremitting wars of Europe, and avoid possible domination by any of the powers. Instead, the plan proposed French recognition of the independence of the United States, and a perpetual treaty of commerce and friendship, resting on the great international law principles, safeguarding the rights of neutral nations. Free ships make free goods. Carefully restricted list of contraband that could be seized by belligerents and freedom of neutral shipping between belligerent ports. All of these emerging libertarian principles went totally against the practice of Great Britain the world's dominant and aggressive naval power. The American model also proposed total freedom of trade and reciprocity between France and the United States. As Professor Gilbert puts it, whereas usually commercial conventions were sources of friction and instruments of power politics reinforcing political alliances by commercial preferences, the Americans wanted to establish a commercial system of freedom and equality which would eliminate all cause for tension and political conflicts. In other terms of the plan, no separate peace with Britain would be made by either party in case France should be involved in the war, and the United States was to pledge not to interfere with Spanish possessions in South America. France, in turn, was to give up any claims it might have to territory on the North American continent. In the plan of 1776, as Felix Gilbert points out, the infant United States set forth a shining new libertarian conception of how nation-states should deal with one another. 
political isolationism coupled with cultural and economic internationalism. There was to be no political meddling by governments, but rather full freedom for peaceful and productive relationships between individuals and peoples. This conception put into practice the foreign policy views that were being developed by the French philosophes. The philosophes recognized that the expansion of international commerce was rapidly creating one interdependent economic world, a true family of nations welded together through trade for mutual benefit. The task of governments, then, including their foreign policy, is to get out of the way of this natural social intercourse. Militarism, the shimmer of the balance of power, treaties and alliances, the frauds of diplomacy, all were denounced as old-fashioned and incompatible with the new international order of peace and freedom and reason, the only order compatible with the rapid emergence of one economic world. Or as the French physiocrat and libertarian Nicolas Baudot put it in 1767, the essence of power politics consists of divergence of interest, that of economic policy of unity of interest. The one leads to war, frustrations, destruction, the other to social integration, cooperation, and free and peaceful sharing of the fruits of work. The old policy of aggression and restriction was to be replaced by the economic policy of unrestricted freedom of trade, mutual benefit, and harmony among nations. In brief, in the world to come, foreign policy per se would disappear. In a free and rational world, foreign policy and diplomacy, a typical phenomenon of the Ancien Regime, would become unnecessary. From the very beginning of the New Republic, John Adams, Tom Paine, and the other American leaders set forth as the objectives of American foreign policy, peace, full neutral rights in international law, political isolationism, and unrestricted freedom of trade. Relations between nations would become purely commercial contacts, and the need for a political diplomacy with alliances and balance of power would disappear from the international scene. By the autumn of 1777, Britain had intimidated France into stopping the loading of vessels for America and in ousting the American privateers from hospitable French ports. But the startling news of Burgoyne's defeat at Saratoga, coming in early December, altered matters completely. Now Vergens knew that America could win. In addition, the danger of an Anglo-American reconciliation suddenly emerged as Lord North's government moved from a policy of hard coercion to the offer of conciliatory peace terms. Both these factors moved the French toward open war. From Lexington to Saratoga, Britain had been united in patriotic fervor in a war to crush the Americans. Only the gallant and seemingly discredited minority Whigs, led by Burke, and especially by Charles James Fox, the London radicals to the left and the Chathamites on their right, persisted in opposing the war. 
the Whigs and the Radicals realized that their salvation could only come with a resounding British defeat in America, and on such defeat they centered all their hopes. In April 1777, in his letter to the Sheriff of Bristol, Edmund Burke finally came around to Fox's position of advocating repeal of all acts upon America passed since 1763, even the Declaratory Act, which had been an integral part of the short-lived Rockingham Ministry. Burke also went so far as to hint that he preferred American independence to continuing the war. Burgoyne's defeat galvanized the British and the French. The British cabinet tried desperately to conciliate the Americans and avoid French entry, and was now prepared to offer the old Whig terms of going back to the status quo before 1763. The British secretly conveyed these terms to the American commissioners at Paris, but it was all too little and too late. Americans, after three years of bitter conflict, were not disposed to abandon their independence. As would happen again and again in history, an imperialist power bogged down in an exhausting colonial war, which it could not win, desperately tried to find a way to extricate itself, and the revolutionaries coolly pointed to the simple solution, cease fire and evacuation of all forces as preconditions to negotiations leading to recognition of independence. But the British persisted in holding face to be a more important objective. The Americans, however, used these offers to pressure France into immediate entry into the war. As early as mid-December, the French hastened to promise recognition of the independence of the United States. On January 8th, even after failing to obtain Spain's agreement, Bergens informed the Americans that France was willing to sign a treaty of friendship and alliance with the new republic. Finally, on February 6, 1778, France and the United States signed two vital treaties. The Treaty of Amity and Commerce was a revised version of Adams' model plan of 1776. Neutrals' rights were guaranteed. But instead of unrestricted free trade between the two countries, they adopted a convenient Most Favored Nation Clause. The Treaty of Conditional and Defensive Alliance pledged a military alliance whenever war should ensue between France and Great Britain. The aim of the alliance was declared to be the protection of the absolute independence of the United States. France pledged itself never to claim territory in North America previously held by the British. The two parties pledged themselves never to conclude a separate peace with Britain, nor to lay down their arms until the independence of the United States shall have been assured. Each of the two countries also, rather rashly, mutually extended guarantees to the other's territory and agreed not to seek compensation from one another for wartime actions. The treaties were a great diplomatic success and contained virtually everything for which the Americans could have hoped, with no compromise whatever of American independence. The English Whigs were radicalized enough by these events to come forth now as open champions of American independence. 
They and the radicals put up a vigorous and gallant fight to stop the war, led by the Duke of Richmond's motion in early April for evacuation of the United States and recognition of its independence. The British masses, however, showed little sign of recognizing the folly of pursuing the imperialist war. On the contrary, they began to clamor for war with the ancient enemy France, and since war with France always conjured up William Pitt, it is possible that a united opposition behind Pitt could have toppled the North regime. For Pitt, however, Britain's imperial role came first and foremost, and he ensured the failure of the justly embittered Whigs by roundly attacking the very concept of independence for the colonies. Furthermore, he refused any sort of cooperation with such anti-empire men as the Whigs. In virtually the last act of his life, William Pitt, Earl of Chatham, staggered into the House of Lords to register bitter opposition to Lord Richmond's notion, croaking, If we must fall, let us fall like men. The dying Pitt collapsed, as Burke acidly put it, after he had spat his last venom. Pitt had performed his last betrayal, his last obfuscation of the liberal cause. But his banner was taken up by his disciple, the Earl of Shelburne, and the Richmond Resolution was defeated in the House of Lords by a vote of 50 to 33. In Commons, the American cause was led by Fox, who showed himself the equal of Burke as a political strategist. Instinctively, Fox realized that political ideas remain isolated and quixotic until they become rooted in a social class. He began, then, to reach beyond the narrow circle of Whig aristocrats toward the mass of country gentry, who, while traditionally Tory, were instinctively and inarticulately libertarian. Their main concern was in keeping tax rates and therefore government expenditures as low as possible. He linked up in their minds the American war to the aggrandizement of ministers and their favorite placement at home. A successful American war would rivet the power of the executive and of the crown upon Parliament and the British people. In this session, Fox was able to make a serious bid for Gentry's support and succeeded on several issues. While reviving and unifying opposition to the war with America, however, the British liberal movement was beginning to undergo a deep-seated philosophical rift. Elaborating a conservative liberal position was Edmund Burke. Much of Burke's letter to Bristol was a bitter attack on the renaissance radical libertarian wing of the opposition. Burke violently denounced systematic reasoning in political philosophy, as well as the belief in abstract natural rights. As against reason and logical consistency, he held up the instinctive wisdom of the past, compromise, and ad hoc prudence in political affairs. Burke was nothing if not provocative, and his letter to Bristol immediately provoked a pamphlet in reply by the ardent Whig peer, the Earl of Abingdon, who championed the natural rights philosophy. Abingdon, however, 
was not the intellectual leader of the new libertarian movement. That honor belonged, rather, to the dissenting minister, the Reverend Richard Price. Price's magnum opus, widely and enormously influential in England and America, was his Observations on the Nature of Civil Liberty, 1776. Correctly observing that the Americans were risking all on behalf of liberty as a natural and inalienable right, he set out to examine both the nature of liberty and the controversy with America. Weighing the relative danger to liberty from a despotic government, as against a popular mob, Price saw why a settled government is far more dangerous. A mob is by its nature transitory and short-lived, while despotism wearing the form of government and being armed with its force is an evil not to be conquered without dreadful struggles. While representation is a vital check against a king, Parliament's delegated power, too, must be kept subordinate and limited, for true sovereignty must lie in the people themselves. The true purpose of government, Price argued, was to protect and confirm liberty and the natural rights of men, and not to infringe them. But power must be continually watched, and particular dangers to liberty are an extravagant budget and a standing army. Parliaments must be subject to frequent elections and be free of corruption. He went on as well to denounce England's war against America and its claim to tax the colonies. He also trenchantly defended revolution in phrases very similar to the Declaration of Independence, which would appear six months later. Mankind are naturally disposed to continue in subjection to that mode of government under which they have been born and educated. Nothing raises them to resistance but gross abuses or some particular oppressions out of the roads to which they have been used. There has generally been more reason to complain that they have been too patient than that they have been turbulent and rebellious. In setting forth his theory of liberty, Price came close to a stand for anarchism. The polar opposites in political regimes were slavery on the one hand and self-government on the other. And self-government, or self-direction, was the key to liberty, not government by law, since laws can be and are made by one person or set of persons to bind others. To Price, the mark of the free state was that in it every man was his own legislator. All taxes were free gifts. All laws were established by common consent. All magistrates were trustees. In short, the essentials of a system of individualist anarchism. In such a society, moreover, there would be no artificial equality of income or position the equality would be in individual independence and liberty. Equality is the independence of each on every other. No man could be ruled without his consent, or taxed, or abridged of his liberty. 
Price's pamphlet quickly went into over a dozen printings and was rapidly reprinted in Scotland, Ireland, and throughout the United States in pamphlet form and in the weekly press. Emerging as leader of the London radicals in this period was Major John Cartwright. One of the first open advocates of American independence, Major Cartwright refused to serve in the fighting against the revolution. In contrast to the Whigs, he and other radicals realized that liberty could never become the guiding principle of the British state until the ruling oligarchy was at least curbed. Hence, in his highly popular Take Your Choice, 1776, Cartwright urged a democratic reform of Parliament to bring about a liberal government. He boldly called for democracy to check and limit the oligarchic power of Parliament. Specifically, he urged strictly uniform representation, voting by secret ballot, annually elected parliaments, and universal manhood suffrage. He even advocated the gathering of a great extra-governmental convention, which could reform the British Constitution. While the liberals were becoming increasingly radicalized on the American question, the harried Lord North, restrained by the king from resigning his post as prime minister, slowly pressed forward the former American policy of the Whigs. Overriding the dismay of the Tory extremist, North pushed through Parliament in mid-March the repeal of all the interfering acts since 1763, including the T, coercive and prohibitory acts, as well as abandoning any parliamentary taxation for revenue upon the colonies. Parliament also created a commission under the Earl of Carlisle to go to America and offer peace terms on the basis of home rule. The British concessions, however, made little impact on the United States, which branded anyone who might come to terms with the Carlisle Commission an enemy of the country. Further, the Americans used this offer, as we have seen, to pressure France into entering the war. Shortly afterward, Congress received news of the French treaties, which were ratified unanimously on May 4, after only two days of deliberation. The Carlisle Commission arrived in Philadelphia in early June, 1778, only to find General Clinton evacuating the city, hardly a strong position from which to bargain with the Americans. The Commission's repeated request for peace talks were met firmly by Congress's unanimous rebuff of June 17. There would be no negotiations unless they followed the withdrawal of British troops and recognition of the independence of the United States. It was now only a question of time when hostilities between Britain and France would officially begin, and the clash came at a naval skirmish off Ushant near Brittany on June 17. The two fleets battled to a standoff, and thus furnished an unpleasant reminder to the English that the French fleet was a formidable foe. With the entry of France into the war, Britain was forced to adopt a defensive strategy in America to permit the waging of a general war. Naval strategy became dominant. Indeed, had French Admiral Charles Hector d'Estaing not dwaddled in crossing the Atlantic, he could have intercepted Lord Howe's inferior fleet 
engaged in the evacuation from Philadelphia. When he arrived in American waters in July, he and Washington blockaded New York City. D'Estaing considered attacking the inferior British fleet in New York Harbor, but the lack of maneuverability for his heavier ships forced him to desist. From there, he and General Sullivan moved toward a land-sea siege of the British base at Newport, but stout resistance and stormy waters beat off the French-American attack, and both land and sea forces withdrew. D'Estaing, refusing to aid further in attacking Newport, withdrew his fleet to West Indian waters in November. British strategy for America in the midst of the wider international war was temporarily to emphasize naval conflict, concentrating its land force in a few coastal bases such as New York City, Newport, and Halifax, from which to wage blockades and raids on American trade and shipping and on coastal centers. Even Lord Germain agreed that the British war on America must be principally naval. But between the French Navy and American privateers now fully and openly cooperating, British naval affairs were in parlous shape. Before French intervention, British blockades and an efficient convoy system had considerably reduced the effectiveness of American privateers. But now, while North delayed in pushing naval construction, American privateers could raid British shipping from France and boldly strike at coastal areas of England and Ireland. Of the single ships of the tiny Continental Navy, the most prominent exploit was that of Captain John Paul Jones. In the sloop Ranger, and operating out of Brest in Brittany, Jones raided and fought successfully during April up and down the coasts of England, Scotland, and Ireland. The British had decided to center their operations in 1778 on an amphibious expedition of 5,000 of Clinton's men against St. Lucia in the West Indies. The arrival of Destang's fleet forestalled this attack. Clinton was not authorized to take offensive action on land, and so the 1778 campaign was frittered away. <laughs> 